Oh yeah. Don't worry about it. I'll talk. I'll talk to you later. Yeah. Maybe at lunch or something. It's a little. You kind of. You kind of. Well, it needs to be shaken. It talks a lot. Thank you for reading. I didn't shake it well. All right. Is the speaker sounds like it's on? Don't drink anything green. That's my motto. Hey. All right. Could we get a? It's time to start the meeting. I wanted to. If it's green, don't drink it. I wanted to uh, acknowledge the uh, death of Esther Gelman, who was uh, on the planning board many years ago, even though she obviously went on to uh, bigger and better things. Uh, she was a member of the county council, and um, I actually did not know her well, but I did uh, talk to her in the course of uh, the White Flint plan when uh, she was giving a number of the uh, activists who are trying to build support for, for White Flint to uh, some advice about how to uh, be uh, more effective in trying to advance their point of view. So she was uh, obviously very engaged with the community in so many ways even after she was uh, out of office and uh, had served here as a commissioner. So very sad. I, I knew her very well because she was a council member when I first started in the development business. And uh, she was quite a force on the council and um, really understood both sides and was pretty much loved by citizens and developers and landowners. It's kind of an amazing place to be. Um, so she was, she was quite effective in this county for a long time. I mean, even after she retired, she stayed involved, uh, volunteered for lots of things that didn't pay her anything. Um, so that's the kind of person she was. Okay. Uh, thanks for that. Uh, could we get a motion on the uh, record plats? Move approval. Second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? Those are approved. The, uh, I guess, the uh, Rainbow Drive, Thompson Road, Briggs Cheney Middle School bus lot, uh, mandatory referral and preliminary and final water quality plan. Uh, with the resolutions. Approval. Second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? That's approved. And the extension request for 8711 Georgia Avenue drive through Move approval. Second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? That's approved too. And it's time for Flower Avenue Urban Park. Okay, good morning, uh, Mr. Chairman, members of the board. For the record, my name is Josh Kay with the Department of Parks. Today I'm here to ask the board to approve the resolution in your packet recommending the commission execute a land purchase agreement with Michael Freed to acquire his 7,500-acre or square-foot improved residential property as an addition to Flower Avenue Urban Park. If you park. get us a 7,500-acre park in <laughs> Tacoma Park, that would be pretty good. <laughs> 
Uh, the property is located at 8721 Garen Road in the Long Branch area of Silver Spring. The intent of this acquisition is to pro provide additional open space and active use areas to the existing park. Details of this recommendation were uh, presented to the board last week in closed session. The freed property will be acquired for a purchase price of $380,000 and will be funded through Maryland's program open space. Uh, so at this time, if there are no questions, staff ask the board to adopt the resolution before you today. Thank you. Great acquisition. Yeah, fantastic acquisition and a move approval. Second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? That's approved. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Uh, good morning. For the record, Mark Pefferly, Chief Development Applications, Regulatory Coordination Division. Um, with me is Hassan Modizetti of the Department of Permanent Services. We're here to talk about items five and six combined, which is talking about site plan enforcement and changes to the site plan enforcement agreement or the memorandum of understanding. But first, I want to start with talking about some of the things on how the enforcement works. Because a lot of you probably, um, or some of you were not planning board members back in 2006, when we passed over the inspection responsibilities of Department of Permanent Services for site plan enforcement. And again, this is just for site plan enforcement. So the way the process works, and DPS has been actively involved um, since, the, since that time, is even at the Development Review Committee meeting, uh, there's uh, part of this DPS staff looks at site plan issues. They're involved in giving comments to an applicant at DRC. And then also as we work through development applications, they also look at some of the conditions of approval made, which may impact how they actually enforce the site plan. Uh, once we get the certified site plan approved, um, then the developer or the applicant needs to, to deal with the Department of Permanent Service for site plan issues. And now I'm going to turn it over to Isan about how that process works. I do have a PowerPoint that I wanted to show up with numbers, but for some reason it's not popping up, and hopefully it'll come up. <coughs> it's like uh, what's happening. Uh, it's just a PowerPoint just spinning out of control. <laughs> I can't see if he's saying yeah. it. Huh? Go ahead. Good morning. Uh, I, my name is Isan Motazidi. I'm the Division Chief of Zoning and Site Plan Enforcement with the Department of Permitting Services. Uh, I want to take this opportunity to thank you for allowing us to be here to discuss the modification to the uh, MOU and also give you a brief uh, description of how we do our site plan enforcement program. DPS and MNCPPC has built and maintained a great working relationship in dealing with site plan issues over the years. The staff from both agencies are in constant contact regarding various site plan issues I want to thank all the MNCPPC staff for their effort and their assistance over the years. DPS performs its responsibility by reviewing every building permit associated with a certified site plan. Also, we conduct on-site inspection 
and also any complaint that comes up is related to a site plan, certified site plan. Currently, the Zoning and Site Plan Enforcement Division in DPS has two sections. One section deals with the enforcement of the site plan. That section has seven dedicated code enforcement inspectors, one field supervisor, and one uh, manager. And the, by, by the way, they are in the, in the audience, you know. They wanted to be here, so if they want to stand up, they can stand up so you guys can see them. <laughs> but anyway. The inspectors are assigned areas, and if we have a special assignments uh, with uh, large or complex projects, then we have a group of inspectors that would be attending those meetings, and they'll be doing the uh, enforcement of the site plan. Uh, did you get this? Okay. Also, just want to let you know, in accordance to the MOU, it used to be we, we had to do an inspection every 30 days. Now, with the new MOU, we do it every 10 days. However, on an active site, that's construction is progressing, like, we, you know, like the outlet mall, once they get really cranking, which they are, we are there on a daily basis. Just to ensure there's so many, you have so many requirements on those site plans, the brick pavers, landscaping. We just want to ensure that those detailed requirements that you have on your opinion and resolution are enforced and are being done in accordance to the certified site plans. Uh, I believe you have the number. What I have up there, what you have up there, are a few of the numbers that we have. Uh, the numbers that I pulled is not for the last 10 years. It's for the last three fiscal years, 2014, 2015, and 2016. Uh, the first one is the total inspections. Uh, in fiscal year 2014, we did over 3,800 uh, inspection of certified site plans. In 2015, that's a typo. That's really a 30, over 36. It's 3626. And so far this year is 3340. Pre-construction meetings, we had uh, 24 pre-construction meetings in 2014, 29 in 15, and 33 so far this year. Is the increase, you know, significant increase in inspections to date this year due to the, the increased frequency of site visits, or is it actually reflecting an increase in projects as well. The projects has in increased the last couple of years. There's more certified site plan coming out of the commissioner's office, so we have more inspection that are, are, are part of, it reflects some of that. And uh, this year so far, 3340, so that, that's a reflective. It's gonna be probably close to 4,000 by, by the end of the fiscal year. Uh, final inspection, we had 129 in 2014, 62, F515, and 73 so far this year. And the final inspection uh, is, is, is um, to ensure the, the site is complete. And also, in some sites, since 2010, we start accepting surety bonds. And that's part of it, being able to find all, and then the commission is in charge of releasing it. NONC and NOV issued. Uh, NONC is notice of noncompliance. Uh, 22 in 2014, 19 in 2015, and 14 in 2016. <coughs> Building permit review. I'm sorry, is that when? So someone has a certified site plan, you do a final inspection, and they haven't? met the test and then you, do they get a chance to correct it? Uh, if, they, if they correct it, do you issue a, a notice of noncompliance anyway or you, or you just let them correct it, you go back and do an inspection? 
The NONC is during the construction. Oh, during construction. During the construction. It, uh, yeah, it has nothing to do with the final. Final inspection, it means if we do a final inspection that it, they're complete. They have done everything in accordance to the certified site plan. The NONC comes up during the course of construction, and it could be for various reasons. And that's when they come to you guys, and they have to amend the site plan in some cases. And in some cases, it's possible to administratively to approve it and continue. The last, uh, there you go. The last number is for the plan review. Uh, fiscal year 2014, we did over 40, 4,800 uh, building permit review. Uh, last fiscal year was over 5,000, and so far this year is 4,570. These are all building permit associated with the certified site plan. So when you have a project like Poplar Run, uh, which has like 800 or so many uh, building permits. Every time they come, we have to look it up, we have to review it and make sure it's in accordance, the zoning, the setbacks, the height, everything meets the requirement of the, uh, the cipher. That's it. One thing we've done is like, uh, we're also responsible for releasing building permits associated with site plans. But we've uh, worked with the Department of Permitting Services, so we don't see all those site plan building permits. We would not have the staff to look at 4,500 building permits for site plans, I mean, not just site plans in itself. Some of these site plans could be related to um, retaining walls or it could be related to something else. That, you know, we're primarily interested in the structure itself that's being constructed, not so much the building retaining walls or even uh, we, we do look at sheeting and shoring permits for the bigger ones. But for the most part, we're not seeing, we're probably seeing less than half of those building permits, uh, which is a good thing. Otherwise, we'd be totally overwhelmed with the building permits. One thing that ESON did talk about is with the final inspection. And since 2010, we've been collecting and maintaining sureties to make sure the developers actually complete their site plan and, and do install all the landscape and all their site plan amenities, whether it's landscape or whatever. And that process is such that Department of Permitting Services will conduct a final inspection. Um, they will then send us a letter and saying it's okay to release the bond, uh, the financial carry that we're holding. If it's for non-landscaping items, we release the bond. If it is for landscaping items, um, we will release up to 50% of the financial surety, and then there would be a one-year maintenance period. And after the one-year maintenance period that's reinspected, and then we release the entire financial charity. So we just want to make sure the landscaping is in the ground and is actually successful for at least one year. This sort of segues into memorandum understanding changes, which we're also here to talk to you about, which I believe is item six. Um, it is attachment, the new, uh, since 2006, we've had a memorandum understanding with DPS for site plan enforcement. The first amendment to that, that MOU occurred in 2011. This would be the second amendment to it. And it's actually attachment three in my staff report to you, what the new amendment would be. What we're doing here is we're just trying to update the MOU to take, um, to recognize our current processes. For instance, the current um, and effective memorandum of standings requires the Department of Permitting Services to be all, at all pre-construction meetings on site plans. Well, that's not really necessary when they're just doing land, getting ready to clear the land, because it may be many months for the actual pull a building permit. So DPS, for the most part, will have those inspections occur in their offices. So we revised the memorandum of understanding to reflect, reflect things of those natures. Well, we're also including a new section to talk about the release of financial securities because that just came into effect in 2010, 2011. We wanted to capture the process. 
And also in the previous memorandum of understanding, there were a number of flow charts that documented the internal DPS process. We've removed those except for the one that shows the interaction and enforcement where DPS would do the initial inspections. And then if there's a noncompliance issue and a violation, it would then be turned over to the plan department. Our inspectors go through it to enforce it, uh, whether or not they could complete it or correct the violation or not. If they uh, could correct the violation, then we'll deal with it. But if they can't, it might require a site plan amendment or it might require an enforcement hearing in front of the, the planning board, but first through a hearing examiner. So the only um, flow sheet or chart that's left in the one is talks about the interaction between the Department of Permitting Service and us as it relates to uh, the enforcement of site plans and not so much dealing with the internal process of DPS and how to release building permits or the earlier part of inspections. You saw, do you have anything you want to add to the site plan memorandum and understanding what changes we're making? Uh, some of the changes, other changes that we are making is uh, the number of days, like I mentioned, that it used to be 30, now we do 10, and on active sites, you know, on a daily basis. Uh, there used to be, uh, in regard to a violation, how many days uh, we had to do our inspection and, and, and get back to the, to the commission. It used to be five days, now we have reduced that to three days uh, in case of emergencies immediately. Um, a decrease in the number of days from five businesses to 30 days uh, in, in which we have to provide uh, written comments to park and planning staff. Uh, other than that, I think that's it. And, and also it reflects in some of, as a result of the e-plans, uh, it used to be we would get a lot of documents, hard copies, now a lot of them are coming on e-plans, uh, but we still are getting uh, a signed copy of the certified site plan, a hard copy. We still request that and we are getting that. So we're asking the board here to uh, approve the changes memorandum standing so then we can send it out to the various uh, for case of signature and also then to Department of Permanent Services, which then be forwarded off to the county council. So we're asking for your approval to the changes to the memorandum of understanding. Okay, any uh, comments or questions on any of that? Just a question for uh, DPS. Are, are, are you satisfied that uh, there's enough flexibility in what we're approving to make internal management adjustment, adjustments as you have to to meet the requirement? Because normally I'm not used to so much detail being directed to the department. And normally your job is, you know, inspected and report when there are violations. This has – it tells you how to do everything. Is are you, well, <laughs> is, are you okay that if you want to make some change, you don't have to come back and do a, a, it, it, it's a pretty It's pretty good because, uh, like I said, um, the, the staff are constantly talking. We have an open line of communication. I think it's just, just, just about on a daily basis. The process is written up, and the way we go through it is we have the flexibility in some instances, hey, uh, to make some modification in the field, to do whatever it needs to be, to save costs and not having the developer have to come over here to see the staff. To you don't need a change in the MOU. No, we are fine. Okay. Yeah. Well, I Everything's move, fine. Move approval or staff recommendation. I'm going to second that, but not without comment and high praise for DPS. Uh, truly, I mean, obviously I'm a little bit involved with why we have such a detail. And I'm grateful for it because I think that people who rely on what we approve through hearings, the general public, they don't have an insight into what happens beyond that. And to be able to effectively, you know, manage those projects, 
is kind of reassuring. So I appreciate it, and I second that. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? Thanks for coming and seeing us. Thank Thank you. Whenever you're ready. For the record, Stephen Peck, Forest Conservation Inspector, Senior Planner and Development Application Regulatory Coordination Team, presenting preliminary plan amendment for the Andrea S. Heed property, also known as Stony Creek Estates, Lot 175. The property owner is Deborah and James Marr. The, their representative and agent is Gary Balsamo. This amendment was submitted and accepted for review on October 30th of last year. It's located in Potomac at 12300 Stony Creek Road. The, the amendment is in response to two forest conservation easement violations at, in the rear area of conservation easement on lot 175. The, they were discovered in March of last year uh, I went out there and discovered that there was a stone wall and fences and impervious services, uh, despite the snow, in the conservation easement area and issued a notice violation uh, to the property owner for a conservation easement violation. At the time, the property owner said, well, a driveway had just been built within a portion of the conservation easement and I said, okay, yeah, I need to check that out. And I went back. The snow had melted then and discovered that, yes, there's a driveway uh, built and learned that this driveway was built 
by the owner of the property to the rear of 175, which is Stony Creek Estates, lot 185. And the driveway had been built within access and utility easement that had been recorded over a portion of the Category 1 conservation easement. I issued a notice of violation for a conservation easement agreement violation to the representative of lot 185 for this violation, which is Gary Balsamo. First, a little background of how the precursors sort of to the violation. The subdivision was approved in 1995, a four-acre track of land with two planting areas, one in the front and one in the rear of the subdivision. This is an image of the approved record plant. After approval of the preliminary plan, the owner at the time recorded the record plant, and this record plant shows the two planting areas as Category 1 conservation easements. After recording the record plant, the properties changed hands. They were bought by Stony Creek Overlook, LLC, both lot 176 and 175. Prior to this owner selling it, access easement and utility easement over 175 was recorded through portions of the Category 1 conservation easement. In 1997, in June, the Mars purchased the property. This is an image from 2015 of the property. It shows the outline of the subject property, lot 175. It shows the two planting areas. So after issuing the notices of violation, staff met with the property owner and their representative to discuss how to pass and clean up this mess. And that was one means would be submitting a limited preliminary plan amendment for conservation easement changes to propose release of the rear conservation easement area on lot 175 and mitigate off-site. This image here is a blow-up of the forest conservation plan, and it shows the surveyed location of structures within the Category 1 conservation easement area at the rear of 175. You can see that there are stone walls and concrete walks behind the existing house in the easement, behind the barn. There's a concrete pad, and there's an asphalt driveway. So very difficult to plant forest and to have the wildlife and habitat of a Category 1 easement in this scenario. This is a map of the amendment. In pink, it shows the proposed area of conservation easement to be released. It shows 
a approximately quarter acre in the front of lot 175 is to be retained. Uh, this area is, is to be planted as part of this amendment. And in fact, I've met with the property owner last week for a pre-planting meeting and I'm reviewing a cost estimate at this time uh, for the cost of the planting and the maintenance. Is that is that particular area going to be 50 feet wide? Well, it's already it was already um, back in 1995. Uh, planning department didn't have those thresholds, so this is just an easement that's not going to change. But um, in this map, I'm only showing the portion of the easements on 175. If you go go back, this is a map of the whole subdivision and is connected to, to the easement on 176. And so, and don't get, don't get too dismayed in this photo. The portion on 176 um, is going to be planted at the time it was approved to be disturbed during construction for grading. Uh, for the record, I also want to mention back in 1995, the minimum width of forest was only 35 feet. It was changed in about 2001, 2002 to be a minimum of 50 feet in width. That didn't even look like 35 feet there. But is that because it was going to be 35 feet after planting? Well, when you find the planting on lots 175 and 176, it's going to be 30, a minimum of 35 feet. Okay. And in fact, the combined area is um, over half an acre, or approximately half an acre. So, uh, summary of the amendment. Off-site mitigation is proposed uh, for the release uh, consistent with the two-to-one mitigation rate. A total of 25,668 square feet of forest credit is to be acquired at an approved forest conservation bank. Uh, that's just to, to happen uh, first uh, within 60 days of the mailing of the resolution. After approval of the certificate for this uh, off-site credit, uh, planning department will issue a release um, of the easement, and these will be documented um, by a plot of correction. Staff recommends approval of the amendment uh, with the conditions specified in approval of the resolution. Okay. Did you gentlemen want to add anything to that, or are you just here for questions? Are there any comments or questions? Can we get a motion? Oh. A move approval of plans as with as conditioned with, with the conditions. resolution. With the yes. resolution. Second. Second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? That's approved. Thank you.
Good morning. For the record, Robert Cronenberg with uh, Area 1. Uh, we have uh, quite a few staff uh, here with us today uh, for the Bethesda Downtown Plan. This is Work Session 14. Uh, we're coming back to you uh, trying to whittle away at some of the um, the remaining items that we have so that we can actually come back to you hopefully on the 30th with uh, text edits uh, to try and wrap this up for a final vote out in July. Um, next to me is uh, Laura Shipman, uh, urban designer, who's going to go through some of the items today. Uh, Michael Brown is up here as well. Uh, we also have park staff, Rachel Newhouse, Brenda Sandberg, um, and Mitra, Brooke, and Mike Riley, I think, are here as well to uh, weigh in. And then we have um, some of the studies that you had uh, requested, us, uh, requested from us at the last uh, hearing or last work session. Uh, we have Rick and Parker here and also Lisa uh, to uh, go over some of those with you just in case you have questions. Um, so the agenda uh, we hope to get through today, uh, really some of the big picture items to uh, confirm, and those are some things we want to um, get to you up front. Uh, we think what we heard in terms of a confirmation, uh, we just uh, uh, we want acknowledgement of that so we can move forward towards the text edits. Um, and then some of the detailed topics for conversation, and some of this is a result of the last work session. Um, with respect to uh, a little more study on the park impact payment, uh, discussion on the priority sending sites, and some of the additional incentives. Uh, and we will go through a list of those, what we understood the board that would uh, uh, had endorsed, and then discussion of some of the other ones that had been introduced uh, by, um, by both public and uh, private sector. Uh, and then also uh, a discussion on design review panel and urban design so we have a better understanding of what will actually go in this plan versus the uh, design guidelines. And then uh, we do have a couple outstanding items at the end that we want uh, clarification on. Uh, with that, I, I would like to just remind the board, I know you've probably received a number of uh, letters uh, from, uh, from residents, from uh, uh, developers from the attorneys, consultants, and so forth. Uh, some have requested additional time to speak on some of the topics, um, and we'll leave that to the uh, chair's discretion. Uh, but we, did, we have received a number of things. Some of them uh, do uh, feed into the outstanding items and some of the items that we have on the agenda. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> my um, plan was not to allow any more uh, testimony on any individual properties. Okay. Um, I should s explain that a, li a little bit. Um, I think that in some of the properties along the e the uh, eastern edge of the CBD in both Chevy Chase and uh, East Bethesda, in East in uh, on the Chevy Chase side, uh, they're certainly continuing. Um, disagreement about what some appropriate heights are, and I've, I've talked to uh, representatives of the town, and uh, obviously they understand that they can take this up with the county council. I think that we spent a whole lot of time on, <clears throat> excuse me, one property in particular, and it's not useful to continue to go back and forth on that. On East Bethesda, I guess the same thing <clears throat> generally applies. The one thing I would add there is that I think that there's a little bit of a factual uh, misunderstanding about the way that the height recommendations are developed in East Beth on the East Bethesda side as compared to Chevy Chase. Uh, they are different, but I think that the situation is slightly different because of the physical distance between uh, Wisconsin Avenue and, that, and, and the edge where the single-family homes begin. But uh, again, 
that's a, certainly an issue that's appropriate to take up with the county council for anybody who would who would like to uh, do that. Uh, the other one I wanted to mention specifically was um, there was a, a property on the edge of Old Georgetown Road, and there were some issues about whether or not it should be 50 or 35 feet. I've seen the property myself directly. I just think 50 feet is not a uh, particular is not anything that's out of the ordinary for that uh, location, and uh, I have not heard any uh, different view from anybody else on the board. So that's why I'm, I have not. Uh, uh, suggested that we we take that up, even though it was a relatively late uh, item in the process. But again, for those who disagree, that certainly uh, everybody has the right to, and and it would encourage them to talk to county council staff and county council members when it gets to that stage okay. of of the process. The uh, last thing I wanted to say about these specific things is that we had um, uh, Mr. Dalrymple, uh, who represents. Uh, uh, Charlie Nelson, who has a proposal to that is very late in the game to uh, close a street uh, abutting. It's one of the side streets off uh, Wisconsin Avenue. He sent us a letter. Right. Uh, I told them this is way too late for us to put this in the planning board process. Uh, I think it's a good thing that they're not uh, holding it back and waiting to get to the county council before they tell anybody about it. So I told them I would, for the record, just inform everybody. It's obviously in the written materials in the record, so anybody who looked would see it. But I'm advertising it right now, so anybody who's here who's interested is aware that they're going to <clears throat> propose, uh, I think, some additional height on a couple of those uh, parcels that Mr. Nelson uh, owns as part of a bigger project that is too late for us to, to consider. So that's just in the interest of full disclosure. I think it's a good thing. Obviously, we don't prefer it when property owners come in at the last second and say, oh, by the way, I've got this uh, uh, proposal I had not told anybody about, or it's late breaking, or mm -hmm. we've finally been able to assemble some properties. Uh, it's a good thing, though, if they tell us about it now so we can tell the public about it instead of having it sprung on everybody in front of the county council and nobody's heard word one about it. So uh, they, I think it was actually a good thing that they told us about it now so we can at least – uh, make everyone aware of that, and they can talk to uh, Mr. Dalrymple, for Mr. Nelson, or uh, our staff if they'd like to discuss that further. And on that note, they did reach out to staff. Uh, one of the comments we had was was that with the closure of a road in the downtown, that's something that uh, we haven't discussed with either SHA or with DOT, and that's something that would have to. Uh, or that would require additional discussions with them. And so it is late in the game uh, with the board. Uh, but, again, I think with the council it's, uh, it's, it's appropriate to go that route. And we did appreciate them coming to us on that. So, um, All right, so to uh, continue uh, with our agenda, again, some of the takeaways, just confirmation on um, with the, uh, the Bethesda overlay zone requirements, um, the park payment, the 15% MPDUs, and the design review panel. Just really a question. This is what we understood as to what was in uh, those requirements. Uh, of course, we'll be discussing uh, the park payment piece of that and the design review panel today. Uh, but uh, this is what we understood as what was in uh, in the BOS. And, again, some of the details of that uh, would come back to the board when we look at uh, the overlay zone. Yeah, I, I Speak for myself, they are, but uh, there were supposed to be uh, recommendations for uh, what 
compensation or what adjustments would be made either in CR points or other contributions to offset some of the additional costs and the the requirement for 15 percent MPDUs versus, the, you know, so, the voluntary. So it, it, uh, they have a choice when under the CR zone whether to do this or not. That's we're correct. making it a requirement. So we were looking at additional floor or some other things which we're looking for the staff to recommend. So we, we do have a few slides uh, later in the presentation. Some of those are more pertinent to the priority sending sites. Uh, but again, we do have a discussion on that uh, as we go through the presentation. Thank you. Um, also, the priority sending sites. Um, the Just a clarification and confirmation that if the board does agree to any ad additional uh, priority sending sites such as the um, uh, the PLD lots that have been a discussion, those would come out of uh, the pool. So that, that additional pool that's part of that Bethesda overlay zone, uh, this was, um, uh, they would come out of that uh, that 32.4 million, that's the total. And again, we have a little bit of discussion on that, uh, and that does lead into the next discussion that we, that is a continuation of the last work session, the one before. Staff is recommending that, uh, that the Alden sites in, the, in South Bethesda um, would not be uh, priority sending sites, uh, mainly because uh, the bottom line is it, it really, the density is being transferred among themselves. And when we have the discussion about um, the, the idea and the intent of the priority sending sites, it was really to, uh, it really wasn't to, to transfer that and to rebuild on those sites in, in an in a, um, overall scale. Um, and so also a uh, discussion on the PLD lots. And um, just to give the board a, um, an idea of how much square footage would be uh, reduced uh, through that pool, it's close to 600,000 square feet uh, if the board decided to include the, PL the PLD sites in, uh, in as a priority sending site. Um, and we do believe that there, there are going to be some impacts, uh, such as to the farm women's market, uh, if uh, the PLD sites uh, do get included in the, uh, in the priority sending site designation. Um, and so we do want to have a discussion with the board on what we, we need to take away so that as we, um, as we try to finalize things and bring edits back to you in the next two weeks, uh, this has a huge impact, I think, in terms of what, we, uh, what we're showing in the plan. Um, I will tell you that uh, we did meet this week again with, uh, with Mr. Roshdi uh, from uh, the director of DOT. Uh, clearly, they're looking for uh, these as priority sending sites with respect to density. Uh, they're clearly trying to uh, look at how they can do joint ventures with uh, adjacent property owners. Um, and uh, they clearly see that as a, this as a way to, uh, to partner with, uh, uh, with adjacent property owners and developers. Um, the way that the board has um, instructed us and what, uh, what we've heard so far is that to get the additional density um, over and above what's in the 94 plan that the board has endorsed, you need to be a priority sending site. And uh, to do that, again, we're showing you that what, the, what the result would be if you did include those, uh, uh, those parking lots in there. And so we will need confirmation one way or the other uh, as to what the board's direction is on, the, on those sites. Are you looking at, are you suggesting doing for all the PLD lots or just the lots that are adjoining the neighborhood? Well, almost all of them adjoin the neighborhood in some way 
Uh, if you look at the, the properties on the north, north of East-West Highway, uh, there's, I think, three parking lots. Uh, one's a pretty small one, uh, but there's three. There is a little bit of a buffer zone between those parking lots and Wisconsin Avenue and East Bethesda. Uh, but it does, um, and there is a bit bigger transition. Um, I, I will tell you that the, the properties to the north, the parking lots to the north, um, some of those are already zoned and zoned with a CR zone, and they do have a higher FAR. Um, there is one that's split zoned, um, an R60 and I think a CR, um, but averaging-wise, it probably would equate to a little bit more density than just a standard R60 conversion of a 0 0.5. The, the ones in the south, though, um, there's two uh, large lots in the south that abut, um, that abut the town of Chevy Chase. And those are the ones I think that are um, that we've heard a little bit more in terms of uh, partnerships with. Okay. So, uh, are you saying some of the PLD lots already have a density that's high enough to do a transfer without designating them as priority sending sites? Uh, yes, sir. So then you wouldn't have to take it out of the pool for those. For those, uh, is that included in the six hundred thousand square feet? No. No. No, it's not. You already assumed they would stay the way they are. Uh, that's correct. Of course, though, with the, the R60 designation, they would, one of the benefits would be, and that we've pointed out, is that they are converted to a CR. So that is a benefit other than just the density. I realize what they're asking for is not only the CR zone, but a higher density designation on those sites. I mean, I, I, I like the principle, but it's 20% of the FAR that's available to everybody else. Right. And if they don't use it, during the time frame, it's 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 out of the pool. So, um, is there any suggestion as to how you might either force them to use it or lose it? You know, either they their priority sending site, and then if they don't do it, they yeah, within its time period, then it goes back in the pool or something. I think that's hard to hard for us to determine. Uh, you know, and it really comes down to whether or not they can partner with a um, with a adjacent property owner and putting a time limit on it might be a little tough especially in a master plan that that really ties their hands and uh, and a developer's hands I'm sure uh, to uh, uh, to try and um, meet a mandated timeline in the master plan you would have actually have to zone you'd have to put the FAR on their property for this to work because it's almost like if you said, they got 300,000 square feet, and they can use it on any of their properties, but they got to use it within the master plan time period, you know, because that's when it's there. It's probably, you know, likely that they're not going to use a full 600,000 square feet. That means they got to develop every one of their properties, which never happens. So right. um, we're, we're really taking a lot out of the pool. I like the theory, but I don't it, Well, let me let – me, Is there uh, another way to – any other you, suggestions? On you. Um, Depending on, I, I assume you're going to talk about implementation of the, uh, on number one, park payment and PDUs. We, we are. And I'd like to hear what you uh, propose on that because I think there may be a relationship between these two. Sure. So as we go through the presentation, I know that uh, Parks and, uh, and our research department has done quite a bit uh, to uh, go over some of the payment, how it works, the implementation of it, so we can always definitely come back to this. Um, but our intent was to put this on the table so that we have a confirmation at some point uh, at the end of the, the day. Um, so I can continue through the presentation. And Yeah, in, in general, I would just say my own uh, opinion for what it's worth is that uh, we should not be 
loading up a lot of uh, FAR on the priority sending sites, that if there, that it may be that depending on how the implementation of number one is uh, configured, that there may be a way to uh, create the incentive to, ta to acquire those priority sending sites by means other than just giving them more FAR that can be captured directly. I'll just leave it at that. Actually, just that may have raised the point. Um, do you think, if you had a 70-foot height, what would the normal FAR be associated with it? Because we, we made those all 70 feet, right? Well, our, our typical FAR for 90 to 120 feet was about a 3. And so, so if you're so looking at 70, legitimately they would have 2.5 two. Two or 2. Maybe that's a way to do it, that you well, just assign the density that would normally go with that height. Um, as and originally we had um, we had put one and a half on the uh, on, on the parking lot sites, uh, at least uh, for the ones on the south part. We had put one and a half with a seventy foot height designation, uh, and they got. And what did we we end up doing? Three, three and a half. Three and a half. Yes, sir. But now that they're getting now that they're getting it reserved, maybe a, a, another number that would be lower than the three and a half as 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 a priority might, might be worth it. We had sort of had that discussion in the, the meeting that we had with Mr. Roshti earlier this week. And I don't know if you're going to be showing any images. There, 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 are, there are two parking lots. One parking lot is more likely for partnership than the other. There may be a middle ground that could be... Um, could be worked out. I mean, the, the, the biggest what, what themes that we, we said were if it's a priority sending site, the goal of priority sending sites is to send density away and to not develop where it's a priority sending site. Right. So for those parking lots, if there is a chance of, of a partnership with some construction on the parking lot, you really don't want it to be a priority sending site because, again, the idea of the priority sending site is to send density away and not develop the land which is a priority sending site. We had some conversations about whether we should split the parking lot and make the east half a priority sending site because that is the area where we want the eastern greenway. We had some conversations about whether the parking lot to the south, which is um, a little less likely to have a partnership because of the types of buildings that exist along Wisconsin Avenue on that block to the south. Maybe that should be a priority sending site, and somehow it's all combined. But I have to say we're still sort of uh, – working through those issues and um, you know from a very uh, just simplistic viewpoint what we're saying is we think it's important to hold to the theme that priority sending sites are places where you want the density to be sent away and not developed and if that's the case then perhaps again in looking at the two PLD lots that are adjacent to the town of Chevy Chase, you want to figure out a way to even a possibility that was discussed was split them and make the east a priority sending site and have the west not be and add 
a bit of density on the east. Oh. But split zoning is always a problem. I think it would be good to come back to this, particularly after we hear about number one, the details, and see how that plays out. Okay. Okay, so next slide, we do have just uh, an overview of the Bethesda overlay zone uh, with respect to the requirements of park impact payment, which we're going to be getting into uh, very, uh, very shortly. Uh, the 15% MPD requirement, which we did discuss at the last two work sessions, um, and then also design review panel, a little bit more information about how that would work within the, uh, the overlay zone. Um, with respect to affordable housing and the MPDUs, uh, uh, a few more bullets on the MPDUs uh, that right now the board has given uh, considerable height uh, to a lot of the properties that um, the way it typically works in the CR zone, if you exceed the 15, if you do 15% or more, uh, that you can exceed that mapped height. Um, we had proposed that that square footage, um, essentially you're not being given additional height for the MPDUs outside of the high performance area boundary. And again, that's something that we had uh, we had you presented. Have, you may have a problem with those that can't that are required to do 15 percent and can't get additional height because it comes off the market rate FAR. So yeah. if you're going to do this, I think those outside the HPA can't be required to do the 12 and a half, uh, more than 12 and a half percent. I mean, I'd like to see them do 15, but if the, all we're doing is taking away their market rate density, it's not really fair. Well. So, Think about this. Maybe um, if you can't get – and not just for the for the scenario you're talking about, but if there's an office project or a retail-only project, obviously there's no PDUs in the building. So I was thinking that maybe an additional park impact payment in lieu of the MPDU – the additional MPDUs in projects that can't accommodate it. So that there's some, you know <clears> – <throat> I, I guess you can do some combination of the t of the two to give you a little flexibility. Well, yeah, um, the the additional fifth requirement for MPDUs. I was trying to get a quid pro quo of some sort where they could they could get the density in the additional floor. Then they weren't going to lose FAR un units at market rate FAR, and then they could make it up. So if we if you can't do that, they're just you're adding a requirement without any. Offset, and I think we need to do. If you're going to go to 15%, those people that can't add height, and I understand the reason, um, should get. You got to figure out some offset. Uh, in my well, view, I, the the high performance area does cover a pretty wide area in in, in the district, uh, and again, the areas that it doesn't cover are really on the edges. Uh, which again, as you, you noted, you know, that I mean, twelve was the and a half percent MPDUs is still a pretty heavy requirement right. in lower heights. Uh, and if you can add height to it, is the zoning code doesn't let you, or that's our proposal for business? this is the proposal. The zoning code allows you if you exceed the the fifteen percent MPDUs, you can clearly go above the mapped height. So the, if we didn't have this additional thing, it would have been they would have been able to add it. Sure. The zoning code does contain some restrictions um, about adding it, it additional does. height where you're abutting residential. So there are some there are some existing restrictions in that ability um, that are already uh, enshrined in the code. Right. I, I mean, I'm okay with the theory if you can find a way for those people that can't add, add additional height to have some some sort of offset. I don't, I don't know what it should be or what you may recommend, but I I, I think in well two. Two points. One, a, a lot of the projects that may 
um, may include land that are, is in the HPA and also outside of the HPA. So let's talk about the property we were just discussing near the Bethesda Farm Women's Market. Part of that is definitely the part along Wisconsin Avenue is in the high-performance area, and the part closer to the town of Chevy Chase is in what we consider more of the buffer area. If they were doing 15% MPDUs, they could put their additional height, the height. on the, the side facing Wisconsin Avenue and still be able to accommodate it. In another project, maybe that wouldn't be possible. So I think what the, what Chair Anderson is suggesting, and, and we have talked about this a little bit, is, is there something we can add into the Bethesda overlay zone that allows for some discretion, depending on the project, to adjust the park impact payment versus the 15%. We had even had a discussion, you know, what if one of the projects in the Bethesda overlay zone actually dedicates a fairly large piece of parkland or open space, should they still also have to pay the park impact payment? Or should there be latitude to allow for an adjustment based upon the issues that come up in a specific project. I think we all think that's a good idea. What we've been wrestling with, and David may want to comment on this, is how to actually put that in legal terms in a zone without creating 15 formulas. We, we don't want a bunch of formulas. Before you chime in, I just had an uh, idea yesterday because I got a sort of update on the subdivision staging policy. And um, we were originally talking about potentially some uh, credit against the BLT, which we determined was not really politically feasible, but maybe there could be a credit against the impact tax uh, that would be, you know, you'd have a park fee and an impact tax, and that two of them would equal the old impact tax, because the impact tax is really out of our control. It goes to the council, uh, and, and in Bethesda, there are really no improvements you can make anymore. Um, that improve the overall traffic and the purple line is not funded by the impact tax. So maybe that's a way to to level the field where we really get control of part of that contribution uh, for parks. You're referring, to the idea? Transportation, you're, you're referring to the transportation I impact tax. I, I think that's going to run into many of the same problems as the BLT idea. Let, let's see. Okay. I, I think we should listen to what they have to say about other incentives. Okay. <clears throat> but um, let's I mean, I think in general, um, to me, this looks pretty good. I think that there should be some flexibility on dedication in lieu of payment. It's sort of the opposite of payment in lieu of, you know, doing something is usually what we're asked to do. But I think there ought to be a, a um, possibility that mm -hmm. the staff and could negotiate for and the board could approve a, an additional amount of if there's actually land being given up that they should get credited for the value of that land against the park payment. That seems pretty Dedication. reasonably straightforward. Dedication for parks, you mean? Yeah, right. Okay. <clears throat> but as far as additional incentives for somebody that can't get additional height with the MPDs, let's see what you've got on your list of uh, incentives. Okay. 
Um, so again, the process as we've discussed and as we see at the board may approve a project that exceeds the mapped uh, CR density um, through a variety of options, which uh, some of which they can do today. One is uh, through density averaging um, that they can do under the CR zone. Uh, one is through the BOS by um, uh, basically doing the top three items. And uh, then the other one is uh, by going to the priority sending sites as well, that they can uh, apply that uh, density to their site. Uh, so the board uh, in the process would approve uh, a project with the additional density, uh, must also find uh, the, that they don't exceed the total 32.4 million that has been approved. Um, and then uh, in addition to that, projects receiving the additional density must go to permit within 24 months of receiving that site plan approval. Uh, and I think this is uh, uh, something that we've, uh, again, been talking about with, uh, with the board at the different last two work sessions uh, with respect to the process. It's the same process you have for the white It's It's similar. Uh, we've talked about it. It's, it's, a, it's similar in concept and theory, but not exactly the same because white flint's a little bit different in terms of how it's allocated. It, it's similar, and it's really it's something that uh, that we're still working. They administer out, it up at hammer out the DPS, details on, right. right? And so ultimately, they'll have to sign off, I suppose, on something they can monitor. Well, the board monitors that in the case of White Flint, actually, the board monitors the amount of square footage that has been drawn out of the staging, right. uh, uh, the staging <clears throat> ceilings for each stage. Um, here again. Um, I think consistent with that, the board would primarily be in the uh, role of monitoring that, but we are still working on fleshing out the details for how these draws would work. Yeah, um, so I, I, I don't want to suggest that we've got that all geeked out because we don't. We're going to need to come back to you. I just want to kind of make it clear that um, if you have a mapped FAR um, and you haven't used it and we get to the to the cap, you can't use it until there's more density approved. So even though we're mapping what the old uh, uh, master plan uh, right. had on the, that's currently on the ground, um, if you if you sit there through the time period and don't use it, somebody else may end up using it. Yeah. But okay, otherwise, so, we'll have the same problem where we have all the surplus. Okay, that's not been my understanding no, up up and up until this. Time. <coughs> the second bullet. Oops, sorry, the second bullet says. Yeah. Right, and I, I would. Um, th that's certainly an approach that the board could take. What that would do, the effect of that would to make, be to make any new development in. Um, Bethesda, downtown Bethesda, subject to, for lack of a better, for the to this overall density cap okay. that applies to the whole it area. It doesn't take away the density you have mapped. You still have it. You just can't use it if there's no more density left. Okay. Because the, the objective. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, and I understand. What I just want to, what I want to clarify is that my working assumption, what I'd understood the board to be saying up until now, and and I'm very happy to be corrected if that's the case, and I. I Lord knows I would like to be corrected if I'm working on the wrong assumption. Um, it, it was that there was basically this four point, sorry, I don't want to say the wrong number, 4.2 million number minus whatever is on the priority sending sites right. um, was the amount of 
BOZ, the Bethesda overlay zone density, and that was really going to be the number. That's how, that's the pool, and that's how you get to the 32.4 number, but that did not mean that every individual property would be subject to that cap, and, and um, yeah, I, I so I, I, anyway, I just want to be clear where. Now, there's a little tiny piece here that is theoretically a, a wrinkle to this, and it's what you touched on a minute ago about you know, not counting additional uh, MPDUs against FAR. In theory, I think that could expand the envelope by some increment, but in practice it's trivial. It's not, I don't think it would be material, but that's a question to answer. But I don't think, leaving that aside, that what you're saying is quite right. That well, then we're still going to have hoarding. There's going to be 4 million square feet that's not been used since 1994 that nobody can use. I don't think oh, that's, I, okay, okay. I that's the part I'm concerned about. All right, about. I that's, thought you were talking about something else. No, no, no. Sorry. That, that, so the, your concern is that you get it approved, but you don't use it. Yeah, just okay. like this, um, the 32 million is all the density. It's all the density. That's in Bethesda. Right, right, right. Okay. I, I think but, what Commissioner Dreyfus is saying is, let's say today, I always do better with an example. Let's say today you are mapped at 5 FAR, and you have been mapped at 5 FAR since for many years, but you've chosen not to develop at 5 FAR. And for the next 15 years, you choose not to develop at 5 FAR, and you're, you're sitting on density. Um, the concern is after we use up the pool, Whatever that number is, and we've you know been talking about what that number would be between what's currently mapped and the 32.4. It's around four million minus the whatever we allocate to the priority sending sites. Right. Once that's used up and allocated through this process, then property owners don't have any other choice but to go to the other, we talked about how there are three options. After all the density is used up in the pool, there are still the two other options for folks to use, to get density from one of the priority sending sites or to transfer density um, from one of their neighbors. And I think what Commissioner Dreyfus is expressing a concern about is that person who has five FAR, who's had it for all these years, who's choosing not to use it and, and may be considered to be hoarding it, after the pool is used up, if they continue to refuse to sell density or use it themselves, then we have density left on the ground, basically. It's just like White Flint. If you have density approved under the master plan and you don't get under stage one, you don't lose your density. You just have to wait for stage two. It may be in 15 years from now, when we, if we, I don't think it's happening in the whole 20 years we're going to do it, but if you potentially lose, use up all the 7 million plus square feet, you can go to the council and say we should do a minor master plan amendment or we should amend the Bethesda master plan to add more density because it's we've used it all up, whatever it takes. But... Uh, I mean, the goal to, to me has been to use the density that's been a, that's on the ground by whoever can use it. Okay. And, and, and under that approach, um, I, I think 
really what you would be doing, it's a little confusing how this would work. The, what we're talking about here, while it has many similarities to White Flint, is very different, again, because um, in White Flint, the only stuff that's getting approved is stuff for which there is density available, density as zoning density in the, on each property. That's mapped here, on the property. Right. It's mapped on the yeah, property they here. They can't go above 3 million square feet um, under the staging policy. Well, and I understand, yeah, I understand that. The, and the, and I, I, the way I view it, we have the same thing in Bethesda. We have a cap. It's a stage. You can't go above the cap under this master plan until you get a, a change in the master plan. Right. And that is, but that's a zoning cap. In this, well, in this I, I plan. I don't understand what your concern is. I'm just not. Uh, it's not what, what, I don't have a concern at all. I just wanted to c clarify that we're not just talking about the 3.8 million well, or whatever. Yeah, what I understand. What's there now. Yeah, we're I thought we were talking about the, the whole thing. And you can get to that. And we talked about what's in the pool. And you right. can. Right. We're talking about, yeah. the, it, I agree, we are talking about the whole thing. It's the 32.4 million is the cap. And that's what the the, the additional that's density. Not including the existing unused. La last discussion. Yeah, yeah it is. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it is. is. Okay. It's the total. Okay. Right. So that's how you get to 32.4. That's how you get to add the unused plus the new right. pool. But the but the difference is, and First forgive me percent. if I'm belaboring this too far, but I want to make sure. I, I I think it's important that everybody is somewhat clear. When you're talking about the five FAR property in in uh, the planning director's example. Um, that is density that while it is accounted for within the total 32.4 million is not something for which one would need to come to this board and have approval that the 30, that the, you know, there's still overlay zone pool density left. Yeah, they have to get a building permit, but they, but they would have. They've got it. They don't. They have that density cool. in the same they way that anybody right. else has density right now in Bethesda, and they right. can sit in, on it. They can use it. Um, or they can sell it. Yeah, or yeah, they can sell it. So one way in that sense, it wouldn't be different. Take density that people have had since 1994 away from them. Well, I think that's why these the bullets say additional density. I mean, there is the cap, but we're we're really referring to the additional density here. In White Flint, you're, you're, you're mapped at a particular density. And if you go to DPS to get a building permit or to us to get a building permit, right. and the 3 million square feet is used up, you can't. You, can't you haven't lose your, lost your density, you just can't get it. Well, I think the same. Again, you do have an overall cap. If you exceed that overall cap, you're not going anywhere. I, I don't think this board, what we're saying is the board can't make a finding that, that they can approve that project because it, you've exceeded a cap. But, but neither can you, I think, in Norman's example, encourage people who are sitting on it outside the, the zone. What, what Gwen is referring to is the existing density. There's nothing to trigger the use of that, whereas if you pulled it all back in, I know you won't like this one, Norman, but if you pulled it all back into the total of the $32 you're million, not, not, and you say that's all back. first come, first serve. It's not, right, I, I think it's that way today, though. We can't well, really, you know, get anyone I to. Mean, first of all, everybody would go bananas if you did that. But, We're not pulling anything back. But secondly, it's not, it's, there's no, it, it's not, it's not necessary to do that because, yes, there will be some people who are sitting on their 5FAR density and they'll do nothing. And that's fine, but there will be this pool, 
plus so plus people already have their mapped FAR, so they can use what they got plus ta- plus buy from the pool plus buy from somebody else who is willing to sell, and so that's a reason why even if this plan were not amended for the next thirty years, you still wouldn't get to thirty two point four million because there would be some people who just decide to sit tight. Well, and, and but this will squeeze a, 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 some additional amount out of the envelope because it provides a little more flexibility. And to give you an example, again, not every project needs more density to move forward. So, for example, we've talked about a project at Beth- Bethesda Metro Center. That project, which uh, representatives from Brookfield came in and spoke with you about and which the board endorsed having a building, doesn't need, they have more density than they need to build that project. So when they hopefully move forward and build their project, in addition to building a project, they will also, I would guess, be motivated to get rid of their remaining density that they don't need after they've finished their project. project. So I, I don't believe that there will still be some people who will hoard but there will be other people who will build projects and still have density that they're going to wish to transfer and say, sell to their neighbors. If they don't use their density, um, either trade it and somebody else gets ahead of them and uses it, they, they have to wait. And, and we, we didn't go back to other buildings that were built within the last five or ten years and take away density that they didn't use. We just let we increase their density by twenty percent across the board. No, we haven't yeah. done that. We've stopped doing that. Okay, so but right but now, some buildings, only some buildings at what they have today. Today, that's right. No increase. No, no, no. No one gets increased. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, if you were mapped at four, and you built a building in the last ten years at three, we didn't take the one away. It's still sitting on that building. That will probably never get used. That's okay. And if they don't want to sell, if they don't want to do anything, that's fine. okay. That's fine. Because we have it's a cap. Property. Okay. This, this, the pool would tend to reduce the value of the density people are hoarding, which is good because it reduces the sort of, I guess, for lack of a better word, unjust enrichment of property owners who are just sitting there just because they're in the right place at the right time, they happen to have some FAR they didn't they didn't use, and it creates some more liquidity in the ability to get the to to find some capacity if it's needed. Okay, and it's certainly more so than most master plans. All right, um, so I'm sure we'll come back to some of these items here as we we move forward. The next uh, that we have on the agenda is a presentation by our, our Parks Department with uh, Brenda and uh, Rachel leading the charge here um, in terms of the park in Parks Impact Payment. All right. Good morning. For the record, Brenda Sandberg with the Park uh, Planning and Stewardship Division. Um, uh, Robert has already introduced everybody who's here with us today. Um, I wanted to start with a quick comment. I was uh, listening to the Kojo Namdi show yesterday. Uh, around noon, and they happened to be hosting a discussion about uh, office space and the demand for office space in the metro area. And right when I turned it on, when I got in my car, there were some consultants and various people talking about the term flight to quality. 
and they repeated the term more than once. And what they were talking about how business tenants and residential tenants as well, but business tenants are looking, are fleeing, that was the term they used, to mixed-use areas with quality amenities, and they kept emphasizing that. They talked about parks, they talked about open spaces, retail restaurants, walkability, transit, community character. Um, and, and I just wrote it down. I thought, this, this is exactly what we're talking about doing in Bethesda. This is what the draft plan does. Come up with a great park proposal to create the quality amenities that will make office and residential economically viable in the downtown. So we're uh, pleased to be here to talk about this issue. Um, first, uh, summarize what we heard from you at the last work session. Um, the direction we heard from the board is that the PIP, Park Impact Payment, uh, should fund both acquisition and development of the parks as proposed in the BDP, that it should be some balance of the PIP and the general tax base to fund acquisition and development, um, and that the basis for calculating the PIP is, the, is an <coughs> estimated cost of that acquisition and development as necessary. Uh, Brenda, you left out offset. There should be some offset for the contribution. We're, we're, okay. we're, we're going to be getting to that at the end, and, and Rick will be talking about the balance. Um, okay, so, um, but you're right. We did, we did hear that discussion. Um, uh, next, I'm going to give you a quick summary of what we um, – um, of, of what's in the plan. Um, you've heard this in detail from Rachel in the past. Um, support the centers with civic gathering spaces, linkages, signature gateways to the trails, green neighborhood parks, um, and livable communities um, by greening and buffering the edges. Um, and then next slide, um, let's summarize what we have in the in, in the BDP um, park section. Um, this really reflects um, sort of a full-flown vision based on this new paradigm of urban parks that's been developed over the last five to ten years. Um, and that new paradigm is reflected in PROS 2012, Vision 2030. We're just starting the update to the PROS plan now for 2017, and we'll be starting soon in Urban Parks Functional Master Plan. will help take us further along that um, uh, that path. The main categories of this new paradigm, more parks, more acreage, more kinds of parks, and more central to the CBD, not just the traditional buffer park that buffers the edges. In this plan in particular, we have six existing separate parks, of which we're, the plan proposes to expand four of them, plus 13 new parks of a wide variety of sizes, anything from 0.1 acres to 1.9 acres, for a total of 19 separate parks, should we reach full build-out. Uh, more acreage. There's 10 acres existing of public parkland within the BDP boundary. Of that, four acres is the Capitol Crescent Trail right-of-way alone. So you only have six acres in other parks other than the trail. Um, there are 13 new acres proposed for a total, again, at full implementation. Should we get there? About 23 acres. And again, a wide variety of types of urban parks are proposed. Urban recreational parks, greenways, civic greens, things that we just currently don't have at all in the current park. And again, the location central to the BDP. Next slide. 
Um, I've got a couple of slides here to talk about the methodology. So how did we estimate the acquisition and development costs? Uh, for the acquisition cost, first we evaluated every proposal within the draft plan to determine what is the most likely park creation mechanism for each park. Um, would it be dedication, be development review? Would it be direct acquisition using a funding source? Uh, would it be a combination of those with some of our alternative tools that are in this plan, density transfer, priority sending areas, et cetera. Uh, once we've done that assessment, we then estimated the purchase price for each of the sites that potentially need direct acquisition. We expressed that as a range, a low, moderate, and high cost, um, and that was done internally by staff. Um, we, I believe we have Bill Grease and, um, and Josh Kay here from the acquisition team, and we based it on tax assessments, comparable real estate sales, and the professional judgment of our acquisition team. Um, next, um, the estimated development cost. Development cost includes demolition of the site, clearing it, design and construction. For demolition, our uh, very experienced property management office um, has a lot of experience with demolitions. They looked at every site individually that potentially had a building on it that would need to come down that we would be responsible for taking down and gave us, gave us an estimated cost for each of those sites. For design and construction, we looked at that cost together. We first looked at the vision and park type that's proposed in the BDP for each proposed park looked at comparables both internal to our park system and external to our park system across the country, um, looked at very simple options to more formal and complex, um, and we, again, expressed that information as, as a range. Um, the low um, option, you know, everything from, a, you know, some grass, some paths, a few benches. Moderate, you know, maybe a more fully developed urban park, according to the vision in the plan. Um, and, and high, a fully realized vision with real unique amenities um, based on some of the examples of some of the great urban parks around the country. And that high option might be only for just a few of the signature parks. And now I'm going to hand it over to Rachel, who's going to take you through a few examples to show you what these, um, these various options look like for development, low, medium, and high, so you understand the numbers. For the record, Rachel Newhouse with the Department of Parks. So, um, you know, before we do this, let's just take like a five-minute break because okay. I didn't want to give this my undivided attention. So.
Let me get back to it. You were saying. Yes, for the record, Rachel Newhouse with the Department of Parks. And we wanted to show you all um, some pictures of what the high, moderate, and low options would look like for park development. Um, we've been studying parks all over the country in areas where um, populations are growing and looking at really what our urban parks could be like. So, for example, we have the Campus Marches Park, which is uh, $41 million per acre to develop. It's a very cool park. It's got um, flexible lawn areas for events. It's got this <laughs> stage that goes up and down out of the ground um, to provide different types of uh, event spaces. And you'll see in the picture that there's also uh, fancy lighting going on. You can take part of the flexible lawn and put it into an ice skating rink. So the flexibility of these spaces is really what's key. So you can do a whole lot in these small areas. Next. Um, and this is also showing, um, you can see the stage area in the back that's not only a stage, it's also a fountain. So you can do multiple things with these types of parks. Uh, the next park would be the Yards Park down in D.C. I'm sure many of you have already been to it. Again, they have this very neat type of a fountain feature that is like a splash park on the top and with the the waterfall in the back, and if you can imagine this being possibly in that area where we're proposing um, a central civic green next to the Barnes and Noble and the movie station or movie theaters, you know, this could possibly block the purple line and tail tracks as and be a really, really neat amenity. Um, and this is running about $6.4 million per acre to develop. Again, next, this is still the Yards Park with this iconic pedestrian bridge. It's really, it's known all over the world because of this type of neat amenity. And finally, another really cool thing in the Yards Park is the light-up benches. So it's, it's fun to be in at night. It's fun to be in during the day. And, and this costs money. <laughs> Um, another high option development park would be the Canal Park, which is down in D.C. as well. That's running about $8 million per acre to develop. Again, you can see the flexible lawn spaces. You can see at the top corner there's actually people out there reading books while they're watching their children fly some kites. Um, there's water areas where the children are playing in. There's uh, some food, cafe buildings. And if you go to the next slide, you can see, again, the flexibility of an ice rink splash park in the canal park. Um, this is The next one is a high-option um, park that we've been studying that's in um, Nashville, Tennessee. Um, if you see, you've got some really <coughs> neat slides and things happening on a grade. So we have one of our recommended parks is the the strip of linear park. It's a, south of Montgomery Avenue, um, but it's also right next to the Capitol Crescent Trail, and it's got some grade to it. So this is one of the few park areas that we actually have grade that's not completely flat, so we can do some very interesting, neat things with slides, climbing walls, net cargo nets using that grade. Next. 
You can also see that, um, you know, we could have a splash park there. One of the things we have mentioned to you all, maybe it's not that splash park there, maybe it's the skate park, because this is a perfect area to have um, skating amenities. It's not right next to a house. It's, you know, next to a park and next to a road. So we can do some really neat things in that area. And finally, we have just the types of amenities that we've been studying all over the world with um, this, the spray sculpture at the Discovery Green Park in the Houston, um, which would be a really neat thing. And then we have this climbing sculpture, climbing art sculpture. Again, at the Discovery Green, um, it actually hides uh, some stairs. So you, you know, make it a functional, neat climbing wall. Uh, next, we want to look at the moderate development, see what that looks like. We have our own uh, town center urban park in Germantown. This is running, this ran about $2.7 million per acre to develop. Um, that opened recently. I think a few of you were at that opening. Um, this is uh, sort of a, another central civic green type park. The next picture shows some really neat lighting that um, highlights sort of uplight this really interesting sculpture that's also sort of a pergola-type feature. The next picture um, is a project that Brenda's actually very familiar with, so <laughs> took these pictures. Um, it shows uh, the Sherwood um, Rec Center in Washington, D.C. This is the uh, uh, accessibility park. This, this has... Everything in this park is accessible. There's a real wheelchair accessible roundabout. You can see you can get two wheelchairs in there. The whole area is just this, it's graded and formed in such a way that it is highly accessible. Um, the playground, you can see the kids sliding on it and having fun and, you know, kicking each other. Well, that's what they do. <laughs> and next you have um, uh, some really neat nature and art themes and the musical play structures. So you can um, ding on these xylophones and, and just, you know, really neat, interesting play things that, you know, we currently do not have in Bethesda and would love to have. And then we want to just look at the low options. Um, you know, like Brenda said, just, just, you know, a nice lawn area, some nice benches, beautiful trees. Um, the cost comparisons for those would be about $700,000 per acre to about $1.4 million per acre to develop those, similar to the Western Grove that we are developing currently on Western Avenue. It's going to be a very nice sort of passive natural park. Um, and then the Battery Lane Urban Park, we've got some cost estimates to redevelop that, and that's where we get to the $1.4 million. Um, another park we've been looking at is the Filter Square in Philadelphia. Again, very, very peaceful, very passive. We need those types of spaces in Bethesda, and um, those are the types of things. We wanted you all to have some images in your mind of what it could be. Back to you, Brenda. Okay. Um, we are now getting to the numbers. Um, we actually have three slides we'd really like to get through before we start the discussion because there's some big picture points that I want to be able to hand it off to Rick and have him explain the economic perspective on this before we start the discussion. So what did we come up with? Um, we did this. Um, so the estimated totally cost 
total park costs uh, for acquisition ranged from a low of 36 to a moderate of 64, a high of 75. Um, the, the moderate and high is a little higher than the numbers the board saw about a month ago in closed session. Um, we looked a lot more carefully at some of them and, and tweaked our numbers to be what we thought were more accurate in today's market on the acquisition side. Um, on the development side, uh, again, low option type development on everything, about $25 million. Moderate option on those parks that are appropriate for that kind of development. We think 53 million is reasonable. And high option, again, not the high option for every one of the parks, but for the few civic greens that we, and other, and the urban rec park, um, along, uh, Montgomery Avenue where we might really want to put some money into some great, and create a signature park. That gets us up to about a 90 million dollar development <coughs> estimated cost. Um, that gives us a range of 61 to 117 to 165 total. We propose to use the moderate option total as the basis for calculating the, um, the park impact payment. Um, note that this is estimated in today's dollars. There is no indexing for inflation for the 20-year life of this plan. So this is today's dollars, this estimate. Um, all right, next slide. So the parameters we have been working with and working with the planning staff um, so $117 million estimated cost. Um, the square footage we have been told is 3.4 million square feet is the bonus density that's available within the BAS. So that's, you know, you've got existing development, remaining allocated FAR, then you have a little bit of square footage that gets about a million that goes to the, that's being added to the priority sending sites and what's left is 3.4 million square feet. So that's the square feet upon which you potentially get this, this um, um, would get the PIP payment paid. Um, we're making an initial proposal to the board um, to fund 75% of the moderate cost estimate. The math, $117 million times 75% of that being funded through PIP gives a basis of $88 million divided by $3.4 million, and that's $25.81 per square foot. Um, we want to give you the rationale for why we went a little bit above the, you know, a balance of 50-50. Um, the two factors that we thought played into this was that um, not all 3.4 million of the bonus density is necessarily going to develop or is even likely to develop over the life of the plan. Um, I don't, it's, it could be 50% of that actually gets requested and built in the PIP payment um, made. It could be 70, 80, 90 percent, maybe even 100, but there's no way to predict the odds are if you look at other 20-year plans that it would get only part of the way there. And the other one that sort of moderates that value and makes it so that we certainly were very likely to not get the full amount, it is a fixed rate fee. It is um, that, that we are proposing here. We did not want to propose a fee that was adjusted for inflation due to the complication. Um, so over the 20 years of implementation, um, it'll buy us, it, it, even if you got 100% implementation of the 3.4 million were all used and allocated over 20 years, we might get $88 million if you, if you agree with that um, PIP fee, but that wouldn't buy us $88 million in today's dollars for land and development. Um, so I would now like to hand it off to Rick to give you the economic perspective on that number. Thank you, Brenda. 
Um, for the record, uh, Rick Liu with research. Um, so our team, so, so this slide is to really try to put the 2881 um, in perspective. Our team looked at um, the potential cost of the developer of how this PIP compares um, with, um, the, uh, with the voluntary uh, you know, option to acquire density under the other proposed options, uh, the density averaging that we can do today, uh, the overlay zone, as well as the priority sending sites. So Parker Smith from Area 1 and the research group, we used uh, the available information that's out there to estimate uh, you know, the cost of one square feet of density to a developer in Bethesda, assuming that all the recommendations from this plan are approved. So let me just run through those uh, real quick with you. Under option A, the method uh, which can already be used today, uh, our understanding is that density trades around $50 to $55 a square foot. Uh, so we conservatively expect that um, that's going to be a little bit lower in the future, largely because we're already adding about 20% of uh, to the total map density that already exists today. And because uh, demand ostensibly remains the same and uh, supply increases, uh, we've reduced the price by a commensurate amount and thus think that uh, density is going to be uh, at a minimum uh, about uh, 16 to 17% lower than it is today uh, just through uh, the density averaging option. Uh, under option B, the Bethesda overlay zone, the cost of density, uh, as Brenda mentioned, it's exactly the same as the park's impact payment that was calculated under the methodology in the last slide, which comes out to $25.81. Uh, Based on looking at this graph, uh, this is considerably less right now than what developers could get on the open market. Uh, under option C, the priority sending sites, uh, it's the same market forces that are affecting the cost of density as it is in option A, uh, with the exception that a developer gets additional relief from the 15% MPDU requirement and they get additional relief from purchasing BLTs, uh, building lot terminations. Uh, and based on the preliminary estimates uh, of these costs that we did in-house, uh, we estimate the true cost to a developer of buying one square foot of density in uh, the, the Bethesda, um, or, or sorry, yeah, from the priority sending sites uh, to be about 12 to 18 percent less than density in option A. So the takeaway from this isn't that, you know, hey, let's commit these numbers to memory, but it's really kind of showing a range that compares the attractiveness of these options against each other. Um, I think we're trying to conclude that the total cost uh, from the Bethesda overlay zone it would be very competitive with a density on the open market and, you know, possibly even less onerous than what developers can do today. Um, make where, no where, I, I'm, I don't understand. Isn't the 2581 added on top of what the value of the land is? Oh, let him answer. No, no, it's not. These are all these are voluntary options to acquire density. Uh, they're discrete options to, to acquire density. These are not, uh, this would not be a mandatory fee that that's sort of added on to, you know, the, the typical process but if you, of doing if you own a piece of, under this theory, if you own a piece of property, you have to uh, pay a park fee of $25.81 in addition to whatever the property is worth? Well, no, let, me let me clarify. I'm going to use my five square, my five FAR project again. If you want to develop your five FAR, okay. you don't pay a park impact fee, you don't pay a density averaging cost, you don't pay a priority sending cost. You okay. just build to your five FAR. Right. 
Okay. If you decide you want to go to 7 FAR because of additional height, for example, that's been done, you have two FAR that you need to acquire. And you have a th- three ways of acquiring it. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You can why go you, to, Why do you have to acquire it? Isn't it in the pool? It is in the pool, but you have to acquire it through the pool. So you have to come to the planning board and say, I have a project. I have five FAR today. I want to build something that's seven FAR. Please approve me to be allocated that additional two FAR from the pool. And we would, the board would evaluate the project and they would vote to approve it or not approve it. If it's approved, what that means is for that two FAR, not for the five, but for the two, you'd pay $25, approximately $25 per square foot. You would be committed to doing the 15% affordable housing, which everyone we're going to try through the amenity points to emphasize that with everyone, but under the BAS, you'd be committed to doing it, and you would do the design review panel. If you chose not to come to the BAS, you would say, okay, I can make a deal with my neighbor to get that to FAR, and I think I can negotiate a good deal with my neighbor and I, because I don't want to do the design review, or I don't want to do one of the other things that are required under the BAS. So you would say to your neighbor, let's make a deal and come up with some way of purchasing their density. We're saying what we think the cost would be. People could negotiate for a better cost or, you know, whatever you end up negotiating. But it's all related to just that to FAR, nothing is affected with the base value that owners have today of five FAR of density on their property. And if I could reiterate a point that maybe got lost at the be- or you didn't um, quite focus on at the beginning of, of Rick's presentation, the current market rate for density transfers in Bethesda is $50 to $55 per square foot. So right now, developers are paying that to get extra density on top of their FAR. And again, this chart is laid out this way to be clear that just, as Gwen said, just for the bonus density, they have three ways they can get it, through density averaging, where they have to pay somebody to buy it. Option C, priority sending sites, they have to buy it from a priority sending site and actually pay someone a market rate for that. Or they come in through the overlay zone, they request an allocation from the planning board from that 3.4 million square feet that's allowed to be given out from the overlay zone, and they have a couple of requirements. And one of those, the financial one, is the park's impact payment, 2581. So right now, that $25 is about half of what the current market rate is. And the numbers on the chart here are Rick's and his staff's economic estimate of what the future payment would be. This is, this is a far cry from what I thought was going to happen, which was the staff made a recommendation for densities for Bethesda um, that didn't require any payments. You just got your additional density. There may be a requirement for – I mean, when, when you did the initial plan, the staff draft that had recommended density, we – as a board, approved density higher than that. So 
that didn't work, so we came up with this height theory. But nowhere did I think that people would have to buy density that they could use in their project by paying this unbelievably high park fee. Why should a developer have to pay for that? You might as well do what you did in the first place, just assign the density that we had and not have to pay for it. This is, this is really like paying the government for something that isn't theirs. Uh, I mean, this is Commissioner really Dreyfus. a very strange concept. It's it's been out there for quite some time, and I think the even twenty five eighty one. No, not twenty five eighty one, but the idea of purchasing. I think even what you purchasing provided from us where? from the boz, the overlay, from the overlay, this pool. But why would you have to buy it? You have the requirement of the fifteen percent. You have the requirement of paying some sort of park fee for the other density, and and you normally would get additional density when there's a new master plan. It's, it's always to buy it. Mr. Dreyfus, I think that there isn't a, just to be clear that sorry, Robert, there isn't discussion about requiring people to pay something in addition to the park fee. This is the park fee. Right. Um, one and two, um, I just want to caution against the use of the term by density because what we're talking about here is this is one of the conditions. Just and I realize that that's an easy shorthand to use, but just to be clear, what we're talking about is having you know density that's zoned through the overlay zone. Um, as something that can be used at, and allocated as a bonus uh, to individual projects upon approval. And, um, and there would be a fee associated with some of that, but, but it's, not a, it's not buying. So uh, forgive my lawyer. You can call it what it is, but it's buying. I mean, you're paying $25.81 to the government for the right to build in Bethesda. Right. And I'm calling really it what it is, which is that it would not be Buying in any uh, in any legal sense, but uh, but I again I appreciate the I appreciate that that's a, a useful way of sort of discussing it. But I think that um, I think legally speaking, I, I think we all need to be very clear in our heads that that's not what we're uh, not what we're talking about in so many words. Okay, well let's let's hear what. Uh the end of this, and then you can. Uh, can I ask, our, just just on the analytics team, is as far as the numbers that you come, came up with in the A, B, and C, do you have general agreement from the development arena that those are accurate costs? Did you guys? So the fifty and fifty-five dollars is something that uh, we, we've heard, uh, you know, from the development community uh, in the past. This is generally what they're trading for. They're generally private transactions, so it's hard to get a. A large enough sample size, but um, you right, know, I see a lot of legal heads nodding yes behind you, so mm -hmm. that's good. Okay, so so th that's basically the basis where we worked okay. off, uh, you know, from um, and the, the you know, uh, again, this is sort of a range to compare alternative options to kind mm -hmm. of see, you know, how attractive they are. It's not to say, you know, that density would def definitively fall from you know fifty fifty five dollars to forty three forty seven mm -hmm. dollars a square foot. It's just with the understanding that we're offering more density in Bethesda, with the understanding that there's more avenues to acquire density, you know, in Bethesda, um, you know, we think that that price, um, basically to get bonus density, would be lower than it is today. And I think what this next slide is saying is what you've heard from staff is how we thought through the formula of what the park impact payment, the, par the exaction should be. This chart shows you there's a whole other way, range of ways you could look at it. And that's what we would like feedback from the board on. One more clarification. So on the calculations for what would be done today, 
in in that piece of the zoning, the master plan for the densities currently, did they have an in, was there an increase awarded, and then there was this additional overlay zone, or was it paralleling exactly what we're proposing to do now? Well, we might maybe Robert can explain how the Woodmont Triangle works because that's where the numbers are coming from. Okay. So with the Woodmont Triangle um, plan, this is uh, again you can do it today, but it was before the CR zone went into effect. Uh, the the master plan actually designated it as a um, as a density transfer area, and so with, with the intent of both promoting residential but also preserving the uh, the low scale of the businesses that were there. So it was in, in two parts, and um, a, essentially you had a receiving site and a sending site, and the receiving site could. Uh, purchase density within that little area, within the triangle, and apply it to their site. So if you had a 5-FAR mapped on your site, you could go above that by purchasing density from another property. However, you were still, the controlling factor was still the height. Um, so you could not exceed that height unless uh, through um, through MPDUs, but I think even then it was still, uh, it was still controlled. So if your height was 175 you fill it with whatever you can fill it with uh, and whatever you could purchase from those properties within that area. So there was no base density increase. It was anything that would be above what they had prior. Was so, so the base density is essentially what was mapped. Um, and so if it was a five that the CBD, let's just say the CBD two zone, uh, gave them for that mixed use, then they could do that. Or they could exceed that five uh, with whatever they could purchase and fill within that the height uh, uh, that was allowed within that um, uh, within both the master plan and the zone. And in, in a some previous cases, work session, we actually gave you a map of the Woodmont Triangle, mm -hmm. and we showed you all the places where density had been purchased. Um, a recent project where you saw this was 8008 Wisconsin Avenue, where the old Army Navy store is. <clears throat> and that came to you within the last six months, I would say, which was a new building, and they bought density from several neighbors to do a taller building at that location. I remember because one of the neighbors was the, the little Chinese restaurant that's a little tavern that's been converted to a Chinese restaurant. It's a designated historic site. They can't use any additional density they have. So the owners of 8008 Wisconsin bought that density, added it to what they had had mapped, and that resulted in the project you all approved. So that's been going on for the last... Since 2006 is when so. that was adopted. And I would say that the biggest difference between the, the Woodmont Triangle Amendment in that area is that the, the master plan in most cases uh, reduced the height uh, from what the zone permitted, but um, so if the zone permitted, you know, 145, it may have dropped it down to 110 or 90, but you could increase your height by providing MPDUs. So th there was a little bit of a difference in terms of how we're proposing that here, uh, but I, I think the game changer was really the, the CR zone, which really allowed you to do a lot of this by right anyway, at least for, through density averaging. Well, I mean, what I'm taking from this, and I, I just wanted to clarify, because Initially, I was I was thinking it was additional as well, but essentially for the overlay zone density uh, pool, if someone chooses to draw from that versus purchasing for someone else or a sending site, right. they in essence will be having 
roughly a 50% reduction from what would otherwise be the case. Essentially, they're not having to go to another sending site, per se. Uh, the sending site is the BOS, if you want to look at it that way. Yeah. The, uh, the, uh, the other thing to keep in mind is that... It ties the park provision to the actual development, right. which I'm always in favor of trying to find a way yeah. to do that. The other thing to keep in mind is that when the staff draft came out, there were lots of people who were uh, indicating they were interested in undertaking transactions under the assumption that the staff draft would be adopted where everybody just buy and sell right. privately at a at basically something like the prevailing market rate. Right. Uh, and I heard from a number of um, people who represented priority sending sites that they've been approached by multiple people who are interested in uh, taking advantage of that uh, opportunity. So I don't – I think it's a big number, but I think it's also – well south of what the market has, is supporting now and could be expected to support in the future. The question is, you know, what's a reasonable public share versus private share of the things that, that are going to make Bethesda a great place? Right. Uh, reasonable people can disagree. I'm not saying it has to be 2581, but I think it needs to be substantial. And in light of the cost of providing these things that are necessary, I don't think it's it's crazy to suggest that uh, not all development, but this additional increment should bear a big chunk of that. And I think I, the higher it is, the more it is a tax and an extraction. Well, in this and case, you, the, the more you do that, that's this is no longer a park fee. It's a it's a government payment for density. I don't. I don't, you don't agree. You don't like that, but that's what it is. No, nobody's trying to pretend it's anything other than what it is. It's there's no such thing as a free lunch in life. If you want parks in Bethesda, somebody's going to have to pay for them. The, whether the number is $2 or $20, $200 does not change whether it's an exaction or something else, legally, morally, or in any other, any other way. If you don't think this, if you think the number is too high, then make an argument about what the number should be and, and why it should be that. But it, you know, the cost of park acquisitions is what it is. Uh, under a normal master plan, you get uh, and a, an additional density because they do a new, new measurement, just like we had proposed. You didn't have to pay for it. It comes with your property. Here, we dropped back to the initial uh, FAR, and we picked a height as the limit. We did not assign an, a, an FAR like we normally do, which nobody has to pay for. You just have to <coughs> comply with whatever the rules are in that master plan. So now because we're trying to create a market for this and for uh, using up that 3.2 million by creating this sort of trade opportunity, we're, we're taking advantage of it by setting a, a, a number that makes it look like a bargain for the guy who normally would get this density because that's what we do in master plans, and now he's got to buy it from the government. It's, it's just, it's, it should be, if there's a $60 million cost, maybe the, just like, uh, in a lot of other things that, the Market pays 25% of it, so it would be, you know, $4, $6, $3. But I've never seen anything like this in in this county and in other counties. $25.81 a square foot for a density that you normally get in a master plan, that's – and now you have to pay for it. To encourage the buying of priority sending sites and to encourage uh, – buying density from people who may or may not want to sell it. It's just, 
it's okay, let's uh, just it's start uh, with the first premise. You it's piracy. Normal, it really is. A normal master plan, you get density just because. Why? You didn't buy the property with any reasonable investment-backed <laughs> expectation that because, that the because you want with a because we want the say, we want development to happen in that area. That's why we do it. We do a master plan not because we're trying to collect money from people who own land. We do master plans because we want development to happen there, and that's why we do a master plan in Glenmont and in here in uh, Rock Spring because what we have on the ground is not being fulfilled. So we find a way within traffic requirements and school requirements and all the things you have to meet to encourage people to develop. That's what – that's why we do master plans. We don't do them to collect park fees or to collect road fees. That comes as a, an aside from what we do. And we so, don't do them to enrich property owners who just happen to be in the right place at the right time. And I would say it's not about – look, if we thought that in Glenmont that the – that you could – you could get away with this? Well, that you could develop property in a way that made economic sense while charging a, a substantial park fee. I'm sure we'd do it. But we carve out. No, so, we wouldn't. We've so never done it before. We this is carve a- out. We carve out enterprise zones from impact fees. We make a lot of concessions, not because we think that the public is not entitled to expect that development contributes towards infrastructure, amenities, and other externalities that are burdens on the public, but because, as you said, we want to see development happen there. So we cut them a break. Look, I, I'm the one that suggested the park fee. I had no idea in my wildest dream that that $2.50 or $3 a square foot would end up being $25.81. It's, it's like a nightmare. It's not even a dream. It's This is really a whole new concept that, to me, is entirely unfair to anybody that owns property there as long as there's density available under our uh, estimates. Well, so, I mean, you know, a park fee, and, and my suggestion for the park fee when I made it was to find an offset because that additional cost that we're asking people to make should be, should they should get a credit somewhere. Maybe BLTs don't work, but there are a lot of things in the open space requirements and other dedications that we could offset. But to just add a fee of 2581 is like, I can't, it's hard to believe. It's okay, really, you think it's too much. That's I, we got. We've got that. That's well, let me come. I mean, the concept, but the concept, the concept that we're selling is that it's cheaper to buy this from the government than just get what you normally are entitled to. That's what's wrong. It's not just that it's twenty five eighty one. It's that the government's selling it and calling it a park fee and putting it, so, making the making the people the three point two million people. Square feet pay for all the parks in Bethesda, 75% of them. So it's really I think very what we need to range. again step back and I, sort of how did we get to where we are today? It, before you get into that, Glenn, I want to I want to add something because of, I understand one of Norman's issues in that when we first had the staff draft, we had a proposed increase in density, and then we as a board deliberated. And property by property, we sort of evaluated what we thought should be the density there. It wasn't, it wasn't without respect to amenities that would need to be provided. There's always exactions. It's, uh, it wasn't without regard for the fact that we would have to figure out a way to get fees for parks and everything else. But then when we decided to ratchet that back because we had gone way past what we said the density should be, density which we 
we thought should be higher, but we were getting signals from council and others that we shouldn't even go that way. We said we would pull it back, and then we would instead, we tried several options. One of them was we would look at a first-come, first-served basis and put a cap. But we still were basing that on an increase in density. And the increase in density wasn't to give developers a bonus for being in the right place at the right time. And it wasn't to get exactions either, Norman. It was to fulfill what the concept was for Bethesda. And the fact that it's sitting on a metro station and the fact that we need more office there and that we need more affordable housing, that's why we're doing it. So, yes, with your underlying point, Norman, I, I agree that we should have some look at what that accurate or fair trade-off is because we have left everybody at the density they were when typically when we're redoing a master plan it's to consider what densities we need to allocate to achieve the goals we have. And our only goal is not parks. So I understand the, you know, sort of incense attitude about 75%. But I think we – I don't think we need to throw away everything we've done I'm happy to have you now going to go to what you were going to. Well, I think you did exactly what I was was going to do, which was sort of how we got to where we are. I, the only thing I would just add is that, you know, I, I, I don't want us to lose sight of the forest for the trees, which is that the whole idea of this plan, you know, the, the three circles about, you know, sustainability and all of that, we're adding a significant amount of density. We are going to have some very big, very tall buildings. Which we Bethesda, want. Which we want. And what makes Bethesda then we hope livable is having those open spaces. Okay. It's of having course. that network of yeah. parks. I don't think anyone disagrees with that. No so one disagrees with that. The way we get to that without, again, the concern the board had expressed of people you know, when hoarding density, when we did the original staff rec uh, recommendation of how to allocate density, I think the board very correctly pointed out that that was a concern because there could be people who would never use that density and not trade it and hold it hostage and that this was a different way of approaching it that solved that problem. But we all acknowledged that we still need the open space. We still need the network. Mm -hmm. we, it's, it's part of the whole plan. The tall buildings and the open space go hand in hand. I think the difference maybe here is that there's no middle ground. So it's not as if someone could do a 10% increase in their FAR by right, but then they had the option of, of using one of the pools to go up, you know, higher to, let's say, what the, the FARs we had sort of deliberated on. But here it's just all – Everything or nothing. Everything well, or exactly the way really. it is. No, I, no, I think you're – I'm not sure you're – I think you're mistaken about that. I, I, I think that there's a lot of variation, obviously, among properties. Depends on what's there now, what they were mapped at before, et cetera. But in general, I think what you'd find is there are lots and lots of properties that have capacity to, to spare. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm just talking about FAR right now. Okay. All right. They have height to work with, certainly now with the recommendations we made. But even apart from that, the mapped FAR they had before, there's a lot of it. And, of course, if somebody thinks that whatever the number turns out to be, 2581 or some other 
number, if they think that that, oh my God, that's crazy, I can't build, they always have the option of going to the, what's the available capa- unused capacity in the 94 plan, 3, 8 or something? Okay, so there's, there's an amount basically roughly equal to the pool we're creating that's floating around out there that they can buy. And if somebody says, oh my God, I can't, this, this economic burden that's created by whatever the park fee is and the MPDUs, et cetera, it's too much. They can go to their neighbor and say, I want to buy what you're not using. Okay, for, so from that perspective, we're trying to be the, the discount neighbor. In fact, I would, I would argue that ba- the evidence, the evidence is that based on what the market is, we are going to cave in the market for FAR in Bethesda. Mm-hmm. We're not jacking it up until to the we contrary. get our We're collapsing it. Exactly. The people should be aggrieved by this idea. Because everyone who wants are the to sell people density. who are planning on on hoarding it until somebody made them an offer they couldn't refuse, and they were going to get fifty dollars or forty dollars or fifty-five dollars. See, some attorneys smiled. Those are the people who are <laughs> whose ox is gored by this. Yeah, one one last point about this: If you have a property like to use Gwen's example, you had a five. And what you need to build the project of your dreams, your, your parcel wants to be a 200 foot office building, but you need two more FAR to get there based on what you've got right now. You start with your five and you're only by paying this on the additional increment. You could bring the number down if you spread it across the whole base of all new development Bethesda, but nobody wants that, that would create that then people would have a really good argument. Hey, I bought my property, I made my plans, assuming one thing, and now you're telling me I got to pay this new exaction on all of it. That's not what we're doing. We're only applying the new exaction to the new FAR, which is coming given to them by out of the sky, right? The government is coming in and saying, "Congratulations, here's some more development capacity and some height. Have at it." The only part that they have to pay the additional exaction on is that is the new stuff. And in many cases, that's only going to mean I need to pay it on basically 20% or 30% or 10%, just enough to get me at, to where I, the project that I want to build. And that, in fact, is what has happened in these Woodmont Triangle projects. We just approved one, I think, six months ago or so, and it was 55 a foot. And they didn't buy a million square feet of FAR, they bought themselves an additional 50,000 or 100,000 square feet to top out the, the, to fill up the glass, so to speak. So, you know, if you think it's too high, then tell me what you think. Uh, it's not just too high, it's ridiculous. Okay, you think I mean, it's I, ridiculous. If I were David, I'd worry about this chart. If you want to talk about this not being a tax or a, a exaction, because this chart basically shows why this is more desirable than buying density from somebody else and and creates that market that he says doesn't really exist. It's just a park fee. Nobody is pretending. I'm not saying it's not an exaction, to be clear, I think. but It is an exaction, and nobody pretends that there's no market for for FAR that's bought and sold. The point is that in judging. At least you should take the staff recommendation and say that you don't have to pay for it. And if you go above the whatever the recommendation in the staff draft was, then maybe you pay for the for the extra above that. But the staff amount is what we've done in every master plan that that's – you're right. People get the density because we want that development. That's why we do this. We don't do it just because we're trying to enrich people. We do it because they – that density helps our 
goals and objectives as a county. I agree, and I am unapologetically in favor of more development in Bethesda, and I absolutely agree with that. I also am unapologetically in favor of getting the things that are needed to make great places that not only help the public but add value to real estate. And to make the, to, and it's what Brenda said before. Why is it that people are leasing only in places that are intensively developed with a mix of uses? Yeah, it's transit, yes. But it's also, it's not just any place near transit or the new Carrollton Metro Station would be the most desirable location in the DC metro region. The Greenbelt Metro would be overrun with people seeking to locate their corporate headquarters there. That's not happening. Why? Because Greenbelt is surrounded by a giant parking lot. Because New Carrollton, uh, I won't even go there, what's going on with New Carrollton. But the reason people want to be in these locations is not just because of transit, although not incidentally, the, the public investment in transit does add value to private real estate near transit. But that's another discussion. The reason they want to be there is because that's where their employees want to be. Why do their employees want to be there? Because human beings want not just access to transit, not just restaurants, not just the convenience that comes with a lot of retail and other services in a central business district, but because of the things like parks that make, that differentiate a great transit serve location with a, with all the, the whole package that comes with it from Greenbelt. That's, that's it. Now, if you think that there's another way to do this, I'm all ears. Look, but you, it, it, until this moment, building parks and improving parks was a government responsibility. It was not a private developer's responsibility to pay for. Now you're asking for 75% of that to be paid for, for all of Bethesda, by the 3.2 million square feet that's coming. The 27 million square feet that's already there, they're not paying for it, but they're paying their taxes, which they thought would go for this. So I think to have those 3.2 million square feet pay for all the new parks and pretty luxurious parks, um, which they normally would have to do without this fee, is, I think, too much to ask for, for from people who are going to do this development. And, the, and we want the development. We want to, don't want to discourage the development. And the, to have a new process where you have to buy your way in, I think it's a bad precedent and it's a bad idea. On this one, though, Norman, maybe we should hear all of the exactions, how anything else has changed, because there are some other things that have gone away. Well, we so, haven't had the subdivision uh, I mean, aging policy discussion right. for later. Those fees right. went up 50 percent under proposals of the count of the uh, staff. Well, I know we'll have to look at it all together, but I think just on this, looking at the one issue, if, in fact, the densities that everyone's going to be able to get from other pools are actually higher than I understand in order to achieve everything in this, it's not about switching the... Look, when, when this started, um, what I was in favor of and I was willing to take a vote on was to have a cap. And, and just it's a building cap. And whatever hasn't been built, whether you, you had the density or you didn't have the density, once that cap was reached, you were done. Casey came up with the idea of say, setting height. And I was trying to come up with a compromise that would get votes. So we'd be going to the council with five votes. This is not going to get my vote. Not at these rates. This is, this is beyond what I thought would, would happen. I just as soon have what we originally proposed. We proposed too much density. When you get to the density that's allowed, you're done. 
and let everybody go in there and build what they're going to build, which, which I think is a better solution. And go back to the, all the recommendations we made and, and uh, uh, have a cap of whatever the staff says is the maximum, whatever has not been used, we, we throw that into the maximum. You've got 8 million square feet that people can build. But we hadn't them. gotten into the, the exactions discussion then when we were still at that stage of There was no exaction discussion for parks. I made it, no, no, I, I put no, it in to reach a compromise, not, not to screw everybody. I'm not talking about for we, parks specifically. I mean, in general, we normally then get to the point after we're talking about densities of figuring out how the general infrastructure that's needed to, to create a good area is going to be provided. And typically that would be chopped up, you know, in, in a way, a formula put to it for everybody. I think this is a little different. In this case, it's different because Instead of that discussion, we said, here are the five, four ways you can get density and just have at it. Trade, shift, buy it from your someone who's got extra, and that is free market operation. But, by the way, because we know that this particular theme of parks is so important to Bethesda because we don't have the urban parks, that to make that really the focus, your suggestion was taken as a way to actually allocate the additional overlay density. So it's, as a fiscal conservative, I also look at a 75% number and think, but when I look at the impact of that number, which is what we're going to be talking about, you know, impacts of numbers in the, in the subdivision staging policy, the impact of that number is actually a benefit to those who are going to buy it, not a detriment, even though it winds up actually probably maybe for the first time achieving parks all the way. Let, let me give you a real-life situation which we faced here before. People have density that they don't use. You know why? Because the market won't let them do it. Not because it, they, they won't buy it from their neighbor or be, be, because they can't make it work market-wise. So now we've approved certain amount of height. Those people aren't going to build to 250 feet or use up all the density. They're going to use what's, what's prudent to do it for their economics, whether it's office building, rentals, whatever the, the, the competition is. So to have to buy, we may dis actually discourage people from adding density because why should they buy it? They'll just quit. At, just like you build seven stories instead of 12 stories because you go from wood frame to concrete and the cost is so much more different, you just stop at seven, you know, and say, I can, I can make more money doing 130 units then going to 200 units and spending 50% more for construction. And we're, we're screwing around with uh, basic market forces by creating this, this additional sub-market of park fee. And, and it's just, it's, it's contrary to what we've done in this county from day one. It's really a bad idea. I, don't, I think it is, it is unprecedented in, in a good way. I mean, you're right. It's not the way we've done it. Because, and, and I don't mean that just because we haven't done it. I mean it's a bad idea. Okay. That's why we haven't done it. You're entitled to your opinion. But I don't think you, you've explained why it is that if people are buying FAR at 50 to 55 a foot, what is the basis for your argument that people will just not buy density under this arrangement? I mean, if they buy at 50 to 55, why would they not buy? Why would they not want to pay the park fee at 25? Or I'm, not, I'm not saying they wouldn't. They may not want to pay the park fee and just stay in the density they have, which is contrary to what we want to have happen. And somebody else can pay the fee and build their building down the street. What's the? What, why do we care if somebody says 
folds their arms and says, I'm not Because normally we don't charge people to develop their property in a way the government wants it developed. That's, that's the basic we reason. We do charge people exactions. And the other part of this is that you're right. It's a burden on people who are building property in Bethesda. But if you agree with the premise that these parks are a legitimate need for the public and also, more specifically, that they benefit the value of private property in Bethesda, then the, I put it back to you. Why should everybody in the county pay to build new parks in Bethesda that in your, not entirely, but at least partly, to the benefit of people who happen on property in Bethesda. Why is that not reasonable? Why should people Bethesda pay to preserve farmland up in um, Poolsville? Because it's a, an entire county issue. It's not just Bethesda, but Bethesda for Bethesda. And, or that's, and that's why nobody is proposing to make them pay 100% of the freight. And honestly, I, I think 75% is a little high. I think it's I, I think you're I think you're way low when you start talking about one dollar, two dollars, four dollars a foot. I'm open to dis, to discussion, but I'd like to hear some principled basis for what's a what's the right number, as well, opposed to just well, I don't like it because it's too much. Are we going to have weigh in from the development community on this particular issue? Because I would like to understand we what can. people are really saying in the current market before I vote on it. All right. Well, here's the thing: we can settle on a number mm -hmm. at the next work session. Okay. However, we cannot have just sort of this open-ended mm -hmm. discussion. And I've sort of warned all of you about this before, and sometimes we've gone a little bit astray on that. I really, this is getting to the point we need to, we need to. Oh, wait a minute. I, I, I take issue with that. We've had 13 public hearings where people have come to talk to us. We have had one work session. So the work sessions right. are where we decide, and we have to have opportunity to discuss it. You can't That's just fine. jam it down our throat I'm and not. say we've had we've spent all this time. I'm ready to go. I'm not jamming anything down anybody's throat. And as you know, I've talked about this with you and many other people offline. I've talked to property owners. We've had a lot of discussions. Has anybody seen this yet? Well, hold the phone. I'm not suggesting to you that we have to decide today what is the number. What I am suggesting to you is that we can't. Just sort of say this is a totally open-ended uh, discussion. I would like to get some sense in the general ballpark of what the board thinks a reasonable number is. Or if you if you don't want to vote for anything, then that's your prerogative too. But I would I'm trying to you know funnel us down to narrow the the terms of discussion here so we can get to it. Well, that's well, all. Don't we have to? Have but the answer to your question is yes. We can we can. Uh, invite, comment. I'd prefer it be in writing, as otherwise we'll be here forever listening to 30 people come up to the table at the next work session to, as to what a reasonable number is. I think that's perfectly fine. I, Does that meet I, your? I'm in agreement. I'm in agreement with, uh, with that. But I want us to keep in mind one thing. When we first started on this plan, we determined that we wanted Bethesda to be developed in a very special way. We determined that there were some things that were very important for us to do. We even moved parks from where it was on the list originally up to where it was in the first set of categories because we realized that that was very important to creating the kind of community that we wanted Bethesda to be. We also understood that because of the price of the land in Bethesda, that we were going to have to come up with an innovative way 
to get the land that we needed to do to do the parks. So the staff all along has been following what we said. They have done for us exactly what we asked them to do. We may not agree with what they came up with, but they have done what we asked them to do. And I am, if we think it's the wrong thing, then let's come up with a better fee. But let's don't throw all of this work away because we have done exactly what we said we were going to do when we first started with this. However we got there, we're on the right track. The, I think the, the argument is about the number, not about the principle of collecting so many for the parks fee. Okay, well, let me just suggest to you, Really, and I mean this in absolutely in uh, the spirit of I want to I want your best thinking on this. I submit to you that you know a dollar, two dollars, five dollars. It's just it's it's a drop in the bucket. It's just not. It's not only is it not enough. It's unreasonably low. I think every bit as unreasonably low as what you're saying. This is unreasonably high because it does not represent any really material contribution to the parks that benefit everybody, but particularly people who own property in, in Bethesda. Now, if we sort of bracket this discussion, um, you say, conversely, that this is way high. I would suggest, just let me give you a couple of ideas here, and you can react to it however you want. You could suggest that 75% is too high a proportion for the private sector pay. Maybe it should be some lower lower proportion. You could suggest that maybe the development part of the cost is something that should be figured out at some later date when we're actually ready to develop it, since many of these will not be actually developed and for probably years after they're even acquired, as is often the case with park acquisitions. There's a mil probably other permutations I haven't thought of, but I predict that I would like your vote for the plan and for this. I'd like you to have a, a role in, in shaping this. And I'm just suggesting to you that rather than just throwing up your hands and saying, oh, my God, this number is too high, you think about, it, between now and the next work session, what is a number that is going to get us meaningful contributions of parks, why it is you think that that's a reasonable share for the public versus the private contribution towards what part of the, of the cost and if you have some other idea, I absolutely am open to that. But I think it's going it, to well, – this we, is a reality check on what it's going to cost okay, to get this look, done. We, we had a presentation from Parks um, that came out to about $50 million. Yeah. Um, this is now at – let me finish. Um, and I was trying to get to 20 to $25 million with a fee. And the reason – and I was using – Two or three dollars a square foot because I was counting the whole FAR, the whole eight million. So if if people only have to pay on the three point two million instead of eight, I understand why it has to go up to get to the least the number I was thinking of because they don't have to pay for the density they already have. So I'm I'm but I'm down at the lower end of this chart because the principle of making this a better buy than buying people's density to me is a concept that. You know, I don't think belongs in this formula. Um, but I will look at what the right number is and make a suggestion. But that 20 to 25 million at just a month ago was about 50 yeah. percent of the of the park fee until they came until they went to Dreamland and came up to all these unbelievable parks uh, and said, "Hey, look, we're not going to pay for them. Let's get it for the from everybody else." So 
<laughs> and, and you're right. I don't blame. I don't blame them. That's their job. Okay. Well, look at and I would acknowledge to you that the number I've been kicking around my head has been ten a foot because um, partly because of the presentation we got from them earlier. I understand that some of that some of that depends on certain assumptions about. Uh, priority sending sites and how things get acquired. It, it, it depends on assumptions about how they're developed. Um, but there's also something to remember here. Uh, we don't have a lot of visibility into it of, of the economics that people were thinking of, but there were a number of sites where people were prepared under the original staff proposal, again, to acquire some of these sites, like partnerships with the parking lot district, other uh, farm women's market, et cetera, that I believe, I can't prove this, but I believe would have implied actually a, quite a stiffer payment on the part of the acquiring party. So I, I think that in, in the real world, the relevance of this is not that we're trying, we're selling anything, 100%. but it's an answer to the question, well, what makes you think that you're not going to suffocate development in Bethesda if you charged whatever the number is? And the answer is because the market is higher. It's not because we're trying to sell density, it's because we're trying to be economically rigorous in thinking about what will, the mar what will, what will support, what will be supported in Bethesda and allow development to, to proceed. And enough said about that, unless you want to talk a little bit about how you got from the n earlier number that was oh, lower okay. to this I, one. I, I know how they did it. They, yeah, that was pretty obvious. I remember the whole presentation before, and I, I and I saw it now, and that I could see the enhancements. I could see the light bulbs going on in Rachel and Brenda's eyes, saying, "Ooh, we can do better." All right. <laughs> uh, so, I see. I see that look in my wife every time I go to a jewelry store. Okay. Okay. Uh, you're going to get in trouble here if you're not careful. Um, I mean, I would suggest that the, that the right number is somewhere on that chart. And uh, I, I hope that that's enough guidance to you guys that if, if we – and if we could invite anybody who's interested who has an opinion, and please, if the opinion could be backed up by some argument as to why the number should be whatever you think the number is, we would like to hear from you. On whether you think it should be high, you think it should be low, but please tell us what you think is the principled basis for why the number should be X. And if we get that in writing, uh, because at this late stage it's very difficult to engage with people up here at the table, uh, and then that can inform our discussion next time to settle on the number. Is that fair? I think that's, uh, that's fair. We do have uh, a hearing scheduled for the 23rd in the evening. Um, again, that's, uh, it's only about the same time frame as this with the intent that we would come back on the 30th with a lot of the text changes. So it is a little limited in terms of the timing, but something in writing uh, that would tell us why um, either our fee is too high or uh, justification would be very helpful. Yeah, and I think that w when we come up with a number, we can just insert the number. And that's, you know, we're, we'll insert the rationale, which I think would be some combination of what's the percentage that should be the public versus private and what's the allocation of the development and the acquisition cost. And, and just for a point of clarification, this number isn't going to be in the master plan. This number is in a ZTA that will accompany the master plan to create the Bethesda overlay zone. Right. 
But we have to draft the ZTA. And we have to draft the ZTA. We like to send the ZTA up at the same time as the master plan, but there can be a little tiny bit of lag time. So I'm not trying to delay anything. Don't encourage us to or delay. Or encourage you to delay, but I'm trying to make sure you understand the process. Yeah, okay. Great. What is next? So in um, with respect to the time, we do have uh, a couple um, items. Some are a little bit lengthier. We have a discussion on priority sending sites, but also design review. And then an outstanding item that we wanted clarification from the board on, which was uh, the fire station site. Um, our understanding was that for, and I'll take the last one, uh, for the fire station site um, down off uh, Bradley and uh, Wisconsin. Um, if we went with what the board had recommended, then that goes to uh, that, that goes to the staff recommended CR zone. But the board had already discussed and and I believe made a motion on the idea of that becoming a floating zone. And so we wanted confirmation from the board as to do you want to keep the floating zone on that site um, or do you? Um, or, this is the fire um, the fire station six uh, down off Bradley in Wisconsin. And again, I thought we were going to just, try to designate part of that as a legacy open space. Well, okay. We so that? for clarity no. and maybe to no. just expand a little bit on what Robert said, before we came up with this idea of just mapping people at exactly what they are and having mm -hmm. the overlay zone, the Bethesda overlay zone with the pool. You all had made a decision prior to that for the fire station, which said essentially keep them at the zoning that they have today, right. but put a recommendation for a floating zone on. And so there's two ways we can go on this property. We can do what you had said, which is keep them at their zoning today, which is like R10. But have a recommendation for a floating zone that would be higher in terms of density. Or we could treat them like we're treating other R10 properties in the downtown plan and convert that to a CR zone and say if you are a CR zone but you want more density, you have to go to the pool. And in either case, we can add a sentence to the master plan that says when this property redevelops, there should be consideration to providing some green space on the west side of the property. And we were thinking about using language similar to what we used for the property next to uh, Battery Lane Park. We had come up with some language for that where we had said, instead of showing a big park dedication, some language that essentially said when this property redevelops, they should have some green space adjacent to Battery Lane Park. All right. So this is, so that can be handled in either scenario, what we're really asking is a fairly discreet question, which is, do you want to keep the R10 with the floating zone, which is what you had talked about before we came up with this whole scenario that we're working on now, or do you want us to translate the R10 to a CR zone 
and say anything they want above and beyond that translation has to be allocated through the BAS. And we, we bring this up mainly because this is the only site that was designated as a floating zone and had a lot of discussion and correspondence on it. So we felt like it was appropriate to bring this back to the board. I think it needs to just stay R10 and get the floating zone because if you want to redevelop this property, you're going to have to go through this public process. That's just the way it's got to be or, or it's going to, you know, I, there's no way. I, I, I don't know why my suggestion of legacy open space keeps going down the drain, but, um, uh, the idea, I thought, for the firehouse was they needed money to improve the firehouse, not – and the only reason they were doing development was to get money to improve the firehouse. They weren't it's – it's, it's not a profit place. And so if the, if the land is owned by the fire uh, LLC or whatever it's called and, and the county wants, wants it for a park, we have to buy it. And then they would get that money, the local citizens, we get a park, and it connects to the park that's already there. And it does – just designating it a as a, a legacy open space doesn't mean that it becomes a legacy. It's just eligible for purchase. Well, so I don't know why we why that's – we're not doing that. the neighbors who are sort of on the other side of this and also the fire station representative there. I think the fire station is going to be very disturbed by anything in the plan that says this is a legacy open space property because they will view that as meaning somebody can reach out and take it from them if they pay them. And their position, I think, is going to be, uh, you know, we don't want to be condemned. In principle, if you get designated as a legacy open space site, the Parks Department could come in. Uh, not that we are in the practice. Not for the whole site. No. It's just, just. But even even a piece of the site, I think their their concern, and I would probably share it under the circumstances if I were them, is okay. If you designate a piece of this site as legacy open space, and the Parks Department goes ahead and buys that, that could really throw a wrench in my longer-term plan for what happens to the little property. I do think there's a way to finesse this, not by calling it Are like you saying longer-term plan for the property for improvement of the station? As well, an remember, of the improve station? the station can mean right. a lot of things. I, in, mm. in hearing there months form, ago, you'll recall one of their concepts is we need to rebuild this station because the ceiling's not tall enough for modern fire equipment, et cetera, et cetera. I have no idea whether that's what the merits are in that, okay? I'm just telling you that improve the fire station doesn't just mean reskin it or give it a new coat of paint and, you know, fix up some of the, you know, raise some cash. Do you think it implies growing growing completely into that open space? It may or may not. Uh, You had another suggestion on how to deal with this, which you didn't quite get out. Well, that just like, I think this is what Gwen is suggesting, just like with Battery Lane, we put something in the plan that said this would be a suitable place to be looking for some more green space, open space, addition to a park, whatever. It is not a suggestion that we're, quote, unquote, designating it. Okay. Because that would mean, that would imply that maybe we could reach out and grab it. And so this would make it uh, guidance to future development reviewers that if they wanted to offer it up as part of future redevelopment, that that could be part of the negotiation. But it's not a mandatory thing. It's not saying we're taking this and we're going to target it for acquisition against your will. 
It's essentially, I'm sorry, essentially an asterisk on the property that, okay. that says, I mean, it, you know, it's we can look at it for green space. About, but, um, you know, the, the, the executive says we don't need a new firehouse. Um, if they did it, the executive pays for all the improvements of the firehouse. So, because it serves the county. But if we want to uh, have peace at the fire department, fine. You know, but it's yeah. I mean, I think that the 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 point here of the floating zone was to preserve the option someday, if the executive branch changes their mind, if the neighbors uh, have a different attitude, if the whoever's on the board of the fire station, they you know work it out. There can be a public process that goes through the hearing examiner and the county council, et cetera, and they they do whatever they agree to at the time. But it's not to. It's not to give it the thumbs up or thumbs down today. So, and just, I think everybody's pretty actually okay with that. Maybe not everybody may not be thrilled, but they're all they're not threatening to burn the building down. So, so keep the recommendation that the board originally discussed, which was the floating zone, and then add language with respect to which we'd bring we would bring back to you with respect to uh, um, open space um, on that site. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Um, I know it's uh, past the time. We do have some, some lengthier discussions on design review and also uh, um, some of the urban design and the priority sending. So Each I'll of take those direction are quite from you. Meaty discussions, yeah. and I would say if we're going to keep on the afternoon agenda schedule, which also has some very important topics on it, we may need to continue this at the uh, 20 on the 23rd at our next work session because if we launch in we, it will each of these will be at least uh, I would say 30 to 40 minute right. discussion right. yeah could I, I have a little bit of a suggestion uh, on that point would it be useful to have sort of an informational briefing that's not Bethesda specific between now and then about design review principles sure and that might get us ready so we don't have to go through the whole thing at the Bethesda session. We'd be happy to do that, sure. If we can add an hour or something to the one of the other, yeah. Sure, and we can definitely send you the slide information ahead of time so you have that and understand where we're coming from with uh, respect to recommendations. Yep. Okay. Okay. Thank you all.
Okay, we need a motion to go in closed session to discuss uh, property acquisition. Move approval. Second. Second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? That's approved. Thank you.
do okay, something. Okay, it's working. Yeah. Okay, your presence made it. Testing one, two. 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 Why is it doing that when you do that, though? When yeah, that's called, okay, I was going to say, holy crap. Yeah, when Bernie do that, that's something. You know, I'm going to pull out a word here and get Bernie to show me. Yeah. I'll find out from the dispenser. I'll read my book. I'll, I'll try to bring that over. Like, when I hear stuff.
Oh, can somebody get Mary Wells Harley to come in from the lobby? Hey, then. All right, whenever you guys are ready. Good afternoon. Um, good afternoon to the chair and the rest of the planning board. Uh, my name is Melissa Williams for the record, and I am presenting work session number four for the Greater Lintonsville Sector Plan. And joining me today will be Rick Liu, um, providing information on the economics, uh, Laura Shipman on design, and we have Robert Cronenberg, who's the chief of Area One. So today's um, discussion for the, I'm sorry, today's agenda for the planning board is we're going to discuss the Summit Hills zoning and we're going to identify the appropriate level of zoning for that site along with prioritizing the public benefits and amenities. Um, we have representatives from parks, which will talk about the per capita data for parks. We'll have a short uh, conversation on Montgomery County Public Schools. We're going to be joined by Bruce Crispell to provide um, any answers that the board may have to some of the questions. We're also looking at the revised language and zoning for Paddington Square. And there was also a letter that came in on June 7th from EYA requesting additional zoning changes. Um, I'd like to note that that hasn't been vetted by staff or the community. The board has the power to uh, have that conversation today. And we'd also note that there were support letters from HOC and WSSC. Um, yeah, maybe let's take that, that first. I, you know, EYA had uh, approached me and said they were thinking of making a proposal, but I told them they were late, but, you know, that we would uh, obviously, before the plan leaves, we can consider it if the rest of the board wants to consider it. If we did that, we would want to get that proposal out in the public and give the public a chance to think about it and also to talk to EYA's representatives and give, then give them an opportunity uh, in a couple weeks, at least, to uh, come back and tell us what they think about it. So the threshold question is, is that something the board wants to consider? Since their letter came in before we closed the uh, public record, it, they'll go to the council with it anyway. So maybe we should have a short discussion about what the issue is and decide some recommendation here, and then the council won't hear it for the first time. I think that makes some sense. I wouldn't – I don't have an objection, I don't think, to hearing it, but I don't think we're ready to make a decision. I think, as you stated, we need to have it go out to the community and have the community provide whatever comments they want before we come back and make some oh, yeah, yeah. decisions. Okay. We'll talk about taking a vote today as much. Okay, so I'm hearing agreement that we should hear them out um, and – let that let the public digest that they can talk to amongst themselves and with EYA and come back to the next work session and give us their feedback and then we'd uh, presumably be in a position to make some kind of recommendation but as everybody knows there's nothing that prevents anybody from coming in even after it's left the planning board and telling the county council that they have an idea that's different than what was considered here either way to take away or to give more zoning, development capacity, whatever. Um, so if that's uh, what the board wants to do, I'd suggest we hear from EYA at the end after we get through all this other stuff. 
Could, could I just uh, remind the board that we have one more work session on this uh, plan, and that's on the 23rd. Uh, that was intended to come back with everything, text edits and everything to you, because we've already committed to getting something up to the council so that they can schedule a public hearing for September, and that date was early July uh, for us to wrap it all up. So if that, hopefully that doesn't change uh, things, but just to make the board aware that that is the timeline that, the, that we've been working on. So are you saying that two weeks from now is the drop dead last date for any? That's that's what we've been working on. Hey, working on, yes. And would was there supposed to be one more work session for a vote out, or is that the vote out? The twenty third was the vote out. Okay. I mean, so are you telling me that we could or could not accommodate a change if there was if that was the direction? I, I think it would be um, timing wise. It's going to be tough because we have to make changes even after the board. Um, makes makes a decision either way. Uh, I mean, if it stays like it is today, then then all that is already all the changes have been made for the most part. If anything that's done afterwards, then it, we have to take the time to change maps, change text, and presumably presumably bring that back to you so that you can endorse that to send it up to the council. So it is a t very very tight timeline. All right. Well, with that I mean, in mind, we I think we cannot go more than two weeks without. Certainly, without making it as some kind of decision on a recommendation, yes. And maybe our decision is to make no recommendation, but one way or the other. I, I think that if you hear the issue raised today and you make a decision on the 23rd, we can accommodate this and still get it up to the council. But, uh, again, that's a two-week period to get input in writing from the community and, uh, you know, staff will work to try to accommodate that. But we are, as Robert explained, at a, you know, on a tight timeline right now. Okay. Well, obviously the burden is on EYA in light of the late um, suggestion that they're making to uh, persuade people it's a good idea, the community and us. Uh, okay, um, Summit Hills. Okay, so um, just a refresher. This is the zoning that was proposed for Summit Hills in the staff draft. We essentially had a split zone, uh, site 2A, which is the larger portion of the site. Um, right now it's existing R10 with a CRT of 0.75 on a small piece of the property. We propose a CRT of 2.5. On 2B, which is a smaller piece that's at the intersection of East-West Highway and 16th Street, we proposed a CRT of 3.0, and that was an R of 10. And the public benefits that were proposed for the site were essentially we wanted larger MPD units, MPDU units. We wanted a civic green, a land for the daylighting of the stream, a park for active recreation, and then the ex extension of Spring Street. And we took a moment to look at comparable sites. That was something that the board had had requested at the previous work session. And so I want to uh, go into a little detail on this. Uh, the board did look ask us to look at some comparable sites with zoning. Uh, it's uh, not too hard to look right across the street at Falklands um, for, um, you know, for a comparable uh, with a CR 
3.3 zoning. Uh, you can see it's got a low, a pretty low re um, commercial, high residential with a height of 145T. Um, and just uh, for edification, the, the T means that you can go above that height if you provide additional MPDUs. Um, it's 9.77 acres, um, and, and the Falklands, when it came in, was all three parcels, but the focus of development was concentrated on the north side of East-West Highway. Um, and with uh, under the CR zone, there was a there's a 10% public open space requirement, whereas when this originally came in under CBD, it was uh, 20%. Um, next slide. And so. This gives you an idea of the massing that was proposed with the Falklands under that uh, under that zoning. It was approved uh, with that 3.0, and it, it shows uh, under the commercial and the residential how many units were uh, proposed within that uh, that entire site. Um, this has been ongoing. I know that uh, uh, we've had numerous discussions with um, uh, with the property owner on this one in terms of them moving forward, and, and clearly that's. Um, uh, one of the big key factors on this has been the purple line because it abuts the purple line. So, uh, but we did want to provide this to you as a com comparable because it's right across the street. And this has a variety of mix of uses from residential, retail, uh, underground parking, and, and the open space. And so next slide. Uh, next slide. Th these are a number of the public benefits that we uh, uh, took away from, from the approval. Um, that the board uh, has endorsed uh, the environmental uh, portion of it. There is an off-street, uh, off-site stream area that's opposite the um, the north parcel, so on the south side of East-West Highway, that is to be restored as part of this project. Um, vegetated roofs, um, environmental, uh, the vegetated walls and the cool roofs on the new new buildings, housing, uh, BLT easements, and a negotiation uh, through this process of. Um, workforce housing uh, that was um, both proffered and accepted by uh, by the board, uh, which uh, did equate to some larger units um, on the site, uh, which was a big uh, part of the discussion. Also, some of the transportation um, benefits uh, that were proposed and endorsed as well that you can see here from um, better network, better pedestrian, better uh, uh, better accessibility to uh, to the transit, and then also the design, which was a big part of this as well. Next slide. So uh, the next slide, uh, the board's familiar with this because we've seen it uh, recently, uh, and this is the Blairs. Uh, the Blairs is uh, CBDR2. It has a 5 FAR, so it's, it's higher on the range in terms of a comparable, but in terms of size and public use, uh, and then the, the type of development, I think it's uh, um, it's apropos to what we're talking about today. Um, it's closer in acreage uh, to the Summit Hill site at a little over 30 acres, and they do have 20% public use space. Next slide. So you can see what the board has approved here, and uh, the building to the left on that top right screen is uh, the phase one that's currently under construction right now. Uh, so this has the 5 FAR with a 200-foot height limit. Um, and this one had um, quite a bit of discussion with the property uh, across Eastern, uh, which is on the south part of that, uh, those buildings, which is in the district, and those are residential properties, so there was a lot of discussion about compatibility and height and step backs and setbacks. And uh, commercial, given this is such a pretty large site, uh, it's uh, about half a million square feet of commercial and about uh, 2,800 units on this site as well. Uh, and some of the benefits, next slide, uh, some of the benefits on this. Um, a lot had to do with parks. Uh, you can see the public use space. Uh, 
uh, with the number of residential units on this site, uh, clearly there was um, a, a lot of um, direction given towards public open space, public use space, and green space for this site, uh, in addition to recreation facilities, which um, really are lacking in South Silver Spring. And so uh, the, the Blairs, the tower companies, heard this uh, pretty clearly. And you can see what's pro uh, proposed. And then with such a large site, there were some pretty significant streetscape improvements as well. So with that, um, and I don't know if I'll turn this over. So I'll turn this back over to Melissa. Uh, but what we wanted to share with you is some of the zoning options uh, that the board can consider uh, that uh, you asked us to look at the last time. Okay. So um, the first thing that we're looking at is option one. That was the recommend. That's the recommendation that's currently in the staff draft. And what you're seeing is a split zone, um, as discussed before. It's a CRT of 2.5, a C of 0.25. R of 2.5 and then higher zoning on on site 2B, which is a CR of 3.0, a C of 0.75, and an R of 3.0. And so what we were showing was a maximum height of 145 feet on site 2B, a maximum height of 70 feet on site 2A. And as a result of that zoning, there would have been an additional um, 1,598 new units and you're looking at maximum allowable commercial of 410,391 square feet. And so that's option one, which is what's currently in the draft. Option two was something that was considered by the board. It was the idea of what happens if there is no split zone. And so that would give them the CR of 3.0 across the entire site um, with the C of 0.25 and an R of 3.0, allowing for all residential um, if, if they wanted. And it would give them the maximum height of 145 feet, but noting that it needed to step down to 70 feet. Um, what you saw was an increase there of roughly 500 additional residential units. So instead of 1598, you would have 2068 net new units. And there was a reduction in the number, in the amount of commercial square footage. So instead of 410,000 roughly, you'd end up with 332,000 square feet. And then finally, we had a request from the property owner, which once, once again took away the split zone, but greatly increased the CR to a FAR of 5.0 with a C of 1.0 and an R of 4.0. Um, there was also a request for an increase in the maximum allowable height, um, taking it to 200 feet with a step down to 110 feet. Um, as a result, what you end up with in terms of new residential units is roughly double what was placed in the staff draft. So instead of 1,598, there was 3,130 net new residential units, and there was a substantial increase in the amount of commercial square footage. Instead of 410,000, as recommended by the staff draft, it's closer to 1.3 million square feet of commercial. And so um, as a result of that, we did have our economic analysts take a look at the recommendations and provide some additional insight as to um, the, the possibility of development under all of those scenarios. So I'm going to turn it over to Rick Liu. Good afternoon. Uh, Rick Liu from Research for the Record. So in the previous meeting, the board asked us to take a look at the uh, likelihood of the site redeveloping under various levels of density, or FAR. Uh, the economic analysis we undertook looked at the three options that Melissa just mentioned. Uh, the staff recommended option with a split zone, <clears throat> 
the, uh, the three FAR requested by the planning board and the five FAR that's requested by the property owner. And, uh, before we dive in, much like the, um, you know, the transportation model, um, you, there's a couple points of clarification we want to make about this economic model because, um, we, we certainly don't want this to be misconstrued. Um, you know, what does this model do and, and what does this model not do? Um, overall, we used, we tried to use very conservative assumptions, uh, to try to accommodate a wide variety of situations that a developer might find themselves in. Uh, for FAR estimating purposes, uh, this is a little bit of a, of a numbers exercise. Uh, we assume total redevelopment and build out on the site, which is the most conservative approach because uh, it incurs the highest costs. Um, that said, if an option is less likely to redevelop wholesale, it by no means precludes uh, infill development or partial redevelopment. Uh, the model also represents current market values, which really tells us whether or not uh, redevelopment would be feasible tomorrow. Uh, in actuality, we are planning for the next 20 years, so uh, we also just need to keep in mind our own future expectations for a modest uh, rent growth and the positive impact that the Purple Line uh, will probably have. Uh, the model accounts for costs only from the mandatory exactions, like uh, things like transportation fees, school fees, MPDUs, uh, BLTs, and the like. And uh, I think I should just take a, just pause here real quick and just explain that uh, the model that we use is not uh, some sort of, um, you know, uh, you know, some experiment that we cooked up in a lab that's, you know, strictly proprietary. It's, um, we used a, th this is somewhat based on the uh, uh, pro forma, an economic study that was done uh, for the White Flint sector plan um, back in 2008. Uh, there was a consortium of uh, very active developers here in Montgomery County, including uh, Federal Realty, JBG, Lerner, uh, Tower Companies, Combined Properties, and Holiday Corporation, who uh, outlined their assumptions on development revenues and costs, um, outlined uh, the costs for uh, uh, community exactions as well. Uh, we reviewed it. We felt like the approach is generally appropriate, and we, uh, we updated these numbers appropriately uh, for today as well as for the uh, market area. Uh, we assume that the current residential towers, uh, despite their age, you know, continue to be, for the most part, efficient. We ex assume that they've experienced reinvestment over time and system replacement, which is not always the case for buildings of that age. Um, and lastly, uh, and perhaps most importantly, the feasibility of redevelopment at different FARs. It's not really a binary, you know, yes or no answer. It's really kind of uh, on a continuum, may ranging from, yeah, probably not to uh, highly likely because every developer has different investment objectives. Every developer has diff different financial situation and appetite for risk. So uh, in particular, given our assumption that this property owner probably owns a property debt-free, uh, it could suggest that a higher FAR uh, might be needed to motivate redevelopment than, uh, than would otherwise. Uh, next slide. So um, with that said, uh, all these caveats, uh, here's the addition, uh, initial estimates. Uh, so let's start with the easy one. Uh, with option three, uh, you know, the, the team believes that there is a relatively ample density for the property owner to redevelop the entire site today if they chose to do so. Uh, plus, they'd still have land left over uh, for the Civic Green, uh, plus funding the improvements uh, to improve the Civic Green, as well as uh, dedicating the land, strictly land dedication, not the improvements, uh, for the Urban Greenway and for the Rec Park. 
At option two, which is the FAR that the planning board requested us to look at, FAR three, we think that redevelopment is still likely, but with a few conditions. Based on our estimates from the model, residential rents would likely need to increase maybe 2 to 3 percent for a developer to make an adequate return on investment. But we do think it's a pretty modest gap over a 20-year period because of the following reasons. As some of you may have seen, may remember from the previous Liddensville work session, rents in Silver Spring, they've been increasing annually faster than inflation has. Over the past 10 years, rents in Silver Spring have increased about 2.05 percent, which is about 16 percent higher than inflation. Rents will probably also experience a fairly positive bump from being close to the Purple Line station. And if it's created, rents from a daylight, a daylit, I'm sorry, urban greenway, if it's built, could actually also assist in delivering a bump of a modest amount. The Trust for Public Land in a 2009 study found that parks in all of Washington, D.C. had an average increase, well, homes within a 500-foot, distance of 500 feet from a park in the city of Washington, D.C. found an average value of a 5 percent increase. With option one, with a split zone of 2.5 and 3, eventual complete redevelopment, it's still possible, but it's probably less likely than a 3, and it would probably need to rely on favorable market conditions a little bit more. The residential rents would need to increase by about 7 to 8 percent for developers to make an adequate return on investment. And what this suggests is that a developer may possibly be more limited to infill or partial redevelopment under the split zone, where they try to find greater ways to, you know, greater redevelopment could be amassed on a part of the site, while they kind of limit the removal of fewer buildings, where at a 3 FAR or higher, they would have more flexibility. And I think flexibility is sort of the key word here. Oh, and lastly, in all these options, strictly based on the building footprint and required open space, we didn't do a test fit or anything. In the absence of a site design, the amount of land dedicated for parks for the, for all three of these parks in this slide here did not appear to be an issue. Okay. And I think Ms. Opalski wants to, had asked me if she could weigh in on this. I think that's appropriate in light of the staff analysis that's been done, or her client, perhaps. Good afternoon. Heather Delapolsky of Linoz & Blocker. I have here with me David Hillman of Southern Management Corporation and Summit Hills LLC, the property owner. So I'll just turn our comments over to him today. Thank you. And I'm David Hillman. I'm, I'm the managing member of the entity that owns Summit Hills. Um, I'll give you a very quick background on Summit Hills. We purchased the property in 1978. It was in receivership, um, as were most of the affordable housing communities in Montgomery County. That was the uh, height of rent controls. Um, we didn't pay very much for it. We paid $7 million for it. Um, we've put, over the last 35 years, we've put many times that into it, improving the community, um, and it's maintained as affordable housing. There, um, what I want to say is if we don't get enough FAR to be flexible, there's very 
almost no likelihood that any redevelopment would happen. Um, what we would like to have is enough to be able to do some infill initially um, and maybe demolish one building and replace it with, with more modern housing. Um, but as it stands right now, we cannot even um, construct a community center there for our residents. So. The staff made a presumption that you didn't have any debt. Is that true or? No, we have You don't have to tell us, but <laughs> I thought that would be pretty surprising, but maybe I'm wrong. Uh, don't tell my wife, but we, <laughs> we have debt. We've, uh, it's not so. a lot, but we have debt. Oh, and what's the issue with the community center? I think uh, you might have alluded to this at an earlier session, but I can't remember what the... Yeah, I cannot. The issue with that is that under the current R10 zoning, um, the, well, so the community center is actually located on a CR portion of the property. It's very strange, but there's just this tiny little carve-out for the community center. Uh, we can't expand it uh, without going off the CR portion into the R10 portion of the site, and under the R10 zoning, we are more than maxed out on lot coverage. So we can't expand the footprint. We really can't go up in height, yeah. um, and it's really undersized for the existing community. And I actually, I wanted to just add um, one more point to, uh, to Mr. Hillman's commentary. So at the last work session, I think the board was fairly clear. I don't think any final decisions were made uh, with regard to seeming to be against extending Spring Street through the site and talking about, I think staff proposed this, just that we would have to dedicate the land for the daylighting of the stream as opposed to doing the existing improvements. So in light of that, and I think we heard at the last work session, too, uh, that the board was not particularly inclined towards our request of 5 FAR and 200 feet in height. So uh, in light of the what's seeming to be a reduction in the exactions for the site, we went back and looked at our concepts a bit. And we are uh, uh, proposing now a CR4. Um, I think that there was some discussion that the 140 feet, uh, 145 feet, rather, in height at the corner may be extended further through the site. So we certainly support that and are reducing our request to a CR4 for in light of the um, reduction in the exactions that was briefly discussed at the last work session. Um, I, I guess I, I made the similar assumptions that Mr. Hillman talked about, about how this might redevelop. Um, I, I thought that a higher height throughout the site made sense because some of the shorter buildings in the site could then be replaced with taller buildings as long as there was density available. Um, and, and the taller buildings, which I presume are concrete, probably have a longer life than or more value than the other ones. So it was not likely that you were going to uh, bulldoze the whole site and start over. I, is that correct? That's correct. There's, there's nine buildings, only one of which is concrete. <coughs> the other. That's the one eight, on the corner? On the corner, yeah. And that was the last one that was built. Um, and that one is 100 feet, right? It's nine stories. Yeah, roughly. Okay. Um, so I... This is where I was, um, that I think the consensus of the board was that we'd like to see a park more centrally located than strictly the stream valley, which I, I was in favor of. I thought the road took too much land away and, and was too engineeringly difficult. Uh, so I was in favor of a 145 on the site, and whether it was 3 or 2.5 or 3.5 or 4, I, I was kind of ambivalent, but I didn't want to add too many units beyond what the community had already expected for the overall density. One of the complaints from the Littonsville residents is the total potential units that can be added under the Littonsville master plan. And I didn't want to deviate very much from that, but also give the flexibility over the next 20 years with the purple line coming that you could, you could demolish something and rebuild if it made economic sense. So that's kind of where I was. Uh, okay. Well, rather than split zoning. Uh, I think we can 
dismiss them if you're ready to discuss this. Not that you have to leave, but I just mean, no, what I'm suggesting is now you're talking about where you are and what you're advocating as opposed to asking them questions. So oh, if we're ready to move to that, that's fine. Oh, 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 I was just, I was waiting for my colleagues' comments. Can, I, I, pre, I, pres, I presume I that would question. make. You, you jump straight to what oh, you want oh, to do. Oh, that's oh, we a, ready to do no. I'm sorry. No, that's, and I think Mr. Hemmen. I, I want to I say something about the proposed road, which I think is off the table. But um, this community has always had security issues. Even today we have security issues. It's fenced and gated. Um, and a road splitting the property would, would create enormous problems with um, security for the residents. So that, that's just not a good idea. Uh, well, I, I wish you hadn't gone there because then we're going to get an argument about that. I, I'll just say I don't agree with that at all, but it's not probably not important to where we're going to go with this decision. Does anybody else have any questions? No. Okay. Thanks very much for coming. We appreciate that. Um, all right. So we heard what Norman wanted to do. What, uh, what do you guys think? So that's basically option two, Norman. Is that what you're saying? Um, I, I, I wasn't set on whether it would be... I guess my feeling was that the, even though we show what the potential increase of density is going to be, I think it's unlikely that the building on the corner that's concrete is going to go anywhere. So that land that's dedicated for that building is not going to be available to redevelop. And I think it's unlikely based on, on how much, how the well the rest of the project's doing that they're going to demolish, you know, four or five buildings. They may take the oldest one, take that one out, move all the tenants to the other one, and then redo it. So I didn't think that the density was as much as issue because you still can end up with another 12 to 1300 units even under three FAR um, as much as giving them the height which get, let them put more units in in a particular place that they took out a smaller building so I thought and it, and that also would open up land for the park and uh, and the stream valley buffer so the only way those things open up is if we give them height and I thought it was already there's you know, on one side you got a hill that's probably five stories high, which is Spring Street. On the other side you have apartments. On the back side you have apartments. So it's, and next to it, remember there was that high-rise building we had a long discussion about. So it, the extra height is really not felt by a residential neighborhood right next door. Um, so I just didn't, I, I thought that was a way for them to create open space. If we don't give enough height in the back side and the front building stays, then we'll never get the park. So are you we'll, changing your FAR? Um, well, it's either CRT, CR, or three, or two point. I, three adds, uh, how many units does it add? It adds more than the master plan recommended. That's a lot. Um, yeah. I, if you took the total that the master plan recommended with the split zoning, it would be, what, what three point, 2.75, something like that? It's like 2.56. 2.56. Yeah, so you have to choose either 2.5 or 2.5. I mean, I, three, I don't three, find three. out of the question, because I just don't think they're going to create the, all those units at one time. And you know what? Everybody's going to disagree with me on this probably, but hear me out. Okay. I, I think it's not that what you're saying doesn't make sense. Maybe it will, maybe it might even happen. But the whole thing strikes me as so speculative that, I mean, by their own admission, they're not looking to redevelop right now or any time in the foreseeable future. So my view would be, for all the reasons you're talking about, about pumping up unit counts 
and scaring everybody and it becomes like talking point number one and oh my god the plan's too big that I, I think we should, we should translate the existing zoning to CR so we can solve their community center problem but basically make sure the buildings conform with a CR zone with a, with a minimal C number so it's basically not really trying to encourage redevelopment but they can have a little bit more flexibility on with what with the uh, you know uh, plan that they've got in place right now and then uh, include in the plan a recommendation that at some point they could apply for a floating zone that would comprehensively address all these issues the problem I have with this is it's like you know by by trying to anticipate what exactly might be enough but not too much and what set of public benefits and how the site might be configured when Every, by everybody's account, this isn't going to happen for a long time and would depend on a lot of unforeseeable things about what's going on with the market and other factors. I just don't see why we're handing out a lot more uh, units that are probably never going to happen at least, uh, maybe not in the lifetime of the entire plant, certainly not in the last, next five or ten years. So I, I'm not in love with floating zones, but I think this is the sort of situation where it, where the redevelopment proposition is so unclear and speculative and, and involves so many factors falling into place, it doesn't seem unreasonable to me to say, let's not be pumping up the plan with all these, with all these units on the hope that maybe someday they might materialize. Instead say, when you're ready and you've got, you've figured out what you want to do over the long run to comprehensively redevelop the whole site, you have a public process to do that. Or you can wait until the next plan comes around in, you know, 15 years. That's my, that's my story. You know, the 1598 uh, units were in the uh, draft plan from when it first came out. So I don't think that's a surprise or an increase. So if, if there were this big controversy, if there were this big controversy about, and plus these guys have to plan way in advance to do a building, they got to move people around. I, I don't think they... Those units are going to be counted against school capacity potential. They're going to be counted against traffic for everything else that happens in this area for the next however many years. And, and if I thought they had any near-term possibility to do it, I'd say fine. But it's, it's not about surprise. It's about, or that anybody's complaining about it. It's about what is the point of juicing the development potential of a huge piece of property that's, uh, yeah, the, I think the right word is is highly speculative. But we don't get any commitment on affordability without redevelopment. Right now, they are uh, market rate affordable uh, because that happens to be the rents. If, if I were them and the market was as strong as it is, I'd be improving units and raising the rents. Even in our example of the split zone, we anticipate a seven to eight percent rent increase. But to, I don't think to cover that. So I, you know, but I, I think the trade-off. Yeah, yeah, there's a trade-off. But what you're saying assumes it's, there's some redevelopment's going to happen. It would be unreasonable, and a lot of uh, bureaucratic and political rigmarole to say let's have a floating zone for a really small site. But this is a huge piece of property. It certainly justifies the investment of going through that admittedly difficult process of a, of a rezoning application in order to comprehensively deal with how many acres are we talking about? Like 20 acres? 
Thirty acres. That's, enor that's enormous. Under, under the CR zone, though, they have to come in with a sketch plan. They have to come in with a development plan. They have to come. You know, there's a lot of steps for public involvement. I just hate to. Yeah, when we, we already have a recommendation on density. I hate to have to go through this again for anybody, ourselves plus them. If if the density the staff recommended is within the range of what we think we can do, I, I just don't want to. It's not at a controversial site that postpone, that we need to postpone because there's an argument. I mean, there isn't really a big argument from anybody about this other than the owner wanting more density, yeah, which is I'll not, tell you not unusual. In the short term, okay, what's going to happen is there will be people who complain there's too many school children generated by this, this plan. And they will cite all the people, all the kids coming out of these phantom units that are not going to get redeveloped, and they're going to cite the traffic impact, and you're going to have, you know. In that theory, we shouldn't do anything anywhere. We just well, put a floating no. zone everywhere. If, if, like I said, if there were any possibilities to redevelop anytime soon, I'd say fine. But, you know, why are we, why are we leading with our chin with this? That's my question to you. We wanted the parkland and we wanted the, I thought that's what we the improvements. And to get that, we got to give them an opportunity to redevelop. And I'm, I'm all for those things, but I'm saying, that a redevelopment, a rezoning application, while it's a hassle, is it for a, something on the scale of a 30-acre property is not really that big a deal. It's the, then the, the the burden of going through that process becomes worth it if property values increase in Silver Spring over time because of the purple line, among other things, and if some of these buildings reach the end of their use of life, then they can come in and show it as a package, and then we can and then. The, pro the difference is today we're sort of throwing darts at the wall as far as what kind of exactions or what public benefits it can support or what it can't support or what's important. If you went through that process, you'd be able to look at the whole thing at the time when you have a better understanding of what the economics are. I, 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 I think, think it's not worth revisiting. I think it's pretty clear um, that we can go ahead and do this and, and not negatively affect the, the unit count or the neighborhood. Yeah. I just... Okay, why well, pass the buck? And so have you. Pass the buck. So what's, uh, what do you guys think? Um, I think I was on option not option two last week, and that's where I'm going to stand again. Okay. And you guys? But, but can I clarify? When you say option two, what's up on the screen says CR 3.0. CR 3.0, if you go back to the other chart, please would show many more units than what we're currently showing in the plan. It would show a total of 3,189 net new 2,068. If your goal is to stay close to the maximum allowable units shown in option one, but not to do a split zone, then you don't want what was on the screen before is option two. You want a new option that we haven't shown yet. Option 1.A or 2.A, which would be something in the range of CR 2.5 for the whole site with C.25R 2.5. Whatever's left. Two five. And so
It was 2.56. I think that we don't generally do 2.6 or 2. That's mm -hmm. yeah, a big deal. So as, as the board's discussing this, I know one of the things that they asked, that you asked us to do, and Parks has actually prepared quite a bit of information about um, the benefits, which is why we talked about the comparables. I'll leave it to you, board. Do you want to hear from Parks first before you decide on this? Um, we decided we wanted the park. Okay. And we wanted a Okay. So I think what I'm hearing is that this new option is CR 2.5 with the split that we talked about for the C and the R. What is the height that you want to do? 145 is option two. 145 stepping, stepping down, down to 70. To 70. Right. And we would still have language that would talk about the importance. You wouldn't have a road, but it would have language talking about the importance of a central open space, yes. of providing a green area along the stream, yes. of the other kinds of amenities that were already mentioned other than the road. Yes. Is that accurate? Yes. Okay. Okay. C2.5, C.25, R2.25 with a height of 145, stepping down to 70 with the other discussions that, um, uh, that Gwen talked about with respect to the... Um, no, it's, uh, it's R, not 2.25, R2.5. Uh, okay. Um, Isn't it to the second? It's that would just mean they would have no capacity to do any commercial. They couldn't have a little shop or coffee shop or anything else on the property. Oh, they they could have. I C thought you could do two. Po like you have in um, option one, the first thing, it's CRT two point five, right. CO two point two five. Right, but what I'm saying is, is, if they build out to the R. Yeah. and they do the full 2.5 as R, then they won't have any C. They can make a choice when they come in as to whether they want to have a little bit of C, and that would be their choice or do 100% residential. But is it 1598 based on 2.25 or 2.5? It's if they maxed out their residential at 2.5. Okay, so that's what, we're, that's what we said? Yes. Okay. Okay, so so I think we have the um, preferred zoning for Summit Hills. And so what we had next was actually a presentation from Parks on the benefits of Parks. And so it sounds like... Um, well, yeah, there was additional information that the board had requested at work session three, and they've prepared um, their response to that request. Thank you. For the record, I'm Brooke Farquhar, and with me is Christina Sasaki from Park and Trail Planning. And um, specifically, 
If you could go to the next slide, yes. Uh, the board asked us to compare the level of service for parks in this area to some comparable areas. You may recall at the end of the session, last time we had a couple citizens come up and say, we want to see how we compare. So what we did was we compared to other communities that have some areas of what's considered by HUD as low income. It's less than 62.2% AMI. And uh, the other characteristics were that there are there will be transit and stations in those sector plan areas. And the mix of housing is somewhat similar. We have some uh, single-family detached, and we have some townhouses, and we have some um, mid- or high-rises. Next slide. Uh, typically, what we've done in all of our sector plans to make sure we recommend a complete system, an adequate system, hopefully a great system, of parks and trails is uh, one that has these elements, that has the right type of parks. You know, we have not just recreational areas, but gathering spaces, that we have um, sort of contemplative, get in touch with nature spaces, that kind of thing. We also look at the pattern. Um, typically, we look for a pattern of parks such that everybody can get to one within about a five-minute walk. Um, and we also look to make sure we have good connections to the regional trail system because that's the trails in and of themselves are destinations, are parks in and of themselves, but they also get you to other parks. So you see on the right of this slide here, here's our hierarchy. You've seen it a million times now. You could probably recite it yourselves. Uh, but that's our typical approach. Um, last time, you also asked us to look at amount, amount of parkland per population. So that's what we did. Next slide, please. So in, in just to sum up, we looked at pattern, connections, and amount. We think these three things go together. It's, it's not just about the numbers. It's not just about any one of these elements. And that's what Christina is going to be talking to you about today. She did a very thorough analysis. Uh, for the record, Christina Sasaki. Uh, so the next slide, oh, the one before that one. Um, the one that shows select sector plans, maybe it's a little bit. That. Okay, that one. So you see here we selected Littonsville with the star, the red star on the bottom, on the south. And we have Glenmont, and then we have Long Branch and Tacoma Langley as sector plans. The red areas that you are seeing is the low-income areas, as Brooke just mentioned. So we purposely select these areas because we heard from the chairman it would be good to compare with communities that have similar uh, typology and also on the south of the Beltway, so Tacoma Langley and um, Long Branch are on the south of the Beltway. Uh, next slide. So uh, we're going to be seeing six to seven slides, and this is in a smaller scale. So uh, the next slides will be showing each sector plan, so we're going to be able to see more information. Yeah. Go back to the first show. No, yeah, back, back. Back, yeah. So we're going to focus in Littonsville. So we heard from uh, the residents that... Um, it's really hard, although you have Rock Creek Park on the west side, it's really hard to connect uh, from Rosemary Hills to Rock Creek. So we measured the fat 
orange lines is how usually you might be able to walk or take your bike and go to Rock Creek Park. So the circles that you are looking at are approximately a quarter mile circles. So, you know, and as a standard, they say a quarter mile circle radius, you pretty much take five minutes to walk to there. So I did a Google Earth, Google Map uh, distance of how you get from Rosemary Hills to Rock Creek Park. The one on the bottom, it would take you 30 minutes because you have to cross, and then you have to cross a bridge, and then you go around, and then you enter in Rock Creek Park. And then the other one, you're going to have to go through East-West Highway. So if you go to the next slide, so with the, what the master plan is proposing is a more direct route because it's going to have a direct connection from the bridge to Georgetown branch, so that would take half of the time that otherwise would take for uh, walking or biking. And then we, in addition to that, we are proposing to the north another connection, an optional connection. And not only that, but I think if you compare to the before and after, the east-west highway is sort of um, making the car more important as a connection. But once we finish proposing the improvements in the streets and the trails, uh, you're going to have sort of this sort of mid-connection between Rosemary Hills and Rock Creek that is much more direct and is protect. So, you know, you have a good separation for pedestrians and bikes. Another thing that I want to note is with the proposal of the Fenwick branch, and I know that's going to be for the future, but the coverage area in terms of walking distance to a park would be much better if you go before and after. Some of the hills gets isolated because it's not covering the walking distance. So that said, if we go back to the summary slides. So here, we, we I just want to um, give you a reference we look into the APA study. They just released in their website um, a study that talks about how to determine level of service for parks, and they have nine categories uh, how you can actually calculate it. So today we're going to look at connections and amount of parkland, but there are other items that we might be considering in the future and that they mention in their study. So they mention... Um, Facilities per capita, building square footage per capita, access and distance time by mode of transportation, operating cost, and other items. So with that said, I also want to give a little bit of a reference of what other jurisdictions are using for amount of parkland. So Prince George County, for um, they require for their transit-oriented development areas 2.5 acres per thousand residents. And uh, Fairfax County, for their urban areas, they request 1.5 acres per thousand households. So what we are looking at right now, between existing and full build-out, and I just want to mention for Lytonsville, the full build-out, um, I eliminate the population of the areas that were likely not to develop. There are sites 7, 4, and 10. Uh, so we took the population within the boundaries of the sector plan, each sector plan. Although I know that the sector plan will involve a much bigger study area, for a comparison of parkland, we just put the population within the boundaries. That is the sort of black background you see. So the bright dots and bigger green areas are the proposed open space. And you can see here... Um, uh, 
the size, all in the same scale, so you can see that the coma and lung branch are kind of half size of Glenmont in Lettonsville. And currently, the only uh, sector plant that has public transit, it's Glenmont, is the red line. Um, and I'm going to go for each sector plant, so you're going to see the numbers on a bigger scale. Uh, go next. So Lettonsville, so here we have a current population based on the sector plan of approximately 8,000 residents, and we're going to be increasing to 15,760 um, residents. And then currently we have an area of 48.3 acres, and we're going to increase to 54.7. So the average in terms of the existing would be 5.99 um, parkland acres per thousand population, and in the full build-out, it's going to be 3.47. So there is a reduction, but the 3.47 is still higher than what is recommended in the other counties. And as you're going to see in the next slides, as it's still higher, uh, Glenmont is a little bit different. And the reason why is because the big area that was at the 30 acres that you see in the full build-out, that was um, an agglomeration of lands that were dedicated for the legacy open space. So it's not necessarily um, open space that is going to have a lot of uh, outdoor activities or fields. It's more for the conservation and trails. So there is a, it's a different why that area is so big. And if you go to the next one, uh, you can see in the Tacoma Langley, we get an additional civic green, but the biggest gain here is um, the connections. So we really increase the number of improved connections to the uh, Purple Line station, and of course the the upcoming of the Purple Line. Uh, and here you see the 1.82 parkland per thousand versus the 1.32. So that's one of the reasons why the connections were really focused on. The next slide. So in the Long Branch, uh, it was the 4.48 and it decreased to 2.6. And one of the reasons is, um, you know, the population had a huge increase. But if you see the before and after slides, you see how where strategic, strategically the open spaces were suggested, the new ones and expansion of the existing ones, you see connections within the boundary and with the regional trails. And then I think that's what we want to start doing in the future is not just the amount of land, but how you get from point A to point B into the overall system. Yeah, and I'd like just like to add that's what we have been doing. I think there is some value in looking at the amount of parkland per thousand, but it shouldn't in and of itself be the measure of adequacy. Also, uh, as the board was just deciding on an increase in density on Summit Hills, um, Christina was adding those numbers to her spreadsheet, and um, I'm not sure if she has the result yet, but we can give you it's slightly different from if you go back to the uh, Littonsville before and after. Uh, you know, it's a little bit different from 347 but uh, then again, if you are considering other options from EYA, that will also change the numbers a little bit. We'll be happy to give you those numbers when they're decided. Uh, I hope this answers the board's question for this sort of quantitative analysis. We, we didn't include things like the schools or the, the parks outside the boundary because then you just sort of have to set some arbitrary assumptions, and we wanted to just limit it to the population within the boundary and what is being recommended in this plan. Now, does your uh, analysis 
assume only parks within that circle, right? So it doesn't count, for example, Rock Creek Park. It, it, it includes the part of Rock Creek Park that falls within the boundary of Just the sector plan. Just the little plan. slice of it. It yeah. was um, how many acres? 31 acres uh, within the boundary. Yeah. Well, my point being just that, like, Raised Meadow, I heard somebody the other day say, oh, well, Raised Meadow isn't, you know, accessible to our neighborhood. I mean, when I go to Raised Meadow, I ride my bike through Rosemary Hills to get there, and I go probably twice as far because I'm starting from a more distant point. That's not to say everybody in Rosemary Hills or Littonsville feels that that's a comfortable walk or bike distance, but just that realistically you can't ignore one of the largest parks uh, in the entire DC metro region, when you think about what park assets are in the in the vicinity, that, that's as, correct. But we did draw the line. Especially connected with trails and stuff like right, that. Right, that's yeah. where the connectivity is important. And I think in the other plans, we each one of those plans that we compared it to was adjacent to a large regional park. I mean, in Glenmont, you have to walk a little farther to get to Wheaton Regional, for example. But we didn't put that area into the quantitative analysis; more qualitative. I just would like to add that, you know, the, in this map that is showing, we do have the school sites in green, um, the north of the track, and then we have Rosemary Hills. And it's very interesting that Rosemary Hills, the athletic fields, is right where you lose the coverage of the five minutes. So, you know, if we start considering alternative sites, then we have full coverage of walking distance um, recreational spaces. Okay. Thank you. And um, I don't know how much longer you were planning on going. Excuse I me, did. Mr. Chairman, could I add one more thing? Yeah. I meant to uh, state for the record is that, of course, if properties were to become available adjacent to our existing parks, just like in any other area master plan, we, we are actively pursuing all of those opportunities. Our, our acquisition staff is always on the lookout, and just because we might meet what we consider an adequate system doesn't mean we wouldn't love to have more parkland. Yep. And I guess we didn't look at uh, whether they were developed, undeveloped, or whether they had facilities on them. We didn't ask you to do that, did we? And we do your comparison. We just ask you for... Parkland. We we do have that breakdown. I mean, we looked at we we categorized things into sort of active recreation mm -hmm. versus more natural resource based recreation. And I think in all of these plans, we have, um, like I said, these large stream valley parks, which are the natural based uh, recreation. But we have a good balance of active active recreation, gathering places, trails, and natural resource recreation. I think we have a good balance in all of them. And I think, and I agree with you, but I, I guess I was concerned sometimes when I hear people say we don't have enough parkland, it makes me wonder what are they talking about? Are they talking about things that are developed, things that are have active, and maybe they aren't looking at the full spectrum of what we talk about when we talk about, you know, recreational areas? Because certainly if you looked at the figures, um, right now Lindenville is very high in the number of acres per 1,000, probably some of the highest in, in the area. So I, I guess I wonder where the perception comes from that they don't have uh, adequate parkland. That was all. Okay. Okay. I, uh, I did want to get the CYA thing in before the end, so I don't know if what else you need to cover. 
Sorry. I'm going to provide a very quick synopsis of the June 1st update that we see from MCPS. And if you have questions, we do have Bruce Crispell here to take questions. And then finally, it's just providing the revised language for Paddington Square that the board had requested from the community and HOC. And so that should be very quick. Okay, so this is basically um, the analysis that was provided by MCPS. It looked at the student generation rates based on the density numbers of, based on the density that would be created by the staff draft recommendation. So it's important to note that the numbers may change slightly as we are making um, adjustments to the zoning. So what you're seeing is um, the generation rates are identical in both the Albert Einstein cluster and the Bethesda Chevy Chase cluster. And so in the, in the letter, um, they did note that there would be um, some capacity issues um, at all levels, and there were options that were given to address the capacity. And so what you're seeing is that first there would be a determination if there was surplus, surplus capacity within the cluster or the ability to increase capacity um, in schools. Second would be to reopen an existing school in the vicinity. Um, third option is to build an addition where feasible. And the final option was construct a new school. And this is very similar to the language that was provided in other plans that you've seen, including West Bard and Bethesda Chevy Chase. And so that is essentially the update. Um, there was a memo that was provided as a part of this, uh, the staff memo. So there was additional language that was attached to the back. And that is language that we would also like to see included in the sector plan. And if there are any questions, we do have Bruce Crispell here. Uh, not hearing any right now. So I think we could turn to Paddington Square. Paddington Square. Okay. Okay. And finally, we have um, Paddington Square. And just to kind of refresh your memory, um, located on page 76 of the staff draft, this was another site that was split zoned. Um, it was site 6A, which was the larger portion of the site. We we're requesting a CRT of 1.5 to allow for increased uh, affordable housing development. And then also in site 6B, the request, um, the recommendation was for high-density townhome development, and that would, that would allow for a buffer to the single-family detached homes. And there, were, there was also um, staff draft language that explained the recommendations um, in the sector plan, and those are found on page 77. So what we did hear from the property owner was that they were concerned about the idea of the split zone. So they requested that the split zone be removed, and they would like to see a CRT zone applied across the entire site. So the, the request was for a CRT of 1.25, a C of 0.25, R of 1.25, with a maximum height of 65 feet. They worked closely with the community to draft um, revised language. So what you see here in these five bullets are the language, is the the revisions to the language that would be on page 77, and essentially it's asking for the entire site to be rezoned to CRT, um, to also allow for mid-rise moderate density development closest to Rosemary Hills uh, Lintonsville Local Park, which was something that we were hoping to get out of the split zone process. Um, they also wanted to make sure that the portion of the site that confronted Lanier Drive and abutted single-family homes would have um, only townhome units that would be a maximum of 40 feet in height. 
There was also a recommendation to prioritize the housing options so that they are compatible with the single-family community and to also allow for the minimum amount of commercial density to be mapped in the CRT zone. And, and that was because they wanted to discourage uh, commercial development near the adjacent single-family homes, if at all possible. And then finally, there was an additional request that on page 79 of the hearing draft, where it states that the planning board will work to improve visibility into Rosemary, Rosemary Hills Lintonsville Local Park by working closely with the landowners of Paddington Square to ensure compatibility of land uses during redevelopment, that after the sentence, in the sentence where it says Paddington Square, it should also say, and representatives of the local community. And so that is the new language that was submitted in conjunction with HOC and representatives of the Rosemary Hills Littonsville community. And so we're asking um, for the board's permission to have that language included in the plan or to replace the proposed language in the staff draft. I'm not seeing any objection to that, so I think that's fine. Okay. And um, just one quick clarification. Oh, it's go back. replacing the language in the public hearing. Draft. I'm sorry, replacing the language in the public hearing draft. Yep. Okay, and um, that completes the presentation today with the exception of the other issues, and that would include EYA and the request for zoning changes. Okay, so I see Mr. Goldman, Ms. Harris, or some combination thereof. Sorry. Oh, I guess it doesn't go down. <laughs> um, excuse me, one second. I'm just going to open up the presentation. Uh, sorry. Um, I think they'll. Sorry. Okay, so um, first of all, thank you for allowing me to speak. Um, my name is Evan Goldman from EYA. I've met uh, most of you. Um, over my career here in Montgomery County. Um, and I want to really, first of all, thank you for allowing me to speak and talk about these issues, but also to apologize for the confusion that this creates in the process. Um, and I know it's not ideal to be coming in last minute with major zoning changes, not major, but some zoning requests on, on uh, parcels in a master plan uh, to you guys, the staff, or quite frankly to the community. And so I think most of you know the amount of community outreach I do as part of my life and how much I value that and care about it. And so that's not in any way a way to try to cut the community out. And I would imagine I'll be probably meeting with the community, you know, 50 times over the next uh, year to two years as we go through this process um, because I think that's a critical part of the process. Um, but what we, the way, I'll give you a little bit of background of how EYA got interested in, in this project, project. And for those of you who don't know EYA, we typically do um, townhomes near transportation, near transit. We've been doing that for 25 years. We're based in Bethesda. Um, and we, we take a lot of pride in the fact that we do mixed income housing. So we typically have really nice affordable housing. We often replace affordable housing. Um, and we also have really beautiful market rate housing, everything from the ultra high end, um, you know, elevator townhomes to kind of, you know, townhomes that millennials can afford. Um, and we do that all around the metro area. We've done 46 projects in our, uh, in our uh, corporate history. Um, Littonsville is this interesting opportunity because it's rare that a, a transportation station opens and the densities are low enough to allow EYA to do something. 
Um, you know, typically White Flint, Bethesda, Silver Spring, all the CBDs, Wheaton, the FARs are so high that, you know, you can't make townhomes work there. The land sellers wouldn't sell the property to someone to develop townhomes. Um, but in Littonsville, because of the nature of the community there, the importance of um, being respectful of the residents that live in that neighborhood, um, townhomes actually start to work. So for us, that's really fantastic. Um, I had been working on behalf of Federal Realty um, on the Rollingwood property, and so I met with the community uh, a bunch over the past two years. And that's how I, I, I guess I knew Lindsville already because my kids go to Silver Stars and I have a whole bunch of friends who live in that neighborhood. But um, that was how I got to meet some of the community representatives and understand the community even more depth. And so when I came over to EYA six, six, about six months ago, um, I started trying to figure out is there any way that EYA could do something here uh, near the Purple Line station. And so at this point, you know, we have essentially what we're looking for here, and I'll walk through the zoning request, zoning change request. What we're proposing is largely in keeping with what's already in the master plan. The total unit count that we would probably would be right around where you are in the master plan. So it's not, this isn't an addition of, you know, a thousand additional units. This is a reorganization of those units so that the higher density multifamily buildings can be closer to the transit. The affordable housing can be closer to the transit, which is where it wants to be, especially to encourage affordable um, renters to not have cars, so that they can even reduce their cost of their cost of living, um, and then have the townhomes largely on the um, edges closer to the community as a buffer between the, the taller buildings. Given that our product is typically three to four stories, and um, and even when we do rental buildings, you know, here we couldn't imagine them being more than five six stories. Uh, you know, the heights here also wouldn't be something that would largely upset the community or, quite frankly, be different from what's already being proposed in any way. Um, but the big, the big difference that we are looking at is largely, and I'll show with my arrow, the block right here, and that's WSSC and the two county parcels on the other side of the tracks. And the reason it's so critical to think about those is that this is a 20-year plan, and in order to have the multifamily concentrated near the transit stop and townhomes on the other parcels, um, there needs to be a place to receive those multifamily buildings. And so when you look at this map, um, what we would propose is everything in light blue being townhomes. And so you're taking, you know, properties that are up against the Littonsville community, up against the park. Um, you know, in working with HOC, if we're able to come to an agreement with them, uh, we're a joint venture partner with them elsewhere in the county. Uh, but the idea would be to have HOC's multifamily units closer to the transit and have townhomes on the Paddington Square site, which we think many members of the community will be pretty excited about. Um, same with Friendly Gardens, same with the, most of the WSSC site. And so you really get a tenting of density. You get single-family home ownership in the community, and you get the multifamily buildings closest to transit. Second to that, what you also get by doing that is the opportunity for a little bit of retail right at the metro station. Um, this is not major. This is a few restaurants, a cafe, um, you know, maybe a small grocery, not a grocery store, but like a market of some sort. Um, but something that creates life within walking distance. So EYA's tagline for 20 years now is life within walking distance. So we judge ourselves. Um, we actually won't do an acquisition unless it has that. Um, and if we do an acquisition that we don't think has it, we add it. Um, and so while we don't do a lot of retail, we do a little bit. And so in this case, you've got this wonderful park asset. You have an amazing transportation stop between two huge job centers. Um, so people could literally live here and not drive during the week if they didn't want to. And the opportunity to add just enough retail that you feel like on a Saturday night when you want to go out for dinner, you don't have to get in your car. Um, or, you know, when you want to go out for lunch with your kids, you can go somewhere. And we think that type of retail, once we get out in the community and, you know, meet with even more people, 
there will be there will be a hunger for something like that. We know how excited people care about the retail center on Grub Road, and we think that there could be something similar here, but in in a mixed use building with residential above it. Um, so the change is really requesting you had, you guys uh, sorry you guys planning board had recommended R20 on the WSSC site, which would allow for townhomes. So what we're talking about is largely consistent with that. We're showing kind of multifamily right up against Littonsville Place in the dark blue and then in the light blue townhomes. And the only reason we went with CRT 1.5 versus um, R20 is that it allows for the types of setbacks and designs that we do in our projects much better than R20 does um, and um, would create the type of environments we've created at Chelsea Heights and at Montgomery Row. And, you know, we've, we've got four active projects in the county, so you know what we do. Um, we then uh, talked about the other side of the tracks, and, I, and we had a really cool meeting at the chamber just last week and with, um, with some of the representatives of the community that have a really big interest in industrial. And so whether you've been following this or not, um, there's this really big movement in the development community to come up with a way for industrial and residential to coexist. And so this isn't the 1800s anymore where we have, you know, industrial tenants that are huge polluters and we're creating toxic issues of residents being next to industrial. A lot of these industrial tenants are the lifeblood of the county. They're the people that create jobs. Um, they're entrepreneurs. And quite frankly, it creates a place where people can actually, without college degrees, can actually get make a living in pretty high-paying jobs. Um, the Purple Line Station is going to make that even better because now you have people that can make a living and be near transit. Um, but one of the negatives of the industrial area right now is that it's just not that walkable. Um, and the tenants that are there, often people don't know they're there. Um, and so how do you celebrate those tenants? How do you make sure that they're being marketed appropriately and that they have the partnership from the private sector to do the best they can from a business perspective and then also create a, um, a really good synergy with the residential community across the tracks? And so um, I think initially a lot, you know, we met with four or five uh, tenants over there the other day, and I think by the, by the nature of what's going on and nervousness, there was, you know, there are walls up, people are concerned. And I think after they realized what our proposal is, there was some excitement. And so our thought is largely, you know, to look at what's there today and come up with ways to beautify it and then also to solve some of the problems that they have. So whether it's parking or it's loading or it's access, um, you know, how do we solve that collectively? Um, how do we create more pedestrian connectivity? So if, uh, you know, if the um, Creative Cakes wanted to have a storefront and allow people to actually come in on foot or come in by, you know, and, and actually shop there in addition to the, what they make, that would be possible. For, um, you know, for someone to drop their kid at the gymnastics place and actually sit at a cafe could be a nice amenity for the community. There's um, some really cool industrial projects going around, around the country. Um, two of these examples in the upper right are from Miami and from Pittsburgh where they actually have created these muralistic art programs um, on, on industrial buildings just to beautify what's there. And so that's something where it could be some, an, an opportunity to celebrate historic Littonsville, uh, to work with the local high schools and some of the local arts programs to do public art on the buildings. And these are not expensive public benefits. These are things you get a huge bang for the buck. And also bring, um, um, bring um, from a public relations perspective, bring, bring people to these tenants and help their business as well. Um, you know, striping bike lanes in the, in the streets, um, adding some street trees in here and there, but making sure there's still room for trucks to move. There's a lot of ways we can make this work and not scare away the tenants. Um, and then on top, and in fact help, help invigorate them. And then on top of that, the middle image here is from Baltimore. This is open works. And so I don't know if you've heard of this, but it was a state funded, state and city funded, um, co-work space essentially for warehouse, um, sorry, industrial type tenants. And so, you know, one of the, you know, if you look at this parcel here where, you know, that's being taken to build a purple line station, you know, you could imagine a two-story building there one day with 
a co-work space, um, co you know, sharing of equipment, and on the sec on the first floor, you know, maybe there's a coffee shop and a cafe, and there's access to the Purple Line, so we're improving people's ability to get to the train. Um, and then that also could help feed workers and employees into some of the industrial tenants that are in that neighborhood. So one of their issues is finding qualified people to work there, you know, the people that don't have PhDs and don't work at NIH. Um, you know, how do you find them? How do you find them and, and train them? These types of places in partnership with the county could really t start to create that. And then that, what I think that helps is you have a residential community. You have this built-in base of potential people that might want to go there and be part of it. They go there today, quite frankly, to shop um, or to, you know, to do what they need to do and take care of their services. Um, by connecting them and celebrating that, I think it could be a really cool model around the country. And unlike a lot of the places where this is happening, this would actually be authentic. So, you know, I can't tell you how many developers in Portland and in uh, Brooklyn and even JBG, what they're doing downtown, which is really cool in Eckington, are building new buildings and then trying to create this in the base, right? Um, and here you have the opportunity where it's actually existing. Let's figure out how to make that work um, collectively for everyone's greater good. Um, you know, there's, we heard the other day, you know, there are distilleries looking for space, there's breweries. So it could be this mix where you have the ability to actually um, have these great tenants and makers doing things in the county and bringing pride to the county. And then at the same time, um, you know, uh, being able to do the work they need to do in that community. Um, architecturally, I mean, this is so early. These boards were something we shared with the community, but it's not in any way, shape, or form what, you know, who knows if we would propose this. But the concept is you could have some of the residential in this area have that warehouse-type feel um, where it blends between the residential neighborhood. Um, you know, you have some townhome projects in this image that are, are actually warehouse style as well as a multifamily. All of these are relatively low-scale buildings. Uh, the Brookland building, if you've ever been on the metro going past Rhode Island Metro, you kind of see that Brookland sign has become one of the kind of key buildings in that neighborhood. So we think architecturally there might be a way to blend this as well and to celebrate it in the multifamily. Um, and what the main point here is, you know, who, who knows if UIA will be able to tie up all this property. You know, we're talking to a whole bunch of the property owners at this point. We're pretty far along with four or five of them. Um, and maybe that's all we get. But the the fear we had was to preclude for the next, you know, 15, 20 years something happening on the WSSC or these county parcels. It seemed like it was a missed opportunity. It's right at the transit. The density levels we're talking about are relatively low and in keeping with what you're recommending on the other properties. And we think that the unit counts would ultimately end up approximately where you are. Um, you already assumed 1,200 square feet on average per unit, which is pretty high. Um, and so that's just what you would assume. You know, if multifamily averages 800 and our townhomes are kind of in the 14 to 2,000, you know, you're going to end up right around that 1,200 square feet per average, which is about what this is. So that's where we're at. We know it's very early on, and we apologize for coming so late to the table with all of you, but we will we would do whatever we need to do out in the community over the next six months before this is up at council um, to help educate people. Yeah, in the next two weeks, too. Two weeks? Yeah. You're up. <laughs> so, um, but thank you very much. If you have any questions, I'm happy to answer. You're allowed, you're allowed to do uh, uh, commercial, like, um, restaurants in an IM zone. So, you, except for the residential, you can do the restaurant uses right now, right, in the area that's shown as... D north of uh -huh. yeah, you can under IM you can um, okay. we would let this place right? yeah so one thing we actually there's a, a, a person we're working with from this company recast city um, we would want to put a program in place to make sure that we're preserving existing tenants so you know the fear here would be all of a sudden you have one restaurant then two then three then 10 20 and all of a sudden it's this restaurant district and you lose the tenant base 
So um, there are programs that Alana, this woman from Recast, has been working on with Cincinnati and in various parts of the country where you figure out ways to preserve um, tenants. And, I mean, it could be even that maybe a public benefit is helping preserve rents or keep rents low in some, for some of the existing tenants that are there today. And that's why we see the retail really being on the WSSC side um, so that you're not, in, you know, going impinging into that area. The county parcels, these two D parcels here, um, because you're going to have the uh, SHA, sorry, the MTA maintenance shed there, there, you know, if that didn't happen, it didn't happen, but that's a great opportunity to do a mixed-income building above it to hide, you know, what would be a pretty unattractive site if that didn't get redeveloped, and maybe that could have a little bit of retail right there at the Purple Line entrance. So between that and, and Parcel C, you could get enough walkable retail for the community to have something to go to, but then also respect, you know, the tenants that are there today. Now, there are, you know, there's a cannoli place and there's a cake place, and there are some cool tenants there that have food service, and that's great. As long as they're makers and it's industrial and they also have that interchange with the community, that's awesome. But it would be, I don't, I think the goal would be to not, you know, lose tenants that are there and really work with the community closely to make sure they stay. When, is that something that we have done before, having the, that effort of reta retaining uh, businesses as a public benefit? Well, there is actually a provision in the CR zone that I think allows us to consider that. And there is an extensive section now in the Littonsville plan about supporting and retaining existing businesses. That is a priority in the plan. But one point that I wanted to get clarification on, and I think it's an interesting um, point that um, Mr. Goldman has brought up, is there are several properties in the Brookville Road area that are either currently government-owned or will, um, I think they are government-owned because they were bought for the Purple Line. Right. And my understanding, and this is what I just wanted clarification on, is the ones that you're talking about actually rezoning from IM to something else are ones that currently do not have businesses. Right on the property that are owned by the government that when the purple line is done will be in some cases like the one that had the upper D, the one that is there. It was a private business. It was bought by MTA. It is now a vacant building. Right. And when the purple line is finished, it will probably be, declared surplus and sold by MTA. So if that was rezoned, again, I'm just making sure I'm hearing this correctly. If that was rezoned, you're not displacing anyone because right. right now it's vacant and it's owned by the government. But it would be an opportunity to introduce some of these kinds of interesting uses that you just described. Is that correct? Yeah, it is. So the one change from would be that um, from this outline that you're seeing to our letter is that we're only requesting the zoning change on the parcels to the south of Littonsville Place. Um, and when we met with some of the tenants and with the chamber um, and some of the civic activists that have been working to organize these tenants really effectively, there was a concern that this parcel would be so close to the industrial tenants that it could create a, a hazard where you have residential right there next to them and, and thus those, those residents are complaining. So we agreed to not try to pursue a CR zone there because under IM um, you could do 
a restaurant, the cafe, the maker space, the other type of cool uses that would make that really interesting for the county without having to do residential on that parcel and really keep the residential a little bit further away on these parcels and on the WSSC site. So that's great. So you're clarifying that the only rezoning that you are proposing at this point is the C site and the lower D site. Exactly. The, the site, the Littonsville place and whether that's south or west, whatever. Yeah, I think direction. it's southwest. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, so uh, there it is. The whole point of that was so that's all open and public. And um, Ms. Barr, do you want to say something? So Valerie Barr, Rosemary Hills Neighbors Association. Um, you know, this is practically the first that we've heard of this as well. Um, there are some very exciting parts of this, certainly. Um, I just want to note that a two-week time frame to engage the community is very, very short. Uh, we, can, we may not even be able to get space at our community center to have a community meeting in that time. So it's really putting a bit of a burden on us to try and figure out what the response should be to, to a plan that's not really fully gelled yet. So, um, you don't have to finalize your opinion. You could listen and say we've had an initial meeting, we haven't concluded anything, and leave it to us to decide whether we want to make a recommendation or not. But it, you know, eventually it's going to get to the council. So, Yeah, and, and we would, of course, be 100% open to having a community meeting, even if it's quickly organized. We also, I know you guys have a date in mind. If, if it were able to slip, we'd be willing to work as long you know, as needed with the community. But just as, just as an aside, maybe a little warning, we've worked very hard in Littonsville to try to work with the community and the business owners. And at this point, I don't think we want to big, create a big ruckus in a, in a place that seemed to be pretty settled as far as all our objectives. Um, so you're going to have to work, work at that. Because right. I, I think the whole board worked hard to find a place where we wouldn't aggravate the council with uh, a big deluge of objections. We've, we've, I think we've re reached a good balance. So good luck. Great. Thank you. Okay. Enough said. Mr. Teitelbaum. Thank you. I'm uh, Joel Teitelbaum from the greater Littonsville area. I'd like to, uh, as an individual who resides there, whose wife had a small business in that area, and I worked at the Walter Reed Institute just across the street from the future uh, station. I'm on the board of the uh, Restoration Advisory Board for the entire Army installation there. I'm retired. Uh, the message really is this. What Mr. Goldman has said, and he's a respected Developer. I mean, you don't find developers disrespected in, in many communities, but Mr. Dreyfus is the other one. Of course, you meant this, this is, this exclusive Dreyfus of me. Is, is the other one. Uh, basically, this is a much better idea in theory than anything that this board or this planning department has ever come up with, period. What you guys say that you've sorted things out with us, you have not sorted anything out with our community. Basically, there is a strong conflict in the style and approach 
that the planning department is taking right, toward look, our community. I don't really. And we would, really, I don't care Mr. what Tidalbaum. you say. I'm talking Mr. about Tidalbaum. Mr. Goldman. So we would Mr. like Tidalbaum. to. I invited you up here so you could have some input on this. That's my not so This is not comparative I'm, planning. Yeah, but how you did comparative with parts. This is great. comparative with planning. All I want to know I'm is. I'm saying this one's better what, than what you guys came up what with. What is your. I'm telling you it's better than what you guys came up with. That's However, great. Then you can very, come back here and very, support it. It's very, very late in the process. Everyone so, acknowledges that. Uh, I request a temporary suspension. Now you're getting to my point of this sector plan as it regards the western area around Littonsville until a process can be put in place to reset what's going on in this, uh, this uh, proposal. No, I that don't. is my proposal to you. You can reject it. But I want it on the record that I'm requesting it because I think this is such a late-in-the-game uh, uh, item after three full years of missed planning. Thank you. Uh, duly noted. There's no appetite for that. Thank you. You'll hear more from me. Oh, sure we will. Thank you. I think we're, unless Brooke has something I, I just to wanted to add one more thing about parks. Uh, we did not consider these sites that Mr. Goldman is talking about in our analysis. Um, I think there may be opportunities to look at increasing the open space or parkland in some shape or form that we would like to bring back at the 23rd work session if we can work it out with uh, the community developer. Whatever you can work out. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. I think we're about done unless this is really something that has not been said before. Please. My name is Jeremy Marcus. I'm one of the cluster coordinators for the Bethesda Chevy Chase School Cluster. Uh, we filed a written testimony on this back in February. I'm not going to recite all of the, what's in there. I just did want to make a few quick um, po points on, on this plan. Um, basically, that, that concerns school capacity and talk about it. Uh, make a request for working with the board, with, with your staff, and with MCPS going forward. Um, this plan, as I understand it, would add about 2,000 housing units uh, to the Bethesda Chevy Chase cluster. Um, and if I understand the MCPS data that was provided to you at least back in March, that would be 145 elementary students if it's all built out and 80 high school students. Certainly the elementary schools, Rock Creek Forest, Rosemary Hills, they can't support that, that number. Um, if you combine this plan with the Bethesda downtown plan, you're looking at 300 additional high school students. The high school, as you probably know, is going to have uh, an expansion starting this summer that would bring it to approximately 2,400 students and it will be at capacity. And we're just, as, as, a, as a community, very concerned with, with plans going forward without uh, a, a real comprehensive understanding of where the kids, if they live there, are going to go to school. I know that you guys and your staff have been working closer in the last year or two with MCPS staff, but we would just ask that those the dialogues continue, they accelerate, and find some way to, to bring the, the, the PTA and the school community into those conversations. We get lots of questions all the time as to where's everyone going to go to school, and I can't really provide good answers as, as a cluster coordinator, uh, and, and so we just um, ask that find better ways to, to bring us into the conversations and, and as a planning board, one question I would have is, is how can you look at 
aggregate impacts across plans. The Bethesda plan, the Lintonsville plan, a few years ago the Chevy Chase Lakes plan, they all impact the same school cluster, and it's not at all clear how, how we can take into effect those kind of aggregate effects. Um, so it's more, I would like to be able to, as the PTA rep, engage. I'm not here to oppose or support a particular plan, but those are yeah. Have points. you read the Glen Orland memo that was prepared with the Westbard plan? I'm sorry, which memo? The, the memo from Glen Orland from the council staff where he, t he assessed Westbard, Bethesda downtown, Littonsville collectively and described the uh, various uh, options and also addressed a lot of the issues of things like generation rates and some of the other issues. I would just recommend that to you. I, I've a, read a lot of documents. I don't know if that, that's one. Well, I'm, happy, that, I'm happy to go take a look. That at is it. right on point to your mm -hmm. question, which is the aggregate effect of all the different uh, master plans that are being uh, considered roughly at the same time for it in the, that affect the BCC. And, and we can follow up with Mr. Marcus and get him a copy of that memo, and we would be glad to sit down and go through the numbers. We, along with staff from MCPS, have looked at things in an aggregate way, and we'd be glad to sort of just take you through the, the numbers and what information MCPS has provided to us. That, that would be great. I mean, I have looked at the, the March 24th MCPS letter here and it, it raises a lot of issues, but I'm not sure what the answers are to them. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, I think with that we are adjourned, or rather, we are moving. Uh, we are concluded this item. I just one quick question. And so we're going to take a break. Yeah. Just one quick question. I wanted to know what were the instructions for staff moving forward on EYA. So we, we're asking that they have a meeting with the community prior to June 23rd. Yes, and obviously I'd expect that you'd probably meet with them too that you develop a uh, uh, recommendation that we would hear from the member, interested members of the community at our next work session, and then we will uh, make our own recommendation. Okay. Thank you. Thank you.
Okay. Hi there. Let's get it rolling. Could we get everybody who uh, we need to move on to the next item? So anybody who's not here to talk about SSP for transportation, if you could take their conversations outside, we'd appreciate that. Hello. Good afternoon, Rose Krasnow for the record. I know you're used to seeing Pam Dunn here, uh, but uh, her son happened to graduate from high school today. She tried hard to convince MCPS that they couldn't put the graduation on a Thursday, but somehow they just didn't listen to her. So I said I would do my best to fill in for her. Uh, I'm joined up here by Tom Autry, also from Functional Planning and Policy, and about to be joined by Eric Gray and Dan Hardy, who has worked with us on this. And this is our first work session uh, on the subdivision staging policy. You recently had uh, two public hearings, one on transportation and one on schools. I did want to let you know that we are um, putting all the um, testimony together, both what you heard and what you have received by mail, and we're categorizing it, making a matrix of the, the various issues, some of which you'll already see that we're addressing in here, and we will be getting that to you soon. Uh, today, we're really only hoping to cover uh, two areas, and um, those are how we define our policy area categories and impact taxes. So with subdivision staging, clearly what we want to do is um, determine adequacy, how we manage growth in the county in a way that supports our master plan goals. Uh, we looked through several of our master plans to try and uh, determine what we felt really stood out among all of them. And you see here what we have identified to enhance the quality of life through increased access to jobs, shopping, and entertainment to strengthen the potential for economic development through job creation and increases in property values, to improve our ecological sustainability by promoting reductions in CO2 emissions and stormwater runoff, and to support social equity by promoting affordable housing and access to jobs and services throughout our communities. So with those uh, in our minds, we looked at how we could come up with policy area categories that would reflect our current land use patterns, modes of travel other than the single occupant vehicle, which was a real new thrust of this one, and the planning vision for different parts of the county. And some of the things we heard in the public testimony that you received, uh, there was definitely a concern with the terminology, uh, and we're changing it today. So you'll see as we go through these slides that um, you won't see the word wedge anymore, uh, and I, you'll also see that we uh, have, have tried hard to come up with names that we hope might work. We'll present those, and you can comment on those. You know, how has the classification of the policy areas evolved over time? Uh, People were concerned with the table, which we'll look at, of the non-auto driver mode share. So we've uh, tweaked that a bit. Uh, and we were asked if we could make the school transportation equivalency, i.e. could our school clusters uh, be kind of coterminous with our policy areas. And that really doesn't work, but that was part of what we heard. 
so in terms of creating the policy area groups, just to remind you, uh, we wanted to group like places. On the graph you see before you, on the left-hand side, it shows the jobs housing density. On the right-hand side, it does show the non-auto driver mode share. And we took all our policy areas across the bottom. We looked at what uh, the jobs housing density was in 2012, and that's the um, lighter green color. And then we tried to project what we thought it would be uh, in the future in 2040. And as you see, some areas just really jumped out when we did that. So already today in 2012, we had certain areas that you would expect to be quite high. Uh, and then going forward, though, some were perhaps a little surprising. So I was a little surprised to see Twinbrook jump so high uh, moving out. But when you look at all the plans that have been approved uh, for Twinbrook and the um, federal buildings that they have been redoing, uh, it is, you know, simply what the projection would seem to imply. Rose, could you remind us again what the source is for the data for this chart? Uh, it's from the uh, American Census. It's the ACS <coughs> survey. And, and, and the projections as far as where you think it would be in 2040, how would you get that? Uh, Tom Autry, for the record. That's from the um, Council of Governments uh, Cooperative Forecast. It did it by each planning area? They did it. Uh, that's uh, Correct. They did it by plan. Well, they, they do it uh, by county. Our research folks broke it down by policy area. Taz. Right, the TAZs. We, we do really try and calculate jobs and housing by... Um, doing an analysis of, of many areas that we then put together to, for this. And this is really, and we, we even work to go back and make sure that the numbers going forward look reasonable. So if you, you know, were suddenly to have seen a spike in an area like Damascus and jobs, we would have said what and gone back and looked at how it was analyzed. So we, we did that for each of these. I should I should add that Dan reminded me that the, actually the source of that is in this building. The source of even what COG uses is, begins here. So just as a point of clarification. Well, I, yeah, I guess I just um, what came to mind was that White Flint, we did the master plan uh, in 2012, but really nothing much happened in four years as far as development. And I wondered if that was reflected in your projections as far as when we'd get to where at what year? This, if I remember correctly, this is uh, round eight. They do subsequent rounds. They essentially take a uh, look at it on a periodic basis. I believe this was round 8.3. I think round 9.0 is uh, about to come out. And I, I think some of the uh, changes that uh, – uh, you're alluding to in terms of white flint, it might be reflected. Whether it would uh, actually move any uh, numbers on this chart would be uh, another question. But I actually think that the chart reflects well what we really do think will happen by 2040 in white flint. So you're absolutely right that when, if you look at white flint compared to Bethesda, for example, Bethesda already <coughs> is showing a whole lot of density there. Uh, but in terms of both jobs and housing. White Flint is not showing nearly that density right now, but going forward, if the master plan actually comes to fruition, it will indeed jump like is shown here. Uh, it's taken a little longer than we had hoped, 
but 2040 is still a lot of years away. So. So, so this is not reflecting what is planned in the master plan and encouraged in the master plan per area. It's just what what you calculate could be built out at this time, these times. Well, no, I would say it does reflect the master plan projections. In other words, the lighter green shows what is today, but the projection for 2040 looks at what we have basically permitted in terms of growth and, and then... So it, it covers the full amount of density that's approvable through the master plan. Yeah, yeah but remember, the, the thing about the COG model is that it takes the local land use plan as like an outer limit. So it assumes that there can't be anything built there that's not legally allowed in the zoning envelope. Mm -hmm. However, the forecast for demand does not assume that something will be built just because there's a plan that says it's allowed. It's an econometric model that, that makes a forecast of how many jobs are going to be created in what sectors of the economy, divides it out across all the locations around the region where those jobs could land, and does similar thing for housing, and forecasts based on the total amount of demand based on what they think economic growth is going to be between now and 2040, based on past trends, et cetera, and make certain assumptions that basically there are the trend line that was in the past, like if if Montgomery County had 18% of the jobs, new jobs created over the last 20 years, <coughs> COG would basically assume that that, unless there's some reason to believe that something different has happened, that probably we'll get a similar amount of the new uh, job growth over the next 20 years. They'll adjust it with various uh, assumptions, but it, it's not magical thinking. It's about economic growth, the total amount of economic growth and what that implies about how many jobs and, and housing units are created, and then using past patterns as well as land use plans to make assumptions about where those jobs and housing units land. Does that make sense? So, yeah. so a lot of people take one piece of that and draw conclusions without seeing how that all works together. It's I just not wanted that to one know if anyone reflects the actual approved what is in a pipeline. You know, you've got the projection for 2040. You have what's current. Well, and I think your comments perhaps lead to exactly what I was going to say next, which is while it does take into account our current master plans, of course, we are continually redoing our master plans. So a master plan that might not call for much growth right now could call for more growth in the future. And one of the things that we are proposing here is that we should really uh, – on these groupings, we, we think that the board needs to set a time frame for how often will we relook at them. Because as you'll see as we go through the next few slides, uh, we are making certain assumptions about which category uh, these different policy areas should be in. But we think you should relook at it at least every four years when you're redoing the subdivision staging, and perhaps every two years, because uh, an area might, in fact, go from what, like suburban to urban or urban to core, depending on how you know, what's happening at that time. So that is one of our recommendations, uh, is that the planning board should clearly indicate a time frame for how often we're going to look at these policies. Well, one of the things I want to just add to that, we might not be the time to discuss it fully, but this is looking at and then associating the classification with what's happening now or what's projected based on a COGS 
viewpoint versus looking at what we're trying to cause to happen with the master plan. Therefore, when we get to talking about the classifications, my concern is not properly classifying something to have us all looking at the area to achieve what we said we wanted to achieve there. So without naming any of the cities or areas, if, if one is classified as suburban or wedge or whatever the new name is, whereas the master plan is calling it corridor city, I think we're, we're not properly focusing on what goals we had been trying to achieve in that area. So I understand this, and that's the clarification I needed, that it's only for yeah. current view. And I think it's fine to make a judgment that, that an area should be moved in a different category because of what is of an objective. But the starting point, I think, as we've discussed before, should be what is the condition today because – the more it's based on what is the real-world condition, the less it's susceptible to criticism that it's all just based on wishful thinking. That's not to say that, and I'm, believe me, I'm with you, that just have one point there are certain areas that should we should just say, we shouldn't apologize for saying this area is not there yet, but we want it to be and we're trying to create a set of rules that don't burden it with, additional exactions because we're trying to make it as easy as possible for it to get there. There's a lot of those kinds of choices were made in the current SSP. Right. Like, for example, the, the impact uh, payments transportation for office in the CBDs are like 50% of what the right. formula would dictate. And it's fine to do those again, but the point is just to start with this, and then if you want to move things into a different category because of what the master plan envisioned or the general plan or what Amy Presley envisioned – that's all fine. Just be explicit about it and, and have a rationale for it that we can defend. Um, don't, don't you think, uh, I mean, you were talking about moving someplace from one category to another, and it seems to me these categories really shouldn't change. If it's Wheaton, it's a, a, a core area and has metro, and whether it's successful in, in building up its density or not, its master plan recommends that it be that. And so to move it from one place to another because it hasn't achieved it yet, I don't think meets the, the master plan goals. Well, I mean, that is a decision that you can make as you go through. We thought that by creating this chart, you know, what it shows is really which areas are already quite dense, which aren't quite as dense as we may have thought, and which in the future we think will grow. And you still can make decisions that based, and you'll see this both on impact taxes and on these category areas, that you really can to try and help achieve some of your goals if you wish, move things around or change an impact tax from the way we've proposed that it be uh, established to promote a particular goal. But, in, but, but we're just trying to... But in a way, a this is like being in school and putting in the dumb class. Uh, <laughs> you know, you're, you're, you move from... From the smart guys, and they put you in the, in the other class because you're slower. And it, I don't think that's the right well, thing to do. Well, as we go through, I think you'll see. I mean, as I said, from the original draft, the, uh, the public hearing draft that went out, we've actually proposed a few sh shifts already um, based on what we heard from both citizens and from planning board members. And you can definitely decide to change it. But what we tried to do with this is really show where we are today and figure out whether there were natural groupings based on data that we could come up with. So. And, and I can I add one thing, which is don't forget about the orange bar, which talks about non-SOV. Non-SOV is somewhat an indication 
that there is um, some existing infrastructure that is allowing folks to get out of their cars. And this, again, is all about infrastructure. It's not about whether an area is, you know, uh, in, in one class or another class. It's really about where is the infrastructure. And I don't so, think that holds true, Gwen. I can only, by experience, use Clarksburg as the example. But if you look at a non-auto driver mode share of above 20 percent, part of that reason may, in fact, be the opposite of what you're saying. Because there is not infrastructure, people give up the fighting of spending two hours getting from there to Bethesda, so they put in for application to work from home on a commuter, you know, telecommuting. Or perhaps people give up and choose a home business or something of that nature. But I can guarantee you there's not the infrastructure there on many levels. So well, some, of the, the, some of the baseline things that are in place, and this is part of the argumentation I want to have for why we need to keep areas labeled as what we intended them to become. Some of the baseline things, such as uh, grid road, grid work, was already in place in places like Germantown, in Rockville. We still need to improve it, but it's there. So it's understandable to shift and say, let's not look at using roads and cars as, as a reason to change something or add or you know, subtract it, to make the big decisions. But in places that are intended to become somewhat self-supporting or to enable more of the auto driver mode share, you know, increase, uh, decrease rather, you've got to provide all of the elements that make that happen. So if you lose jobs, as you have in Clarksburg, and you don't have the road network, the rungs and ladders that are supposed to be there, including M83, leave it for a future discussion, and you don't have transit, and the CCT has been taken off of the list till for all foreseeable time, you can't expect then to use a metric that will create a tax in, in the development in that area that has, that has a benefit or a, a drive to, you know, decrease the auto driver mode share because all the rest of the pieces aren't in place. So that's my fear and, you know, I'll, I'll get off of it and let you explain the rest of your stuff. But my fear is by not properly labeling each of the areas as what we're intending them to become, then we're only looking at them from the application of these factors as we're designing now against what they currently are. Again, you can change the label if you want to. Just be clear about what is your rationale. Okay. And I'm, I'm not saying I, I, I don't agree with you. I'm just saying that there's conditions in the real world, and then you're on really solid ground because nobody can really argue with the data is what the data is. I mean, they'll try to pick at it about the methodology or whether it's uh, – you know, statistically significant or whatever, but, you know, facts are stubborn things. So if you can start there and then but you may be to, trapping it in the place it is now if you're not careful about how you apply or calculate. Okay. Well, we can talk about how you can classify an area differently for other reasons. So if you look at the slide that's up now, what you'll see on the left is the way we had categorized the policy areas uh, in the past today, this is where we are today with urban, suburban, and rural. On the right, we're showing a proposed categorization, and I want to just talk a little bit about the changes. We created a new category, uh, and these are what I would call our urban core 
their down county central business districts and metro station uh, policy areas that have been characterized by high density development and good transit service, including Mark and Metro <coughs> Rail. And so we have five that we've put into that urban core. We've pulled them out of urban and created a new category. We'll talk about names in a few minutes. And that, so that new category includes the Bethesda CBD, Friendship Heights, Silver Spring CBD, Twinbrook, and White Flint. And like, if you go back to the, the graph, what it showed was those were the areas that will experience the greatest, either already are the greatest or will experience the greatest. And what, what is the relationship, what happened to the metro station policy areas? Are they still there? Do they go away or what? Uh, I would, ba I mean, I'll let Eric answer that, I think. Uh, the, for the record, Eric, great functional planning policy. The metro station policy areas still re remain in the urban area, in the urban category, for the most part. So I guess my question is why you wouldn't, I mean, if your approach is only take the most intensively developed, you know, mixed-use, good access places with the highest non-auto driver motor or home-based work trips, then why wouldn't you just take all of the top ones on the left side of the chart? You've only, it seems like you've been pretty conservative about which ones moved into that, what, what we were calling core areas. And you left a whole bunch of metro station policy areas in the, sort of uh, category two, whatever it is you're calling this? Well, again, if you look at the chart, which I've put back up there, I mean, we think we took the five highest. And, may, and uh, if you recall, we're going to be exempting these from LATR. And we think it's okay to do that in these areas, which really do have good transit uh, and density there to support it but we would be a little leery about doing it on some of the others. I mean, it's surprising, for example, that Wheaton CBD doesn't end up in the top five, but if you look at the numbers, it just simply doesn't end up there, as you'll see when we go through some examples. It's getting close, and that's why I was saying we need to keep revisiting this going forward, but, but you, because there's no why, reason to think not? if we get but BRT and Wheaton that you wouldn't want to then you're charging, shift it. You're charging, in a way, Wheaton for not being there because it has a greater impact tax because it's Wheaton, which doesn't, which is contrary to the objective. We're okay, but before get, you even, but before you even get to this argument, okay, I'm what I'm trying to urge you guys to do is before you start getting to, but, but, but we want it to be X, look at the chart. It is X. It already is. It's number, okay, it's not number five, it's number six. Why not put it in? Why isn't Wheaton CBD on the on the list of this core area? Because same, the orange, same with Glenmont. The orange oh, area shows it's the sixth most highest non-auto driver mode share for home-based work trips in the county. Yeah, Dan, for the record, Dan Hardy, Renaissance Planning. I think the goal is to use both the orange line, which is where people that live there now, based on American Community Survey, how the people that live there travel to work. Then we're looking at the green bars, which is today and in 2040, the amount of density, uh, jobs plus people divided by acres. And so what we're trying to do is to find the five places that we've picked stand out in both categories. And the, the thing is, to read what Rose said, is these are the places we're saying there's enough there there to not do any traffic studies for any development that comes in. And so it's not just that Wheaton's a great place because. Oh, thank you. Say that again. Wheaton's a great place. <laughs> but, but if, and, and, Dan, and, and Dan, if you don't, if, 
If, if the name was just a name and it didn't have implications in what you charge it, I'd, I, your argument's fine because it's just theory. But when you, when you're not in a certain category, you get a different coverage in the tax part. Then it makes a big impact because it becomes a negative to an area that needs more incentives rather than less. So that's, that's, to me, all the metro stops on both red line spurs belong in the, in the areas that should have the best, have the best transportation we have. We don't have any better. Um, so, I, you know, and I just again, think that. And again, recall that one of the purposes of this policy is to make sure we have the infrastructure to support the growth. And one of the ways we get that infrastructure is to charge impact taxes so that we can build it. And so, it, I, yes, there is a tension. I'm not going to say there's not between, well, you're not going to get the growth if, you, if you're overcharging people, but we're also not going to get the infrastructure, and we will get too much growth. Otherwise, but, so I'm, it, you know, to me it's a fine line how many areas you Doesn't want the to money go into a big pot and then the government spends it? Yes. I mean, it's not like if you contribute. Well, one of the things we wanted to recommend is that in the area where we're not going to be doing LATR, we wanted the um, impact taxes to stay in that area. So uh, that's not true today. But, if, but if, you, if you have a high tax and nobody develops, then you don't get the money and you don't get the infrastructure. And so you have a metro station and then you don't that's achieve not the thing getting development. I mean, it's that is the goal of the master plan. Well, why don't we continue to walk through the groupings, and then I, I do think, you know, if you, if you choose but, to but, move some of them around, you so can. You know, but we wanted to base it on what we really saw as the reality of the So situation. you know my first impression when I saw this? I see White Flint, everything to the left, you know, Silver Spring, Wheaton, Rockville Town Center, should be urban, should be part of the core. That was my first impression. And, uh, you know, I'm still trying to understand your point, but it's, it's hard not to understand. Uh, I know, but <laughs> I would argue there's a big difference point. in where we are in Grosvenor but, right now but, and where know, we are in Fringe and Pike. Based, based on what we've done as a planning board um, for all the metro areas is recommend high density, high heights, a lot of development. And it seems like all those ought to be treated as the best, just like they were last time, as the best places we have in the county. And, and all our, the least costs or the most impact where we think people are going to go in the future, where we want them to go. Um, and, and this seems to not help that from what I could see. So, so Unless you just, put more in there. Just to finish one thought is again, because the orange line is where people living in those places, how they get to work, the advantage that Friendship Heights, Silver Spring, Bethesda have is that they are in places where also people who work there have a lot of different options of how to get there. And in Wheaton and Glenmont, um, you know, Shady Grove, those are places that don't have those same options for the people who are going to work there. We trails, we have metro. Sure. But just not, not and, and just not quite the same amount. Um, and then the, I think the last, the last thought is that in a place like a, uh, I just lost that last thought, but it, trying to get the, the, the math out here. The math out here first, and that's how we got to where we are. Then, you're right, oh, the last thought was Forest Glen. Forest Glen, there's been a long-standing policy. That's a place that's got great transit service, but we don't want that to develop, and that's in the master plan. So there is, is master plans, how we implement those master plans, and both policy feeds both of those. So that's where we were saying is that we think, even though there's been a long-standing policy of saying all metropolitan <coughs> policy areas are the same, that when you look at how we're planning for them, and again, in Wheaton, we're planning for more growth, but it is not planned to become anywhere near the level of yeah. the five well, places we've picked. That's the math. I now just we'll think start. we're getting stuck on two different problems. 
One problem is, for lack of a better word, the Clarksburg problem, which is an area which is not on the not at the left; it's over on the right here. Okay, and Amy's point is, we want it to be moved to the left, and shouldn't we try to do something to encourage that to happen? And that's an yeah, that's an important with Germantown. Okay, Center, right, and that's corridor city, corridor city, corridor city. Okay, and that's all fine, but that's a different problem than the one we're talking about with Wheaton. Wheaton is performing. It's number six. It's right, way up there. I don't care what that job's housing density there is. The orange, orange, uh, polygon shows that it is succeeding. Whatever the access issue is with jobs housing density, for whatever reason, lots and lots of people who live in Wheaton CBD get to work by some means other than jumping in the car by themselves. So I think that's what I, I'm trying to get everybody to see these. It's not that it's, it's uh, I'm not saying what you're what you're identifying is not a problem. I'm just saying it's different. It's different, but the the underlying concept that the shift that we're making is now solely driven by the orange line is the problem underlying what I'm saying. That's right. That's a consistent problem. It's it's not time. that I think we should have continued to use TPAR and stuff like that. Right. It's that it's that you have to be able to account for the encouragement of non-automotor drive share along with all the other things that are needed to make it work. Like you said, we don't know why that's working in the, in, in Wheaton. It's, it just is. If, if part of it is because people are stuck or they can't find jobs or they're, you know, who, who knows what the reason, then it's false for us to keep feeding only that. We have to... We have to be looking at achieving what we said we'd achieve with master plans. And the one thing I'll say right now, and I know it's probably going to be like totally rejected, my preference would be to label everything exactly as it's labeled in the plan that we approved it. And if something falls into urban because of that, it's urban. And that's what we want to encourage. If something is corridor city, it's corridor city. If something is rural, it's rural. And then come up with not a hocus pocus that confuses us because the math doesn't do what we want it to do for some reason, but to say what do we need to collect to forward our goals of, of increasing the non-automotor drive share and providing more houses and so forth, and then figure out what that cost should be for development in each one of those areas well, and I just say I, that's what I it is. I mentioned to you earlier that there may be a, a way to address this for Clarksburg that is uh, different. It's just orthogonal to this uh, kind of typology, that it's uh, just a different way of dealing with it, uh, namely – uh, unified mobility study a la White Oak. So you could take the Clarksburg area and you could say just we should recommend that the county council put in the work program for DOT a study of transportation needs for Clark, Clark, Clarksburg area and figure out what those projects are, figure out what is the reasonable share of the public's contribution, reasonable share of the private sector's contribution, take the private contribution divided by the number of trips that are projected to be generated by future development, and then everybody can do a pay a pro rata share. And ideally, You're still talking about isolating that pro rata share to that area, which will actually in some ways disincentivize. What I'm talking about is spreading out the cost with a factor based on the area so that everybody's paying, they know what you're paying. You, you, don't, don't do the traffic study. Just you go in and if you're in the urban area. Well, just area, like White Oak, you know, it was in lieu of LATR. So it's, 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 uh, you know, it could be a number that's above or below what the LATR numbers would be, but the point is, you know ahead of time 
what your per trip payment's going to be. And you also know ahead of time, the public knows, what are all the projects we're talking about. So instead of this ad hoc thing with project by project, you say, oh, could you please add a turning lane at this intersection because that's going to help you get below 1,500 CLV or at 1,505 and you need to be below 1,500. So add that turn lane and you, you pass the test and you can move on. Instead, it looks at, it would look at it comprehensively and I think get at what you're saying, which is to make sure the whole thing adds up to a fully baked cake once it's, once it's done. I think you can do that as a separate approach. And we did do it with White Oak. We did something that was a little different, but, but also uh, sort of a one-off in White Flint. And there's no, I, as the more I think about it. And look what's happened. The more I think. It's gone forward in White Flint. Well, not because, I don't think anybody's suggesting things are stopping in White Flint because of the development impact tax. They, it's not going forward because there's no market. But there's nothing in principle wrong with it. And uh, the more I think about it, the more I think that the way to address your issue is to take Clarksburg as like, you know, the White Oak type approach to, to study that area comprehensively and then chop up the payments by trip. I, I think it, you know, the suggestion goes beyond that. I mean, we go through this complicated mechanics, which you don't know where you are until you get to the end, and then you apply it and say, oops, the, the result didn't come out the way we wanted it to, even though the principles we've applied have been, you know, thoughtfully done. And and so whether it's the council that they did in 2007, where they applied a whole bunch of factors to make it come out the way they thought it ought to come out, or or we make some modifications to make it come out, what I think Amy is suggesting is we have a, uh, a, a number, and everybody knows what they're paying, and it's you don't have to do a black box. It's just it's just a number, and and the number is has can you know can do some research to get what the number. I don't know if we can do that for this well, time around, but it sure would simplify. I don't I, want to I put you all out of a job. Of this process. I think all this transportation <laughs> modeling is is. Uh, I, I just put me down for non-believer. Yes. <laughs> To say the least. But, like I said months ago when we started this, we, you can't just ask people to hold hands and jump into the abyss, right? We, whatever you think of it, people want to know what is the basis for saying that transportation will work and extraordinary place and that we're making sure that the <coughs> improvements, some of them are not really even improving the situation, but that's another issue, that the um, whatever infrastructure is provided is adequate to the task of dealing with development in a particular area. And so we're in the game of trying to calibrate it to projects and geog geographic areas on a, on a map and other uh, policy choices about where we want to encourage or discourage development. In my perfect world, we do it like they do in D.C., where the public sector does some of these studies, and they have no regulatory implications whatsoever. They do a, they might use Synchro or some of the, or HCM or whatever, and they look at traffic operations, but it has n nothing to do with whether your project gets approved or not. Right. They look at it for their information and what the public sector wants to do to some of the roads or other transportation infrastructure. But if we propose that, we will be left out of the room. So, 
Right. So, but maybe that's because we don't propose the other piece of that, which is how we then apply the monies that are collected to fulfill the things that were approved in the master plans, which is what we said was enough to be adequate and, and sufficient that, for a space. And that's instead, over time, we, wa- it erodes, and things like M83 go out, go away, and people people complain and you know protest against it. Other little minor changes don't get done. Road clubs don't get monitored, and people don't provide the road widenings they're supposed to when they are for an area such as Clarksburg, for something like Germantown. I haven't kept track with what road projects are falling behind, but that's really the issue because there are some roads needed, and then there's a lot of transit needed. Uh-huh. And if we say that as a county we want to make things happen quicker, CCT included, new bus routes, then let's identify a number for that and say every project needs to contribute X amount, period. It's not about the trips they generate. Well, that, it's about the money we need to the, have a, an adequate system for the county. And that's why I came up with the White Oak brainstorm about the pro rata share, because that was an effort to try to do that. I would but say I, it's uh, – I think it applies to more than Clarksburg? Well, it was, that idea was inspired by the fine work that Mr. Gray and his associates did for the last SSP on TPAR, which was based on the same kind of idea. So great minds think alike, but uh, the fact is that um, in most parts of the county, you're going to get people who insist that you have to look at, you know, not just the trees in the forest, but the leaf on the on the tree and every intersection and uh, sub- and subject applications to But we have proof to show them that that doesn't work. It hasn't worked. We were talking about critical lane volume, about stuff that happens between two traffic lights. It's, it's not ex- – to the people who are experiencing it, that's what they laugh at, that you're telling me that this intersection is okay when it's really not because maybe I, you know, maybe I took – Half an hour to get through two but lights. But again, but we are proposing in this policy better ways of looking right. at the I'm, real I'm just suggesting on that, the ground. that what, what Casey's saying, that, that people will laugh us out of the room essentially, I, I think maybe we have a chance that they won't. Because we'll say that wasn't working, it was broken. So here's a way to fix it. It's not about the number of trips. It's about accomplishing what we said was needed in all of the areas to create the right infrastructure. Therefore, everyone's got to pay towards it. Well, Everyone. And, the, and I think the White Oak approach like I said, I think it's useful for Clarksville. I'm not sure it really works for places that include like a central business district because, you know, you have an issue of uh, Bethesda Chevy Chase excluding the Bethesda CBD. That's a lot of stuff going on in that. There's a lot of different kinds of roads. There's a lot of different kinds of neighborhoods. It's not real. It doesn't lend itself to coherent, comprehensive, you know, area-wide. Uh, you just hit the nail on the head, though, because in Bethesda what we're talking about is inadequacy of parks. And so we designed an entire system that there can be, a, if you want this, this is going to be, we haven't settled on the rate yet, but there's going to be a rate, and that's how you're going to get additional density there, because guess what? They have roads. They've got transit. They've got amenities. I'd love to live in Bethesda, and I'm sure other people would too, and they're also members of Montgomery County. So, well, some people would love to live in Wheaton. Some people would love <laughs> to live you. wherever they live. And we designed those areas for people to have the choice, and we said these different areas through these master plans will work if they get this, 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 and this. But then we don't do anything to tie the, the SSP and everything else to okay. it to make it happen. Well, Here's we've talked rest. about uh, the fact that the planning department may want to push harder on our CIP analysis because we do look at our master plans and which things in the CIP or which things from our master plans have been included in CIP, but we have not really in the past pushed real hard about that. And uh, even on our urban areas that are, you know, we look at our urban areas as emerging transit-oriented development. And um, 
and where premium transit service is supposed to happen, and we include in that the Corridor Cities Transit Way, which, as you and I both know, has been in, on the books for a very long time without actually happening. Uh, so on our urban areas, and again, you would still be subject to an LATR test here, but, in our, but other tests have changed, as you'll see. But we, the differences between where we are today and our newly defined urban areas uh, are, are actually several, uh, and even some changes from the draft. So we moved Germantown Town Center and the R&D Village from suburban to the urban category. And we also created four new uh, urban areas, so to speak, and that includes Clarksburg Town Center, uh, Chevy Chase Lake, Long Branch, and Tacoma Langley. So uh, we broke out the town center per se from Clarksburg. Clarksburg is still Clarksburg under Village. suburban. I mean, wouldn't you consider Clarksburg Village part of the town center? Well, I, I, I wouldn't really. I mean, in that I think what we're really trying to do is accentuate the growth in the Clarksburg Town right. Center. Right. And uh, so I would not. No, I would Rose, not. Rose, one of the... It's statements made very early in this whole process was that the rates that we were using as adjusted by CPI were felt to be fine, right? I think somebody said that the, the numbers that we had pre we were not proposing an increase in the, other than what's the CPI. Is that correct? No, what, what we've done currently is... Well, not what you did currently, but what oh. we said when we started. So I think from a development perspective, the goal... While you can do different measures, however you come up with a formula, ultimately people want to pay what they've paid before as adjusted by CPI for the areas in which they are. And, and what this ended up doing when you came out the end was that some areas got a big hit and some areas just because of the mechanics got a big reduction, which didn't necessarily relate to master plan policy for that area. So if you could somehow get this to well, come out again, the end the way we expected it, I don't care about the methodology. But it's I important do. to remember that even in 2007 when we first were, when we were calculating impact taxes then, uh, we once again followed real data. We figured out what did the CIP call for, what was it going to cost, what should people pay. And the council, and I assume the planning board, but I don't recall, both said, well, that's great on the real data, but it doesn't get us to the goals we want. So they adjusted all those factors. What we're doing here, and, and it will be presented later, uh, is the same thing. The CIP that was done in 2007, well, we're well past 2007, but we've only been applying a kind of a, a cost of living sort of increase to it. Right. And so now we think we should look at the current CIP and basically redo that exercise. And you're absolutely right that the numbers come out higher. But that doesn't mean that as policymakers you can't decide to adjust them as was done in 2007. But we do think that the impact tax should be based on where we are today, not where we were in 2007. Well, what, what about accounting for the impact taxes that were paid initially for development build-out? So once again, using Clarksburg, those impact taxes were way up. And there was no evidence of those being used for the roads and improvements. So if we go to an idea like you're suggesting where it's more like um, the, the area, uh, what was the term you called it? You said? Unified. Yeah, unified. Look, if we do that, is that going to bump that up again? And in other words, like double penalize 
the, the now one developer who is developing out that area? Look, I, I, the short answer is you can recommend whatever you want on the what the numbers should be or what a reasonable private versus public share of new development is. I'd point out to you that if you bought in Clarksburg, as you did earlier, it doesn't seem fair to whack down the rate for everybody who comes in the door later because you paid and they didn't, right? right. But, you know, you can make your own judgment about that. I would just say it's a little bit separate question. Yeah. I did do a back of the envelope while we were messing around with the, uh, uh, what we were talking about. One of the one of the Clarksburg exercises we were doing, and I was, my mind was uh, drifting, so I did a little back of the envelope based on the number of housing units approved in the Clarksburg plan in 94, and the, I multiplied that times the Im higher impact tax rate. It doesn't come, it doesn't amount to a hill of beans. I mean, people think, oh my God, I paid for M83, I paid for all these roads with this higher impact tax. Not even, not even close. That's oh, no, but it got nothing. So my point in talking about flat rates is that it's, it's less microscopic on what is this one little area going to pay and what's that going to pay when we're an entire county and each thing impacts the other, even though you may not see the nexus as much. I think well, we're all I, part of a... I actually am not particularly hung up on some places should pay more and some places should pay less. I think it's more important what they pay for, and we'll get to that, I'm sure. Well, wouldn't you agree more or less would depend on what's going on with the market with an area? So when you have an urban classification, the reason it's urban is that it has all these other services. Therefore, it's going to be more highly desirable by some, and there are going to be amenities they want, so there's going to be... Uh, an ability to support higher rates for rentals, higher rates for purchase, and so on. And as you move out to something in the suburban area, you're not going to necessarily have as many amenities. I mean, the things may be different. The stock is different. If you if you charge the same for the outlying areas as the urban, then you're actually penalizing the ones in their, you know, less ability. Tell, tell me if I'm wrong. Norman, well, I just less think ability it depends to profit. on what your theory is. I mean, the, the conventional... Uh, planning school theory these days is that the places that are close in and intensively developed should pay less because they're because the geographical you know compactness makes them more efficient to serve with public infrastructure so but yet now on that point then what you'd be saying is let's forget about all the ones that we have approved because we've approved all kinds of development and some of it is in outlying areas and it still requires certain things so now just because the global perspective is changing on what's more desirable doesn't mean that we get to flush the rest of the communities. It has nothing to do with what is desirable and what's not desirable. It has to do with paying for the externalities that you impose on the public. And I suggest that we all impose on each other a different level of them, whether it's a rural or suburban, and we need a lot of those things all together to make the county work the way it does. So perhaps a, a unified type of payment is a better approach. One thing I wanted to point out is in terms of uh, your concern, Commissioner Presley, about the corridor cities. If you look at this new configuration, and I already pointed out that we created a Clarksburg Town Center policy area, we uh, moved Gaithersburg City from suburban to the urban, uh, and we added the Germantown Town Center as well uh, and the R&D Village. So we were conscious of kind of what you were saying, that you know we, we have always advocated for a strong corridor city approach and we, you know, put CR zoning in Germantown and then, and so we do agree that, uh, that we think those should now be grouped under urban, uh, and then the suburban therefore simply got smaller. Damascus we had classified in suburban, but we moved it into rural since the draft came out. Rose, so. what, um, 
is there a, is there um, a reason that we created four categories and gave different sort of priorities that we couldn't well, trying to keep them the way they were, whether even if you name them differently, but they don't lose their status? I think that's part of the problem we're well, having. Well, yes, I think there really was. I mean, this this subdivision staging policy was really an attempt to get away from such an autocentric focus of, of how to group areas and really look more at transit and how you could then look at various transit um, measures to... You know, I, I hear you say that, but then Wheaton's not in the category um, uh, of... White, uh, not White Flint, um, uh, the other metro station areas are not. And again, uh, when we Shady did, Grove, where they're creating this the whole huge village at a cost of gazillion dollars for the government to move their facilities is not in there. <clears throat> and, you know, it was before. It was part of that transportation. So, so you haven't taken the metro areas and treated them the same. But again, yes, White Oak will become, I think, uh, you know, an area, but it's not today. It has really no transit accessibility whatsoever today. That's one of White Oak. Yeah, but what, Shady Grove does, and um, uh, Glenmont and uh, Wheaton, I mean, all those are metro stops that should have concentration of population and businesses that we planned in each of those master plans. So you're saying take any of them near a metro station and put them... Should be the same as the to top five. I, I just don't see why they're not. Yeah, all the way up to Shady Grove. We don't have any better transportation in the county. Uh, jump in while Tom, go, go bring up the scatter plot that Tom was requesting. I think one thing it is important to remember is we are talking about a classification, partly to say what are the best of the best. As Eric mentioned before, there still are metro station policy areas. So when we get to local area and policy tests and so forth next week, there's, we're, we're not saying get rid of the metro station policy areas. We're but, saying for the purpose of exempting traffic impact studies entirely, the, these five areas are the ones that, that fit that new tell me, tell me why you wouldn't pick all the metro areas. Because the level of complexity and density to support not just transit, but the mixed use and density for walking and biking and short trips and additional transit, the challenge of the private sector building things one by one versus the public sector looking at things as a whole. Well, I'm not the only one who disagrees with them. I mean, honestly, all the uh, metro center areas should be okay, the core. Yeah, before uh, I basically, I think you're on, I think we're in agreement here and not in agreement with these guys, but before we jump to that conclusion, <laughs> let me ask you to remind us what is the regulatory implication of being a metro station policy area but not one of these core areas? In other words, what transportation plus apply or do not apply if you are in the metro station policy area? Right. So basically, if you are in a metro station policy area but not one of these five areas, you still have to do a LATR traffic impact study test like we do today. It's still an 1800 CLV, so we're not changing that at all. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Um, and uh, you do – it does affect the impact tax Right. That's and I think it is that's also a big that's thing. that's it is a big thing. All three of these things are are pieces that go together. The policy area test, which we're changing to make just about transit, the uh LETR test, which there are a lot of leaves in the trees to talk about next week and a lot of people that are interested in those leaves in the trees, and the impact taxes, those all three things go together. 
Um, but they are all still independent. And so those, the, the map that's there, the graphic that's in front of you now, just shows that as we looked at the information about density and how people get to work from where they live, we saw there's five places in the county that are, that are very different from all the other places, including other metro station areas. And that's, you know, it's. Okay, it's, well, here's where I think, uh, for, I think there's two parts of our disagreement. One is, on this plot, you, you seem to be saying, only the places that are high on both the X and Y axis should qualify. My argument is that at a minimum, the places that are far out on the X axis ought to, ought to apply because they perform at a comparable level, whatever the land use situation is. And That's again, my argument. Good. And they perform at that level for people driving, going to work from those places. If we do, and this is one of the things we have to talk about, about the math and the art. If we were to say, let's do all the metro station areas and make them all in the same category for taxes, we really should go back and recalculate the taxes, in which case they would kind of merge together. Because it's not just from that perspective, it's not just how you get to work, it's how you travel other times a day. The taxes are about building capacity and bike paths and trails and things like that, not just the journey to work. So what we'd probably end up doing, if we did that math, is to come back and say, Wheaton, Glenmont, Shady Grove, those taxes will come down. What we have right now for Bethesda, Friendship Heights, Silver Spring, those would go up. And that's, that's okay. But it's just, or the third possibility is we say, we like the math you did here, let's keep those tax rates based on just these five really outstanding areas, and then let's just kind of by policy say we'd like to apply those to the other areas as well in which case we don't go back and, and balance to, to get a new average of all those areas. That's, that's, the, you know, the, that, that's where we go from the math to the, to the art. The methodology to match the result rather than have the methodology create a number and then, and then decide to change it. <clears throat> that's why I think with a, a clear and simple flat rate that is enough to support the things that we say in the master plan are sufficient for infrastructure, transit, and all the things we identified. Split it up, dole it out, and start building. Well, like I said, I think I think that's good and well for areas like White Oak, maybe Clarksburg. I don't. I'm not. Why <laughs> it wouldn't be good for another area? I just want to understand. Maybe I'm not communicating the the simplicity. Well, but that's the Chevy Chase. If you include the CBD as well as basically that's the Chevy Chase inside the Beltway, so everything basically from like. You know, Connecticut Avenue area all the way to the Potomac River. Okay, the problem is that if you you really are lumping together a lot of very dissimilar places, Carter Rock, you know, that's quite different from a land use typology perspective than Chevy Chase Lake, which is different than downtown Bethesda, which is different than the area, you know, of. Uh, you know, like off of uh, River Road, north of, of Westbard, like near the Holton Arms School. I mean, these are these places are are wildly different. They have transportation needs that are only have a very loose relationship with each other. It's not coherent. Clarksburg, I think, is sort of a coherent, you know, from a transportation point of view. That area, not just the town center, but the area around it, makes sense together because a lot of the Land use is, I mean, it's not identical. There is an area in the center there which is more intensively developed, but it's, 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 uh, it's more coherent to analyze as a, as a whole. Just like White Oak, even though there's a lot of things going on in that White Oak area, 
really everybody is coming up and down two major arterial corridors. There's two major BRT lines that are planned. We have a very good idea what the future redevelopment prospects are and where they're exactly where they're located. You can get your arms around that to analyze it and and figure it out as a as a whole. I'm not sure that's really true of a lot of some of these other places where there's a lot of moving parts and they don't necessarily sync up together. But that's because I'm suggesting that we look at the county as a whole for the reasons you're stating. Some of those areas are always going to be dissimilar. And they would never have enough if you just on their own to produce anything for them, especially with the – this is a nominal amount we're talking about. You know, none of this – if you collected impact tax for, you know, 50 more years in Clarksburg, you couldn't pay for the M83. So it's not – it's not really about that. It was just about a way to measure how the contribution would come forth for each area based on impact. But if we look at what we want to achieve as a county and we say we've got, like, five top uh, transit projects, we need the increase in bus lines from multiple areas to other areas, we set a number. We should set an annual number. What is the impact tax and what, therefore, is the division of that percentage-wise for a project in this area, that area, whether it's corridor, whether it's urban, suburban, and just – this is the amount we're going to collect. Well, whatever, the the, whatever the merits of that are, and I think they're considerable, um, they are not going to get to the issues of the leaf people, meaning the people that are interested, not uh, remember the leaf, the tree, and the forest? The leaf people. I used to work for this uh, law, law partner at a law firm who uh, used to work at the FCC tariff division, and she talked about the leaf people. And they're like the people that are so focused on leaf they can't see the tree and much less. So the leaf people are the people who are very focused on, oh, my God, what is happening at this intersection? I'm trying to make a left turn here in the morning, and it takes me three light cycles. And that, for them, is transportation planning. That's it. They don't care what's going on with BRT or even uh, something like M83. They're focused on... This is my access point to the road I use to get to work, and you need to. And today, that's not that. being solved for the leaf people. Okay. Tomorrow, it won't be solved for the leaf people either because they don't see the picture. So those people are always going to be leaf people. And I'm saying that you can you can say to a leaf person, that didn't change in 10 years. And guess what? It's not going to change. We're going to have an easier way to calculate it. You'll know that these funds are going into the county coffers to provide for those projects that are identified in your master plan. And if it's not happening soon enough, by all means, go to the county council. By all means, go to the executive and say, you've got money in here for this. Why isn't my project coming through? And then tie it back to the CIP, because that's what we've been failing to do since before I was born you know, to to make the things of the master plan happen. And the things of the master plan are the things we said were required as adequate public facilities to support the development. And the reason everybody of all kinds, even branch people and trunk people are upset, is that they're not getting delivered what they hear is going to be delivered to them to make an area work. So I believe we have enough ammunition to tell leaf people that this is better than the current failure. Well... I think that the leaf people are going to strongly object to a flat rate. That's all I can tell you. I mean, look, if you want to, if we can write, I'm happy to write a cover letter over this set of recommendations that says, you know what, the planning board kind of thinks that maybe the best thing would be to just set a flat rate and be done with it. But, you know, we recognize that. that I think it would be I do. I bet, I bet if anyone in council is listening, they would be relieved. Because who wants to defend TPAR or Ladder or CLV? 
No one's been able to do it. I used to be afraid to ask questions about it when I first got on the board because everyone else seemed to know. Ooh, Tea Party. It's a secret formula. I thought maybe I'm too stupid to understand it. But the re- now I know that I was smarter at the first than I am now. I knew I didn't understand it because it can't be understood. Okay. Tell you what. Well, uh, uh, we could, let's put something like that in the transmission letter that says we question whether or not this is really worth the, all the aggravation. But, Let's not send them that as a recommendation because it'll be sent back, and guess what? Then you won't be on the planning board anymore to have any influence over what the ultimate. I'll be I'll be on the other side testifying, but I'm suggesting that it's not not in a comical way that we actually suggest that here can be a way to achieve that based on the, the, the blunt instruments we have now. We'll do this, and we'll tell you this. But the better way is this, and here's how you could do it. Here's the construct. That's one, two, three, four. In are you in on that? Sure. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, and in the interest of su- following su- Casey's suggestion, what happens if you take all those right dots and put them in the same category versus the right. vertical ones? What happens? Do we end up with the metro areas in the in the urban category, whatever the top category is? Is that what happens? I'm sorry, I didn't hear your question. Well, what Casey was saying that we we. We counted both axes where we determined who was going to get in the top category. And he was suggesting that the bottom line, the one way out, there, there are a whole bunch of those there. And if they were counted in the top category, does that, does that get, uh, into all the metro areas, policy areas? Cause that might, that might be a simple solution. And it's just a change in the selection. Yeah, and I know the short answer is no, but I don't know what all the details are. If you go back. Yeah. And, uh, I don't think – I'm not sure it would get all of your uh, metro station policy areas if you went to, like, the second uh, level of uh, of dots on that uh, plot. We'd, we would have to uh, – we'd have to look at it. I think, I think in, terms of the, in terms of our work or, or what you – you know, the message you send us away with um, – it sounds like the board is, um, well, part of the board anyway, is in favor of doing just that, uh, at least acknowledging that the that the metro station policy areas are the same as, similar to what we have now, I guess, is a short answer. Uh, you know, one, one thing I do want to point out here is that um, in the case, in the case of Bethesda, for example, and and, and in terms of what these numbers, as we crank them out, uh, do for uh, uh, an area like Bethesda with a higher rate uh, and how it relates to our master plan, I know the rates are higher. I know there's incentives for, for uh, uh, parking reduction. And, uh, but I, I just want to, you know, I want to note that one of the recommendations we have in here is to keep that for those five areas, is to keep that money in those areas. So that is, I think, consistent with what our master plans are calling for in those areas. That Fifty percent. And, we're, and, you know, in Bethesda, for example, we're getting all this residential, and we really want office because we're, it's not in balance and we want jobs there, especially if hopefully Marriott moves to Bethesda. And we're going to tax them. Fifty percent more than yesterday, uh, you know the, no, the the result didn't come out the way I thought it would, which is 
more consistent with where we are versus 50 percent higher? Well, the result didn't come out the way you thought it. You know, the impact tax is not really part of the subdivision staging policy, but really we were asked to look at impact taxes because we hadn't recalculated them since 2007. As I said, when they were calculated in 2007, they came out very differently from what ended up being applied because... Because somebody thought about it and said, you know, these are too high. But you do need to have a basis to start from. But we have a... 2007 is a basis. Why can't we just keep working from that until the council changes? Talk about the... the fee amount right now because we got to get through the the general categorization first. Otherwise... Casey, the, one of the things we talked about when we started this whole process was we understand and agree on the sort of overlying principles, but we didn't know what the implications of that are. So now that we see the implications, I don't think we just say, oh, these principles sound great, and however they come out, they come out. I, we got to okay. make adjustments in these principles. That's fine, but get a better result. But the, you can't be so result-oriented in your decision making that you say, as as you've done a couple times today, well, I just want it to come out to be the number that I like because that's not defensible. It's just not. You can't go explain that to anyone. You can't explain it to the county council. You can't even explain it to real estate person who says, I'm trying to develop an explanation. Why is this my fee? Even no, if I, it's a let me give you an analogy. I, I, we're on office buildings, and there's a common area maintenance charge. And every year it's $6 a square foot or $8 a square foot. If you try to re- increase that to $12 a square foot because whatever factors are, the tenants will scream bloody murder. But if you go up by CPI every year, everybody says, well, that's normal. Costs go up, labor goes up. That's what the world is facing on the charges now. When you make a big jump like this because right. you change your methodology, the world didn't change yesterday. It, it changed because we're changing the methodology. And, and I'm uh, saying if you get to be more reasonable, you can get buy-in. And some landlords offer triple net leases. Others, you know, it's... Negotiated, I, and it's I based on uh, what real costs are in the real world. I think using Commissioner Dreyfus's analogy, you basically use it against me. <laughs> no, so no, smart. you basically are what we're trying to say. In your analogy, is when you tell that tenant you're going to be going up by some amount, you can explain the actual costs are. X, but I'm actually going to charge you Y because I think that's reasonable. What we're talking about here is the X. We're not saying that you have to go up by the X. We're saying you need to know what the X is. And I'm only suggesting then, the X is at the highest level, not at the local level. And then, and that's fine, but what, but I, what I'm trying to say for Commissioner Dreyfus is we aren't absolutely saying you have to charge the X. We're just saying you have to know what it is, and then you can decide what's reasonable to charge. Yeah, just as they did in 2007. In 2007, they didn't pretend that the cost was only 50% of the cost. They said, this is the cost, but we think that it's important to not overburden. For the last nine years, they've continued that philosophy. And we can continue it today. We can still continue it just based on a new X because we have a much better idea of what the X should be today. But before we start arguing about whether X is too much, we need to figure out what X is. And to do that, you got to figure out which category you're going to put people in. So here's my proposal to you. If you are a metro station policy area and you perform at 45% or above NADMS for home-based work trips, then you 
get the benefit of the of the core uh, test waiver. Why not all metropolitan policy? Because some places like Forest Glen have been uh, intentionally not developed in a intensive way. There, you know, if you read the Forest Glen master plan today, it says this place is not supposed to be a big mixed use blowout. This is supposed to be preserved basically as a very low intensity residential neighborhood, notwithstanding the fact that there's a metro station right in the middle of it. If and when that changes with the new master plan, then you can bump it into another category. And presumably, if and when that happens, you have a basis for saying we think that the NADMS number is going to change. But is that the only one that gets thrown out, or are there some other? I mean, if you tell me which ones are thrown out, I can make a decision. Okay, before you, before you jump to any conclusions about that, remember, you have to understand what's the implication of not being in that category, but being in the urban category, or the corridor category, as it was being called. Some of them, if they're an urban road code area, the proposal was to say mitigation first. Now that's another concept we need to understand. Every, the board needs to understand it before you start leaping to conclusions about how this all fits together. And I'm not sure I understand it completely, so I want to hear your explanation of, you know, in effect it's almost like there's two subcategories. So why don't you explain what you had in mind with that? Well, then two thoughts. One is I th where I think you're also maybe headed is that we sort of do a straw where we are today and then maybe come back after those things that are coming up next week on LATR and policy area. That's part of the picture as well because right now the focus is on impact taxes. Um, and just to get to the point that was that if you're in an urban road code area uh, and not in a core area, in a, in, in a core area you would not do a traffic impact study at all. In a any other area that was a metro, that was an urban road code area, you would do a study, but then it would be uh, instead of payment in lieu as the last of construction as the last uh, option, that would be the default. You would do the study, find out what a reasonable solution was, and then the private sector would pay for the LATR improvement for the public sector to implement it. Again, because that urban area is the next level of, there are places that are complex, there's places that need multimodal, you don't want one applicant to come build something and another applicant three years later to come back and rebuild it. Um, because of the complexity. And I just, uh, I mean. Uh, so paying uh, in towards the pool that would take care of the, the yeah. infrastructure that was already identified, the area to make it work. Right. In, one thing that just leapt to my mind when we were talking about the, the areas that have that high orange bar section, reducing the payment just because that has been achieved doesn't take care of the transit we're putting in place. We're eventually not going to have the money to take care of that either. We could, this, this whole thing generates such a small portion of, of revenue that it should all go into a pot and should be generated every year regardless of whether that's up and down. How it's directed should be based on where that orange line is. But the collection of the funds should not be based on the orange line at all. It should be based on countywide what we're trying to achieve across the county and, and, and then apply it to policy areas, which is another reason to say keep charging for it. Just, just appropriately factor the, the rate in a new area, in an urban area. So every year this is what you have to pay towards transit and mobility payment. You the have only your issue you would still probably run into is, I mean, we've tried PAYGO in the past, which is kind of what you're advocating for. No, it's and a new thing. that hasn't really worked it's not either. Gonna be, it's not going to be based on trips. It's going to be based on the county total number that we're trying to generate for the year or what we say a single family or a, a multi-family or a commercial should pay towards the benefit of the entire community 
for transit and for mobility, and it's just a flat rate payment, and it's factored by whatever area you're in, and then you know for whatever period that's set, if it's for two years, that's what you're going to pay. Calculate it in. Don't do the test. You're going to pay it because everybody needs transit. Unless, you, unless you've done a unified study, like I was talking about with White Oak, I think it's a bridge too far because then you're asking people to take it on faith that the countywide number is adequate and will be applied to the area problem. So I would just say I can't get behind that, not because you think it's currently being applied to the area problems. Honestly, is can anyone give an example of where it's being applied to the area problems? No, I think it. So that's why I'm 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 suggesting that if the public knows, first of all, the buy-in for a master plan happens with we have a public hearing and the staff identifies what's really needed to support what we say as a county we want developed there and the goals that we have. So that's the chance that the public sees it and experiences it says yes. Now it should be collectively the county's responsibility to implement those things in keeping with the development. So there's a price for those things. We know we should be able to tally on infrastructure that we've identified in master plans what our number is this year. And our, our no, oops, our number went up by two billion. You know, let's. Um, so if I can I, ask, I agree with you, but it's in the plan. That's my point. Uh, it's not what, hocus what, pocus. In, in Casey's suggestion of the 45 percent, I can't think of another metro station that's like Far, uh, Forest Glen. So would all the others, other than Forest Glen, fall into this core if you apply Casey's no. test? Yeah, it, with Casey's test, it would be Grosvenor would fall into it, uh, Wheaton CBD would fall into it, uh, Rockville Town Center, which is impact tax, but not a nothing to do with uh, traffic studies for the for uh, and Rockville board. and Rockville Town Center, right? Would fall into it, Gaithersburg and Shady Grove. Uh, Glenmont would not. Uh, Glenmont would not. Right, so it's down under forty percent. And where is Shady Road? You know. Well, and remember, what we're talking. You know, I would. I could make an argument that all of them should be in. But well, I can accept a Forest Glen out. If you got another one, you can suggest. Okay. Well, here's the thing. Number. Here's the thing about about Glenmont. Remember, this is not about let's hit Glenmont with the full force of uh, all kinds of new transportation exactions, especially if we're talking about what. Uh, Dan was just describing that their proposal is like a mitigation first idea for some of these uh, areas. It's uh, different a little bit like Shady Grove or Glenmont being at the end of the line because the context of the whole neighborhood does have more suburban pattern of roads. So uh, it's not like there's a fully developed central business district where you say, you know what, it'll sort itself out because mix of uses and people live and work in basically the same place. I would dearly love it if Glenmont could get to that point, but it's it, it's it's not there. And I think that it's enough to say Wheaton, Grosvenor, those places do kind of function. Uh, the county's invested a lot of money in Shady Grove. It hasn't happened yet, but it's well. Again, you can take you could you could argue Shady Grove shouldn't should not be treated like a non-metro served area without saying it should be exempt from every traffic test, right? It's not, it's not like you have to, it's not like one or the other. And in fact, that's what they're proposing. It's like, if you're not in the top five, or as we're talking about now, top eight or six or seven, it doesn't mean you're treated like you were in, uh, Dickerson. Right. 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 There was a, um, we, I, I was here yesterday for an example, and Wheaton, because of where it was, had a, a surcharge that was not applied to Bethesda under the 
transit tester. It, it was. It was. A, it was just because of what category it was in. It right, had we're an going extra to get charge. to that example. It's here in the slides, and one of the things we said is because Wheaton was closed. Yes, it was subject to a 25 percent uh, impact tax additional payment, but we said that that Wheaton actually is very close to. Um, being transit adequate, and that if the board wanted to, we could agree that we should not charge them the full 25%, maybe 7%, you know. It, or nothing. Oh, well, if you could, but I would argue if you're going to do that, then you should kick it into the core where they wouldn't have, be subject Wh to the Which is where we're talking about doing with a bunch of them, kick them right. in the core so that they don't have a disincentive to develop. So who's going to pay for the transit? And this is the same point we were talking about this morning with says there's no free lunch. Somebody's got to pay. And it, it obviously the public is. And again, yeah. remember that what we're going to propose if we yeah. get to it is we're saying get rid of the, the road test and charge that additional impact tax based on a transit accessibility yes. test, which is one of the things we But again, we those, that's going to penalize the ones who are trying to get to transit and forgive the ones who already have it, which I cry is is an inequity. Well, again, I think the whole county has to pay for transit to happen. When you're talking about transit, it can't be based on one area getting to it because you're going to have the places who are almost there paying more, and the well, ones who are already there enjoying it. I mean, it takes everyone. This, this is the classic uh, taste great, less filling debate um, that was had during the BRT discussion, especially in the uh, task force, more so than at the board, where there were people that said. Wait a minute. If I happen to live near some place where you're playing a BRT quarter, why should I pay more? Doesn't this benefit the whole county? And other people said, oh, no, no, no. I live nowhere near this BRT quarter. I shouldn't pay anything because I don't benefit from it. I mean, it's sort of irreconcilable, incommensurable value judgments. Now, and what you're saying is you think it's countywide. I, I would argue to you that it's some of both. But it's not crazy to say if you live right next to the transit corridor, whether you use it or not, there's that adds value to your property. And so it's reasonable to say people who live near it should pay into it because it's a way of capturing some of that additional value. That we're you, saying exactly the opposite here. We're saying that because there's already transit, there's going to be a forgiveness of impact. Well, they uh, presumably whatever the – They'll pay the value as has already been absorbed. They'll pay the basic impact tax. They wouldn't have to pay right. an additional portion for transit accessibility because they have that. But the impact taxes they pay, which we want to keep right, in I the area where it. they're being collected, could go for new sidewalks, for other things that would make the area more desirable. Yeah, I mean, you have to at some point decide in your own mind, what's your theory of the point of this whole exercise? Is it... I don't have public facilities, therefore I'm aggrieved because I don't have good in public infrastructure, and therefore it's not fair to ask me to pay for more because I'm already getting the short of the stick because I don't have it. Or is it I wanted to develop something and buy it, and then ultimately somebody's going to buy a house or occupy an office building in a place that wasn't served by infrastructure, and they darn sure ought to be the ones that have to pay for it because they're the ones that cause the problem. You can't have it both ways. You could you can make an argument for either one, but up until now you the theory has always been where you pay where you're creating new impact. That is the logic of the SSP since the beginning of 
And that's history. what I'm saying is faulty because okay. we're an entire county and we haven't been able to achieve transit all the way through no, the way we want to. But I think I understand it is, yeah, but it's, there, it's, right? everybody understands that it's to benefit the whole. And it doesn't matter whether you live right next to it or you live the city away. Everybody has an impact when they build. We as a county have approved things to be in rural areas. We have master plans that have approved things way out on the corridor cities. So, Let's do what we need to do to get all of it done, but there are people, we have residents who live there and residents who live in the CBD. But if you look at our transit accessibility test, we acknowledge, I mean, it is based on transit in 2010, where we think it should be in 2040, and how far do we think they're going to be toward that goal in 2025. The beauty of that test to me <coughs> is that you could be in an area where we don't expect to have much transit, and not get charged for a transit inadequacy because you don't have it now and we don't plan for you to have it. But if it's an area like Wheaton where we want you to finish completing the system to get BRT, to get whatever, then we're saying that, okay, you know, you're not quite there. You should still have to pay so we can bring you all the way up. But, it, again, as you go out into the more suburban or rural areas, you may have, and it seems a little odd when you think about it to say, oh, well, they are adequate when it comes to transit. And people say, well, they have no transit. Right, but we don't ever expect them to have transit. So, you know, they are not going to be charged an impact tax based on the fact that they don't have it, that we don't expect them to have it, so there's no charge. And we have examples that show some of that as we go through. Um, and I, just, I think places that are not currently served by transit but are in a corridor that's expected to have it someday – it's reasonable to ask them to pay in. Not that they have to pay 100% of the freight. They're not going to come anywhere close to it with these right. with these payments. General revenue from property taxes will pay a lot of it. Some, Hopefully some money from uh, state uh, transportation will pay for some of it. And there will be other sources. But a little bit of it, at least, can come from a specific payment. Uh, for the record, Nick Dumay, just to echo the chair's comment, the, I, I don't want the board to lose sight of the fact that the, really the foundation of the exercise is the adequate public facilities ordinance. And because what we're proposing here, taxes aside, really are, they're just, they're development fees. They're, they're reviewed under a legal standard that requires you to make at least some connection between the impact that's being generated and what you're proposing to do about it. And so, you know, when, I, the idea of a flat fee or a flat tax isn't necessarily a bad idea. But when we're talking about really, again, a flat fee that is just that goes generally into improving the county's transportation infrastructure, that really does look a lot like a tax exactly. and a lot less like the, a development fee. Nick, so what I if think you tie it to, and that's what I'm saying, tying it to the master plans, there we have identified what the improvements are, and that's the impact. We said this right. is going to be the impact, this is what it requires to be adequate, and everybody's going to contribute to it, but we never quite have the formula on how it's actually going to happen. Yeah, and that's but, not a bad that's not a bad idea. I just I don't want us to drift too far from, from at least tying the money. The that's nexus, there, right? and it has to be a nexus, but yeah. I'm suggesting that that nexus is based on what we already approved, and that if you total that up across the county, it's reasonable still to say that that's how we as a county pay for it. It's the amount of all those things that we had prioritized divided by X in a new area, X in an urban area, and et cetera. Could we please uh, try to resolve – I mean, I take it there's agreement with my idea of if you're over 45 percent and you're in a metro station policy area. Can we change it or? to 40 or 30 – something that leaves um, 
Forest Glen out, but include some of the other areas that we planned a lot of development, like Glenmont, Shady Grove. Is there a number that works? Are you are you okay with that? Or you or your forty five had a real basis? I, I think it, it's easier to defend if it's based on that number. I'm not I'm not hostile to to what you're saying, but I'm just saying it's uh, it starts feeling a little bit squishy when you start saying, well, I want to put. Well, I I, I I see why Glenmont is very different from everything else, but I'm not sure Glen. Um, uh, uh, Far, no, Forest Glen is different, but Glenmont is really much like uh, much of the other areas. We've approved a lot of density there, and there's a lot of stuff actually happening around Glenmont, and I hate to exclude it from this category. And Shady Grove, the county's invested. Right. What, what is the number for for Glenmont? Is it 35? Uh, it's, a, it's probably 35. I mean, I, it, well, and I guess, I mean, the, the question is that I, I'm hearing a motion to just say keep metro station policy areas and just say if it's a metro station policy area, it goes into this category. And, again, the question is we that arguably would say let's just – you know what? Forest Glen really doesn't matter because nothing's happening there. Well, Nobody pays a tax. Well, again, technically. So, so it, even Forest, if it's in that category, it doesn't hurt you. Forest, Forest Glen is not a metro station policy area. Forest Glen is a metro station, but without a metro station policy area. You're saying if you use metro station policy areas, that would cover yeah. pretty I mean, it's much all. It's a way to get Shady Grove and Glen. If you are both a metro station policy area and you exceed 35% your core, that will get you Glenmont. And that, I think that that's defensible. I don't know what happened to Shady Grove. Are you sure Forest Glen is the only one? Are you sure Forest Glen well, is the only one? Well, again, NIH Naval Medical is a metro station without its own policy area. It's a government, serving a government. It's not, a, it's not its own policy area, but it almost well, there, is. Well, there could be because it's to make it a policy area or not. But there's no, there's no development there, right? Because it's all, it's all federal. I mean, all federal. Development, but it's, yeah, so it doesn't matter. All right. Shady Grove? What? Where is Shady Grove? Shady Grove, the R&D village. No. Where is Shady Grove on this? My understanding is that Shady Grove, we did not have the ability in ACS to carve out Shady Grove as a separate place, whereas many other places that was able to be done. Well, if a decision is made in the future to create a metro station policy area for Shady Grove, then it can be folded into this. But since it's not, there's no reason to try to invent some way to deal with it here. How does it become well, one? And again, that's until right now, Shady Grove is a metro station policy area, just that the folks Next. who did this chart couldn't break that out. Again, what I'm suggesting is it seems like folks are comfortable with the metro station policy area because that would get you Shady Grove, it would get you Grosvenor, it would get you Eden, it would get you Glenmont, okay. um, and that that is what I'm hearing is sort of the proposal. Ignore the orange line for this purpose. Okay. And just go to, if it's a metro station policy area, it gets into that yeah. core category, at least for taxes and maybe for LATR and policy areas. Okay, I think, I think that's, that's fine for where that will get us through the day, I think. Yeah. Now, what are we going to do about uh, the area that's in the, whatever we're calling it, corridor or urban category, but is not in the core, that we're saying traffic studies above 1350, but mitigation first for places with urban road code. I, I have some issues with that, but I want to hear what you're – Well, and again, that's something we were thinking about talking more about LATR next week, but we can jump into that. Uh, I think that's if we want to go in that direction. If you don't need to get to today, we're kind of almost out of time, so I'm just trying to get to where you need us to be to keep you on track. Yeah. What did you want to talk about? Well, we had hoped to talk about impact taxes and how we came up with the rate. I think – uh, I'm assuming with what you just did with putting the metro station policy areas into the core, the 
uh, ones that are exempt, that the other categories are you're okay with, the three that are rural, the others that are suburban. Um, and so I don't know that we need to go through those slides that show that. I think that's fine, as, but I think that they're subject to some discussion about what the implications, what happens in each of those categories. Is that fair? Right. Well, and we do have some slides. I mean, I can I just quickly, again, to remind everyone that right now you do a roadway adequacy test in your urban, suburban, and rural categories. This is today. And that roadway adequacy test that must meet a minimum level of service of 40%. Under the new subdivision staging policy, we are saying there will be no roadway adequacy test. And I do have a problem with that um, for the reasons that we mentioned for you wanting to do a policy uh, and, and we had a transit adequacy test that looked at span and, um, you know, the headways, et cetera. We're proposing to get rid of that transit adequacy test and create a new one, again, that looks at that, the 30 years between 2010 and 2040 and looks at where you are in 2025 in terms of reaching that goal to determine your transit adequacy. And that is the test that we are proposing would be charged uh, would be done in, instead of the roadway adequacy test because we want to not say, oh, you're not adequate for roads, build more roads. We want to rather say, how can we create options to driving in a single occupancy vehicle? So that's really what we're proposing here. Uh, so in the, again, in these urban centers, which you've now increased significantly, uh, we would say that, uh, that under TPAR, which we've gotten rid of, so under the new transit accessibility, it's not going to be applied. So they won't have any tests. They'll pay their basic impact fees, uh, and those will, we are making a recommendation, uh, should stay in this area, so in the area that they're collected in. And um, uh, so, again, we have some examples, but I think the examples are going to change now based on on putting new areas into um, uh, your core areas. But if you look at an area like Durwood, for example, uh, today under TPAR, it has an adequate roadway level of service, but it's inadequate in transit, and therefore we would have collected a 25% impact tax uh, under the new test that we're proposing, the transit accessibility test. You wouldn't do any roadway adequacy. It still shows up, though, as inadequate for transit accessibility, so we would still say that you should collect a 25% impact tax over and above the regular impact tax, just to give you an example. Uh, Wheaton now has changed because you've moved it out of this area. Uh, but says to Chevy Chase under the current, and this is not the core area of the CBD, this is the rest of Bethesda to Chevy Chase. Uh, under TPAR today shows an inadequate road level of service and in it, it's inadequate for transit service and we would therefore today charge them a mitigation payment of 50% over and above their impact tax. But uh, under the new test, we're not testing for roadway adequacy anymore. They actually come out adequate now for transit accessibility uh, so they wouldn't have to pay anything. This before exists now, right? Pardon? In Bethesda Chevy Chase? No, they, you wouldn't because they were not testing the roadway adequacy and they come out adequate on transit accessibility. So. And TPAR. Oh. We, we did oh. under TPAR collect 50%. That goes away under the new framework. Oh, by the way, 
Um, I think that the most likely result of carving out these places, no matter what we recommend, is that the council will decide that the impact tax payment needs to go up. So Does it impact tax to the extent that they go along with what we're saying, I think they might say, fine, we understand your rationale. You don't want to do all these, these individualized tests. But they'll basically go in the direction of what Amy's saying and say, okay, fine, well, that's okay to carve some of these things out and not apply. But, so, but we got to get paid somehow. And so I think the result of that is a, a likely to be there's going to have to be an increase in the general, the base impact tax for everybody. Which may get closer to what Amy was saying. Uh, it would be closer to what Amy was saying, for better or for worse. But yep. I do agree that they certainly, from a budget standpoint, need to collect a certain amount of money. So, so why, just on that point one more time, so why wouldn't we, as, as far as Nick's point was about the nexus that's required, I don't know that you'd want to go so granular as to have the impact tax based on the on the master plan. You could. Eventually, you'd want it to be tied exactly to that, what provisions are in there. But they're, they're going to say... That Everyone in 2007, they, they gave a big cut, and, and we've been using that right. number all along. And now, um, instead of a up. CPI increase for 2017, they're going to do 10% and then a CPI after that, or 15% or to, as like a catch-up. Or uh, we don't want to charge you the full thing, but we get, we got to have a makeup. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm making it up, but it will be some well, and uh, again, off the, just like they reduced it. <laughs> they'll come up with some logic to where they well, get six votes. You might not even have votes. to do that because in 2007 they came up with a number and they reduced it. In 2016, we've come up with a number. It's much higher than what's being paid now, as you If we show them out. your number. And, uh, and I mean, your retail number is like 26-something. Okay. No, it, it Even more than the park. Higher. But it's not like Glen Orland is oblivious, right? If you just because Rose doesn't show them a number doesn't mean they can't <laughs> find a number. They don't need our help in coming up with a number. But I'm saying when we and we we're going to go through that today. I know we're not going to have time, which is of concern because we must get have, this have, policy done. Rose, if we fix this, the Wheaton thing now, Wheaton doesn't have an extra. Well, Wheaton is will, just like it was this before. This will be subject to no tests now. Right so. now, okay. Right, based on the decision you made today. Um, and Gaithersburg City, it's not a metro station policy area, so. Um, Not really. Again, they did have a mitigation no, impact tax of 25% based on inadequate roadway level of service. Now we're not going to be doing a roadway adequacy test, but they do come out inadequate in terms of transit accessibility, so they're in, going to end up paying the same thing. So what you'll find throughout these examples that we have here is that, you know, some areas come out better and some areas the, come the, out the worse. The train didn't give a much bump, huh? Nope. Hmm. Okay. It did not. Um, and, of course, Germantown Town Center, that, that won't be. I'm trying to remember which ones are changed. It was, I think it was Cloverly or something like that that went down. Which, was it Cloverly? Uh, oh, you're talking about the examples for the impact taxes, where yeah, we yeah. had a residential development in Silver Spring, and it ended up going It was down. this chart, but it went down from 50% to 25%, which... It was lovely, but it wasn't logical. It, it, this is it. Yeah, Fairland Colesville. Right, Fairland Colesville. We had uh, inadequate and for roadway level of service, inadequate <coughs> transit, so they paid 25% impact for each of those, giving them a 50% impact tax payment. Uh, under the new <coughs> test, they had no, still had, they didn't have to be adequate for roadways, 
they still were inadequate for <coughs> transit, uh, and so they still had to pay 25%. So it was lower. Yeah, that's the one that... And he was, uh, Commissioner Dreyfus was worried because he felt that's an area where we want to encourage growth. Why are we still going to charge them that 25%? But again, they were 50% under the old. Right. So, so to me, that work. is an incentive. It just came out that way. Uh, and uh, now back to the rural areas where Damascus, rural east, and rural west. Um, if you look at an area like Damascus, it, it is inadequate for a roadway level of service, inadequate for transit service. This is under existing, so they would pay 50%. But under the new transit accessibility test, because we don't expect them to get transit, they technically are adequate for transit accessibility. So maybe we should say something like, N.A., not adequate. <laughs> not oh, here we go. <laughs> Maybe we should. <laughs> uh, and, and again, uh, in the rural east and west, they are actually exempt from transit tests because get they are tests. rural. We, so don't complain about your drive down uh, so 27. So you would not be collecting anything there. Yeah, seriously. Why are they exempt from the roadway tests? Because the, uh, they are in the rural... Well, again, in this case, it's the policy area. Every area is becoming exempt from a roadway policy area test because we're doing away Which with the roadway my policy area. Point is that the switch is so far the to the other side oh, that we're going to trap those people out there. Right. Why they're exempt from the transit test is yeah. because that there's just no. No, I get the transit thing, but even under TPAR, there it says they're exempt from roadway oh. tests. Could, could, can we use this one as a perfect example? Gwen always likes to use a real like a real life example. Okay, so you have people in Damascus. And they don't have transit, so how do they get to the jobs? Because the jobs aren't in Damascus. I'll tell you how they get to the jobs. They get in their car, and they go up 27, the only way they can get there. Now, they don't have the option to, to access an M83 and use that. So they're trapped on 27 until they hit 355 or, you know, Frederick Road and 27, and then they wait to get their access to 270, which is already jammed up because it's the only way out for points north of Rockville. There's no other accessibility to anything, and there's no jobs there. But now with this test, what we're saying is we're not going to look at the roads because we're, we're basing it on transit. Oh, and we consider you adequate for transit. Now we've trapped you there. You're in an island where we already said these people could live there content as they want to be in this rural area, but we have to at least look at their access in and out. I mean, you have to you, – you can't just choke something out and say there's no need for anything to assist you in that. And I'm not sure how you fix that. People who to an area like Damascus are aware that they are, uh, you know, further you out. You to Damascus and, you're, and you work in Bethesda mm -hmm. and you complain that you're stuck in traffic, I can't help you. Okay, well, let, but let me explain. Let me explain. This I mean, county I, 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 said it was okay to have certain levels of development. We just approved, last thing was a, approval of a townhouse development. People were in here so irate because they were afraid of, like, 20 more trips that were going to be on the road. That's because their experience is they're stuck for an hour on 27 trying to get to a place to work. The county already said it was okay to build and live out there, and now the county is going to be saying, but we don't want to support you. We have, like, multiple types of options for people to live. It doesn't mean well, we have to have no empathy for someone who's chosen one of those, because heretofore we used to say, it's okay, let's take care of the road. Now all of a sudden we're going to say in this shift, it's so far a paradigm shift that now the roads aren't going to matter at all. So if you're stuck in Damascus or if you choose to move there, too bad. And if you're in one of the other places where we said you'd get transit, like Clarksburg, like Germantown, too bad. You know, too bad, too bad for me. I can't afford to live in Bethesda. As Republicans, it's, we're very sensitive people. Right. Talk about equity. 
we have multiple choices for people and we need to support all of the infrastructure that's required. And I'm not saying we build highways to Damascus. All I'm suggesting is maybe we need to look at something that will at least evaluate for people in the different areas whether or not their, well, their, their accessibility. Okay, my short response to you is if you want to apply a roadway adequacy test to, to these places, I have no issue with that at all. In fact, that's great, although that sort of complicates the whole scheme. Uh, I, I'm not, I don't really agree with the rest of what you said. I just think, you know, nobody is suggesting somebody should be punished for moving to Damascus. All I'm saying is that you, if you live in Damascus and you work 30 or 40 miles away, you accept the consequences of that. That's and what, what are the options? for people who we already provided homes out there and said, this is your choice for homes. So I get it. People in Damascus don't get to have services accessible and the things that we're saying are important for everyone because that's their choice, even though we don't have jobs out there for them. People who moved to Clarksburg and paid a premium and, and uh, an area who was paying more than $60 million a year in tax and don't see any improvements, now we say to those people, well, too bad. You were going to have jobs, but now you don't because everybody decided it was environmentally insensitive. So we're going to do that. I'm, and I'm not trying to just be argumentative. I'm saying understand that you can't plan a thing, have people living there, and then say, well, that's unfortunate that you don't live in an urban area. Deal with it. And then continue to pile more cars onto that area to make it so that eventually it's going to take people two hours to get okay. somewhere. Okay. Whatever the county said in 1994 was supposed to happen in Clarksburg. Nobody in 2016, everybody's on notice. There's no office parks being built up the 270 corridor. There's no, so nobody is moving to Clarksburg or Damascus or any other place. I see a bunch of new homes for sale and people moving in. The development is happening well, again. Should see Talk one. to Mr. Flanagan. It's going on. And they're, if they, some of them work in Frederick. Some of them work in Germantown. And they can get to work without too much aggravation, I think. No more aggravation than people who live in Silver Spring or Bethesda. I'm just saying if they choose to, to work in Bethesda or D.C. or Tyson's Corner. I mean, I, there was a Washington Post article a couple of years ago. It was sort of like this Wither Clarksburg article. And the lead of the article went on for about 20 paragraphs talking about this couple that lived in Clarksburg. And, they, and the, the, the guy works in Tyson's Corner. He's talking about how terrible the traffic is. Well, you know, that's to be expected, I think. And it's and the plan was for jobs to go up the 270 corridor. They didn't materialize. But my view is there's only – shame on the county and our agency and everybody else for being – for failing to foresee that that wouldn't materialize. But there's a limit. A shame on us for failing to encourage it to materialize and for ensuring that it does by tying some of the things that are collected right. to the infrastructure we said we need. That's all. Well, not that Karen it matters, Anderson. but I think everything that happened with the 10 Mile Creek Master Plan is basically irrelevant to, to job centers up there. So that's Can I perhaps get you, because I know you need to yes, in you this meeting, and we're not going to get the impact taxes today, but one thing we have suggested, I believe you got a handout that looks like this. Uh, so there was a lot of unhappiness, if you will recall, from the public with some of the names that we had chosen for these four groupings. We still have four groupings. Based on the discussion today, we just moved more into the core. So what, uh, so what we had called core, we're proposing we should call urban centers, and that will now include your metro station <coughs> policy areas that have an NADMS greater than 35 percent. Uh, what we had called corridor, we're proposing we call them inner ring communities and town centers. 
what we had called wedge, we're proposing should be called residential and corridor communities, and rural stays the same. And I was wondering if people... You cannot use the U word right. or residential either. And the reason is because if you do, everybody... It will have the same argument we have in every master plan about urban road code classifications. People say, oh my God, we've got to fight this proposal to classify us as urban because we're not urban. And they don't understand, like... Urban road code means you get to slow down traffic. The streets are more pedestrian friendly. They they can't get past us because they're so hung up on the word urban. And by the same token, the flip side is if you give a label residential, say, yes, I'm residential. I want to be in the residential area. They don't understand that's not. We have residential in every part of the county, right. in the CBDs, et cetera. It's, it will mislead people into thinking, I want to be in the residential part, not in the urban part, without ever getting it. It interferes with people's ability to, to understand what is the actual substance of these classifications. So you can call them whatever you want. Just Corridor don't use the word urban or residential. Call them blue, green, red, and yellow. Zucchini, banana. Whatever. I thought we had the corridor. There are the corridor cities. chart for a moment, other than the name of it? Yeah. Well, after, right it. after you get done with answering the question they posed to us. Oh, sorry. Was there a question out there? Well, I just was what trying to, call them. to come up with what the name should well, be. Well, based on Norman's point, there might be a different set of, is everybody still agreeing now that there's four categories? Because what to call them has to do with what's in them. Can we say one, two, and three, four? If so could we call them core, corridor, suburban, and rural? No. What? I said could we, so before we had core for the ones that are now subject to no LATR test, Still call them core. Uh, the ones that we had labeled urban, we could call them corridor, particularly now that we've put um, corridor cities. Right. You could call them corridor cities if you prefer that. Um, it's okay. Corridor. Although I'm not sure the word corridors. cities. No, in the corridor's fine. I was just. <laughs> uh, yeah. Where we had proposed wedge, go back to the term suburban. What's the, what did, what was or corridor suburban? Wedge. I thought I was being clever by getting us out of the suburban thing, but apparently that didn't didn't fly. What was it? it drove a wedge between people groups. It had been suburban before. Because the word, what is, what's the complaint about wedge? Well, because if you think of our wedges and corridor plan, uh, like Gaithersburg came in and said, "Oh my God, we're not part of the wedge. We're part, you know. Well, we've actually moved them, so maybe you could now get away with wedge." I'm trying to remember. Well, and again, Clarksburg is a good example. I mean, one of the reasons why we said maybe not corridor is because there is corridor cities, transit way, and corridor cities. So if Clarksburg is not going to be an orange, we start calling them red, yellow, orange, green, and we could do that. If Wait, you're saying Clarksburg yellow, isn't going to be an or? It is an or already. Well, it so is a corridor city as planned in the master plan. It's not complete yet, but it's there. And so, so, but Clarksburg also is a planned corridor city, so it probably shouldn't be called not a corridor. Right. Uh, and I thought we were like putting a wedge. it in the corridor. Yeah. Well, we okay. put Clarksburg Town Center into right. the... Right, the rest of Clarksburg I is I think that's yellow. too granular because the, de the development that's associated with that town center is really the village and the center. It's not... One, two, three, four. It's, anyway... Those are the names. <laughs> no. oh, cor uh, one, two, three. I no. still don't get what the problem is with corridor and wedge. Well, we may be able to do it now just, that we've made some changes. Because so I would just encourage the board not to use the term wedge. Question already of wedge, yes. right? Who doesn't like wedge? I would encourage the board not right. to use the term wedge. I mean, we we looked at this. Wedge has a wedge very particular yes. meaning in the context of our of our general plan and in the context of our particular master plans. If you look at the map of what we're calling wedges. 
it doesn't correspond to the master plan. And not, this is not like a, like a legal mandate or anything like that, but I just encourage you not to create a... Okay. Thank you. Here's so my again, proposal. I would recommend Here, core. Here's my proposal. Core is number one. Number two is corridor and ring. Corridor and ring. And ring. Which corresponds to the general plan. Yeah. Um, number three is... Uh, if you look at the map that we just put, <laughs> I'm getting there. I'm gonna. It's gonna come to me. It's like do you, remember, do you remember, like Johnny Carson used the Karnak thing. Right? He'll, he'll tap the envelope against the silver medal. We'll say we'll say arrived on its way, never going to arrive, and and hopelessly lost. This may be a crazy idea, but you know the reason that our teams in the planning department are called Area 1, Area 2, and Area 3, is that we have the same problem. Maybe we call this 1, 2, 3, and 4. I get, that I means think nothing that to people. It means no, nothing means to people. Nothing. And that's good. It's I don't, exactly. the, the, you don't have any idea what part of the county use, you're talking about. Words now. have all this baggage with them. But who is the audience? What's wrong with are the people who are reading this really that invested in these words? It's a technical document. This is a technical document. We can call it right. one, two, three, and four. Or you could just call it red, orange, yellow, and green, like it's on, like it is right there in the graphic. How about that? Or apple, banana, peaches, and Red, pears. yellow, orange, green. Just like you've got apple, it there. There's no purple. <laughs> and there will be more red on your new map because you're going to have more red. So red, so red, orange, yellow, green. Wait, you're saying you're going you're gonna to at least identify on the map the corridor cities with red? All right, save your fire. And you know what? I think we're probably going to have to schedule another work session to catch us up during the week. So that's what you get for being so difficult <laughs> and contrary. Yeah, so. All right, I'll schedule it at midnight just to force you all to get through it. Okay. Well, that works, too. That's one less person I have to deal with. Oh, nothing. So don't, don't make that threat. Wow. All right. Thank you.